You're listening to Heisenberg. Macmillan Audio presents God Emperor of Dune by Frank Herbert. Read for you by Simon Vance, Scott Brick, and Katie Kelgren. Excerpt from the speech by Hadi Benoto announcing the discoveries at Dar es Balat on the planet of Rakis. It not only is my pleasure to announce to you this morning our discovery of this marvellous storehouse containing, among other things, a monumental collection of manuscripts inscribed on Redulian crystal paper, but I also take pride in giving you our arguments for the authenticity of our discoveries. To tell you why we believe we have uncovered the original journals of Leto II, the God Emperor. First, let me record to you the historical treasure which we all know by the name of the Stolen Journals, those volumes of known antiquity which over the centuries have been so valuable in helping us to understand our ancestors. As you all know, the Stolen Journals were deciphered by the Spacing Guild, and the method of the Guild Key was employed to translate these newly discovered volumes. No one denies the antiquity of the Guild Key, and it, and it alone, translates these volumes. Second, these volumes were printed by an Ixian dictatel of truly ancient make. The stolen journals leave no doubt that this was in fact the method employed by Leto II to record his historical observations. Third, and we believe that this is equally important to the actual discovery, there is the storehouse itself. The repository for these journals is an undoubted Ixian artifact of such primitive and yet marvellous construction that it is sure to throw new light on the historical epoch known as the Scattering. As was to be expected, the storehouse was invisible. It was buried far deeper than myth and the oral history had led us to expect, and it emitted radiation and absorbed radiation to simulate the natural character of its surroundings, a mechanical mimesis which is not surprising of itself. What has surprised our engineers, however, is the way that this was done with the most rudimentary and truly primitive mechanical skills. I can see that some of you are as excited by this as we were. We believe we are looking at the first Ixian globe, the no-room from which all such devices evolved. If it is not actually the first, we believe it must be one of the first and embodying the same principles as the first. Let me address your obvious curiosity by assuring you that we will take you on a brief tour of the storehouse presently. We will ask only that you maintain silence while within the storehouse because our engineers and other specialists are still at work there unravelling the mysteries. Which brings me to my fourth point, and this may well be the capstone of our discoveries. It is with emotions difficult to describe that I reveal to you now another discovery at this site, namely actual oral recordings which are labelled as having been made by Leto II in the voice of his father, Paul Muad'Dib. Since authenticated recordings of the god-emperor are lodged in the Bene Gesserit archives, we have sent a sampling of our recordings, each of which were made on an ancient microbubble system to the sisterhood with a formal request that they conduct a comparison test. We have little doubt that the recordings will be authenticated. Now, please turn your attention to the translated excerpts which were handed to you as you entered. Let me take this opportunity to apologize for their weight— I have heard some of you joking about that. 
We used ordinary paper for a practical reason. Economy. The original volumes are inscribed in symbols so small that they must be magnified substantially before they can be read. In fact, it requires more than forty ordinary volumes of the type you now hold just to reprint the contents of one of the Redulian crystal originals. If the projector... Yes, we are now projecting part of an original page onto the screen at your left. This is from the first page of the first volume. Our translation is on the screens to the right. I call your attention to the internal evidence, the poetic vanity of the words, as well as the meaning derived from the translation. The style conveys a personality which is identifiable and consistent. We believe that this could only have been written by someone who had the direct experience of ancestral memories, by someone labouring to share that extraordinary experience of previous lives in a way that could be understood by those not so gifted. Look now at the actual meaning content. All of the references accord with everything history has told us about the one person whom we believe is the only person who could have written such an account. We have another surprise for you now. I have taken the liberty of inviting the well-known poet Rabeth Vrieb to share the platform with us this morning and to read from this first page a short passage of our translation. It is our observation that, even in translation, these words take on a different character when read aloud. We want to share with you a truly extraordinary quality which we have discovered in these volumes. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Rebeth Vrieb. From the reading by Rebeth Vrieb I assure you that I am the Book of Fate. Questions are my enemies, for my questions explode. Answers leap up like a frightened flock blackening the sky of my inescapable memories. Not one answer, not one suffices. What prisms flash when I enter the terrible field of my past? I am a chip of shattered flint enclosed in a box. The box gyrates and quakes. I am tossed about in a storm of mysteries. And when the box opens, I return to this presence like a stranger in a primitive land. Slowly, slowly, I say, I relearn my name. But that is not to know myself. This person of my name, this Leto who is the second of that calling, finds other voices in his mind, other names and other places. Oh, I promise you, as I have been promised, that I answer to but a single name. If you say, Leto, I respond. Sufferance makes this true. Sufferance and one thing more. I hold the threads. All of them are mine. Let me but imagine a topic. Say, men who have died by the sword, and I have them in all of their gore, every image intact, every moan, every grimace. Joys of motherhood, I think, and the birthing beds are mine. Serial baby smiles and the sweet cooings of new generations, the first walkings of the toddlers and the first victories of youths brought forth for me to share. They tumble one upon another until I can see little else but sameness and repetition. Keep it all intact, I warn myself. 
Who can deny the value of such experiences, the worth of learning through which I view each new instant? Ah, but it's the past. Don't you understand? It's only the past. This morning I was born in a yurt at the edge of a horse plain in a land of a planet which no longer exists. Tomorrow I will be born someone else in another place. I have not yet chosen. This morning, though, ah, this life. When my eyes had learned to focus, I looked out at sunshine on trampled grass, and I saw vigorous people going about the sweet activities of their lives. Where, oh where has all of that vigor gone? The Stolen Journals The three people running northward through moon shadows in the forbidden forest were strung out along almost half a kilometre. The last runner in the line ran less than a hundred metres ahead of the pursuing D-wolves. The animals could be heard, yelping and panting in their eagerness, the way they do when they have the prey in sight. With first moon almost directly overhead, it was quite light in the forest, and although these were the higher latitudes of Arrakis, it was still warm from the heat of a summer day. The nightly drift of air from the last desert of the Sarir carried resin smells and the deep exhalations of the duff underfoot. Now and again, a breeze from the Kynes Sea beyond the Sarir drifted across the runners' tracks with hints of salt and fishes. By a quirk of fate, the last runner was called Ulat which in the Fremen tongue means beloved straggler. Ulot was short in stature, and with a tendency to fat which had placed an extra dieting burden on him in training for this venture. Even when slimmed down for their desperate run, his face remained round, the large brown eyes vulnerable in that suggestion of too much flesh. To Ulot it was obvious that he could not run much farther. He panted and wheezed, Occasionally he staggered, but he did not call out to his companions. He knew they could not help him. All of them had taken the same oath, knowing they had no defences except the old virtues and Fremen loyalties. This remained true, even though everything that once had been Fremen had now a museum quality, wrote recitals learned from museum Fremen. It was Fremen loyalty that kept Ulat silent in the full awareness of his doom a fine display of the ancient qualities, and rather pitiful when none of the runners had any but book knowledge and the legends of the oral history about the virtues they aped. The D-wolves ran close behind Ulot, giant grey figures almost man-height at the shoulders. They leaped and whined in their eagerness, heads lifted, eyes focused on the moon-betrayed figure of their quarry. A root caught Ulot's left foot and he almost fell. This gave him renewed energy. He put on a burst of speed, gaining perhaps a wolf length on his pursuers. His arms pumped. He breathed noisily through his open mouth. The D-wolves did not change pace. They were silver shadows which went flick-flick through the loud green smells of their forest. They knew they had won. It was a familiar experience. Again, Ulot stumbled. He caught his balance against a sapling and continued his panting flight, gasping, his legs trembling in rebellion against these demands. No energy remained for another burst of speed. 
One of the D-wolves, a large female, moved out on Ulot's left flank. She swerved inward and leaped across his path. Giant fangs ripped Ulot's shoulder and staggered him, but he did not fall. The pungency of blood was added to the forest smells. A smaller male caught his right hip, and at last Ulot fell, screaming. The pack pounced, and his screams were cut off in abrupt finality. Not stopping to feed, the D-wolves again took up the chase. Their noses probed the forest floor and the vagrant eddies in the air, scenting the warm tracery of two more running humans. The next runner in the line was named Kuteg, an old and honourable name on Arrakis, a name from the Dune times. An ancestor had served Siech Tabor as master of the Death Stills. But that was more than three thousand years lost in a past which many no longer believed. Kuteg ran with the long strides of a tall and slender body which seemed perfectly fitted to such exertion. Long black hair streamed back from his aquiline features. As with his companions, he wore a black running suit of tightly knitted cotton. It revealed the workings of his buttocks and stringy thighs, the deep and steady rhythm of his breathing. Only his pace, which was markedly slow for Kuteg, betrayed the fact that he had injured his right knee coming down from the man-made precipices which girdled the god-emperor's citadel fortress in the Sarir. Kutek heard Ulat's screams, the abrupt and potent silence, then the renewed chase yelps of the D-wolves. He tried not to let his mind create the image of another friend being slain by Leto's monster guardians, but imagination worked its sorcery on him. Kuteg thought a curse against the tyrant, but wasted no breath to voice it. There remained a chance that he could reach the sanctuary of the Idaho River. Kuteg knew that his friends thought about him, even Siona. He had always been known as a conservative. Even as a child he had saved his energy until it counted most, parceling out his reserves like a miser. In spite of the injured knee, Kuteg increased his pace. He knew the river was near. His injury had gone beyond agony into a steady flame which filled his entire leg and side with its burning. He knew the limits of his endurance. He knew also that Siona should be almost at the water. The fastest runner of them all, she carried the sealed packet and in it the things they had stolen from the fortress in the Sarir. Kulteg focused his thoughts on that packet as he ran. Save it, Siona. Use it to destroy him. The eager whining of the D-wolves penetrated Kuteg's consciousness. They were too close. He knew then that he would not escape. But Siona must escape. He risked a backward glance and saw one of the wolves move to flank him. The pattern of their attack plan imprinted itself on his awareness. As the flanking wolf leaped, Kuteg also leaped. Placing a tree between himself and the pack, he ducked beneath the flanking wolf, grasped one of its hind legs in both hands, and without stopping, whirled the captive wolf as a flail which scattered the others. Finding the creature not as heavy as he had expected, almost welcoming the change of action, he flailed his living bludgeon at the attackers in a dervish whirl which brought two of them down in a crash of skulls. But he could not guard every side. A lean male caught him in the back, hurling him against a tree, and he lost his bludgeon. He screamed. The pack bored in and Kuteg caught the throat of the lean male in his teeth. He bit down with every gram of his final desperation. Wolf blood spurted over his face, blinding him. 
Rolling without any knowledge of where he went, Kute grappled another wolf. Part of the pack dissolved into a yelping, whirling mob, some turning against their own injured. Most of the pack remained intent on the quarry, though. Teeth ripped Kuteg's throat from both sides. Siona, too, had heard Ulat scream. Then the unmistakable silence followed by the yelping of the pack as the wolves resumed the chase. Such anger filled her that she felt she might explode with it. Ulot had been included in this venture because of his analytical ability, his way of seeing a whole from only a few parts. It had been Ulot who, taking the inevitable magnifier from his kit, had examined the two strange volumes they had found in the Citadel's plans. I think it's a cipher, Ulot had said. And Radi, poor Radi, who had been the first of their team to die. Radi had said, we can't afford the extra weight, throw them away. Ulot had objected. Unimportant things aren't concealed this way. Kutek had joined Radi. We came for the Citadel plans, and we have them. Those things are too heavy. But Siona had agreed with Ulot. I will carry them. That had ended the argument. Poor Ulot. They had all known him as the worst runner in the team. Ulot was slow in most things, but the clarity of his mind could not be denied. He is trustworthy. Ulot had been trustworthy. Siona mastered her anger and used its energy to increase her pace. Trees whipped past her in the moonlight. She had entered that timeless void of the running when there was nothing else but her own movements, her own body doing what it had been conditioned to do. Men thought her beautiful when she ran. Siona knew this. Her long, dark hair was tied tightly to keep it from whipping in the wind of her passage. She had accused Kuteg of foolishness when he had refused to copy her style. Where is Kuteg? Her hair was not like Kuteg's. It was that deep brown which is sometimes confused with black, but is not truly black, not like Kuteg's at all. In the way jeans occasionally do, her features copied those of a long-dead ancestor. Gently oval and with a generous mouth, eyes of alert awareness above a small nose. Her body had grown lanky from years of running, but it sent strong sexual signals to the males around her. Where is Kuteg? The wolf pack had fallen silent, and this filled her with alarm. They had done that before bringing down Radi. It had been the same when they got Satusa. She told herself the silence could mean other things. Kuteg, too, was silent and strong. The injury had not appeared to bother him too much. Siona began to feel pain in her chest, the gasping to come, which she knew well from the long kilometres of training. Perspiration still poured down her body under the thin, black running garment, the kit, with its precious contents sealed against the river passage ahead, rode high on her back. She thought about the citadel charts folded there. Where does Leto hide his hoard of spice? It had to be somewhere within the citadel. It had to be. Somewhere in the charts there would be a clue. The melange spice for which the Bene Gesserit, the guild and all the others hungered. That was a prize worth this risk and those two cryptic volumes. Kutek had been right in one thing. Redulian crystal paper was heavy, but she shared Ulat's excitement. Something important was concealed in those lines of cipher. 
Once more the eager chase yelps of the wolves sounded in the forest behind her. Run, Quotek, run! Now, just ahead of her through the trees, she could see the wide cleared strip which bordered the Idaho River. She glimpsed moon brightness on water beyond the clearing. Run, Quotek! She longed for a sound from Quotek. Any sound. Only the two of them remained now from the eleven who had started the run. Nine had paid for this venture with their lives. Radi, Aline, Ulot, Satusa, Inineg, Onamal, Khutya, Mamar, and Oala. Siona thought their names and with each sent a silent prayer to the old gods, not to the tyrant Leto. Especially she prayed to Shai Hulud. I pray to Shai Hulud, who lives in the sand. Abruptly she was out of the forest and onto the moon-bright stretch of mowed ground along the river. Straight ahead, beyond a narrow shingle of beach, the water beckoned to her. The beach was silver against the oily flow. A loud yell from back in the trees almost made her falter. She recognized Kuteg's voice above the wild wolf sounds, Kuteg called out to her without name, an unmistakable cry with one word containing countless conversations, a message of death and life. Go! The pack sounds took on a terrible commotion of frenzied yelps, but nothing more from Kuteg. She knew then how Kuteg was spending the last energies of his life. Delaying them to help me escape. Obeying Kuteg's cry, she dashed to the river's edge and plunged headfirst into the water. The river was a freezing shock after the heat of the run. It stunned her for a moment and she floundered outward, struggling to swim and regain her breath. The precious kit floated and bumped against the back of her head. The Idaho River was not wide here, no more than fifty metres, a gently sweeping curve with sandy indentations fringed by roots and shelving banks of lush reeds and grass, where the water refused to stay in the straight lines Leto's engineers had designed. Siona was strengthened by the knowledge that the D-wolves had been conditioned to stop at the water. Their territorial boundaries had been drawn, the river on this side and the desert wall on the other side. Still, she swam the last few metres underwater and surfaced in the shadows of a cut bank before turning and looking back. The wolf pack stood ranged along the bank, all except one, which had come down to the river's edge. It leaned forward with its forefeet almost into the flow. She heard it whine. Siona knew the wolf saw her. No doubt of that. D-wolves were noted for their keen eyesight. There were gaze hounds in the ancestry of Leto's forest guardians, and he bred the wolves for their eyesight. She wondered if this once the wolves might break through their conditioning. They were mostly sight hunters. If that one wolf at the river's edge should enter the water, all might follow. Siona held her breath. She felt the dragging of exhaustion. They had come almost thirty kilometres, the last half of it with the D-wolves close behind. The wolf at the river's edge whined once more, then leaped back up to its companions. At some silent signal, they turned and loped back into the forest. Siona knew where they would go. D-wolves were allowed to eat anything they brought down in the Forbidden Forest. Everyone knew this. It was why the wolves roamed the forest, the guardians of the Sarir. 
You'll pay for this later, she whispered. It was a low sound, her voice, very close to the quiet rustling of the water against the reeds just behind her. You'll pay for Ulot, for Kuteg, and for all the others. You'll pay. She pushed outward gently and drifted with the current until her feet met the first shelving of a narrow beach. Slowly, her body dragged down by fatigue, she climbed from the water and paused to check that the sealed contents of her kit had remained dry. The seal was unbroken. She stared at it a moment in the moonlight, then lifted her gaze to the forest wall across the river. The price we paid. Ten dear friends. Tears glimmered in her eyes, but she had the stuff of the ancient Fremen and her tears were few. The venture across the river, directly through the forest while the wolves patrolled the northern boundaries, then across the last desert of the Sarir, and over the citadel's ramparts, all of this already was assuming dream proportions in her mind, even the flight from the wolves which she had anticipated because it was a certainty that the guardian pack would cross the track of the invaders and be waiting. All a dream. It was the past. I escaped. She restored the kit with its sealed packet and fastened it once more against her back. I have broken through your defences, Leto. Siona thought then about the cryptic volumes. She felt certain that something hidden in those lines of cipher would open the way for her revenge. I will destroy you, Leto. Not, we will destroy you. That was not Siona's way. She would do it herself. She turned and strode toward the orchards beyond the river's mowed border. As she walked, she repeated her oath, adding to it aloud the old Fremen formula which terminated in her full name. Siona ibn Fuad al-Sayefa Atreides it is who curses you, Leto. You will pay in full. The following is from the Hadi Benoto translation of the volumes discovered at Dar Espalat. I was born later Atreides II, more than three thousand standard years ago, measuring from the moment when I caused these words to be printed. My father was Paul Muad'Dib. My mother was his Fremen consort, Cheney. My maternal grandmother was Farula, a noted herbalist among the Fremen. My paternal grandmother was Jessica, a product of the Bene Gesserit breeding scheme in their search for a male who could share the powers of the sisterhood's reverend mothers. My maternal grandfather was Liet Kynes, the planetologist who organized the ecological transformation of Arrakis. My paternal grandfather was the Atreides, descendant of the house of Atreus and tracing his ancestry directly back to the Greek original. Enough of these begats. My paternal grandfather died as many good Greeks did, attempting to kill his mortal enemy, the old Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. Both of them rest uncomfortably now in my ancestral memories. Even my father is not content. I have done what he feared to do, and now his shade must share in the consequences. The golden path demands it. And what is the golden path? you ask? It is the survival of humankind, nothing more nor less. We who have prescience, 
We who know the pitfalls in our human futures, this has always been our responsibility. Survival. How you feel about this, your petty woes and joys, even your agonies and raptures, seldom concerns us. My father had this power. I have it stronger. We can peer, now and again, through the veils of time. This planet of Arrakis from which I direct my multi-galactic empire is no longer what it was in the days when it was known as Dune. In those days, the entire planet was a desert. Now there is just this little remnant, my Sarir. No longer does the giant sandworm roam free, producing the spice melange. The spice. Dune was noteworthy only as the source of melange, the only source. What an extraordinary substance. No laboratory has ever been able to duplicate it, and it is the most valuable substance humankind has ever found. Without melange to ignite the linear prescience of guild navigators, people cross the parsecs of space only at a snail's crawl. Without melange, the Bene Gesserit cannot endow truth-sayers or reverend mothers. Without the geriatric properties of Melange, people live and die according to the ancient measure, no more than a hundred years or so. Now, the only spice is held in Guild and Bene Gesserit storehouses, a few small hordes among the remnants of the great houses, and my gigantic hoard which they all covet. How they would like to raid me! But they don't dare. They know I would destroy it all before surrendering it. No, they come hat in hand and petition me for melange. I dole it out as a reward and hold it back as punishment. How they hate that! It is my power, I tell them. It is my gift. With it, I create peace. They have had more than three thousand years of Leto's peace. It is an enforced tranquillity which humankind knew only for the briefest periods before my ascendancy. Lest you have forgotten, study Leto's peace once more in these my journals. I began this account in the first year of my stewardship, in the first throes of my metamorphosis, when I was still mostly human, even visibly so. The sand trout skin which I accepted and my father refused, and which gave me greatly amplified strength plus virtual immunity from conventional attack and ageing, that skin still covered a form recognisably human. Two legs, two arms, a human face framed in the scrolled folds of the sand trout. Ah, that face. I still have it, the only human skin I expose to the universe. All the rest of my flesh has remained covered by the linked bodies of those tiny deep sand vectors which one day can become giant sandworms. As they will, some day. I often think about my final metamorphosis, that likeness of death. I know the way it must come, but I do not know the moment or the other players. This is the one thing I cannot know. I only know whether the golden path continues or ends. As I cause these words to be recorded, the golden path continues, and for that, at least, I am content.
I no longer feel the sand trout cilia probing my flesh, encapsulating the water of my body within their placental barriers. We are virtually one body now, they my skin and I the force which moves the whole, most of the time. At this writing, the whole could be considered rather gross. I am what could be called a pre-worm. My body is about seven meters long and somewhat more than two meters in diameter, ribbed for most of its length, with my Atreides face positioned man-height at one end, the arms and hands still quite recognizable as human just below. My legs and feet? Well, they are mostly atrophied. Just flippers, really, and they have wandered back along my body. The whole of me weighs approximately five old tons. These items I append because I know they will have historical interest. How do I carry this weight around? Mostly on my royal cart, which is of Ixian manufacture. You are shocked? People invariably hated and feared the Ixians even more than they hated and feared me. Better the devil you know. And who knows what the Ixians might manufacture or invent? Who knows? I certainly don't. Not all of it. But I have a certain sympathy for the Ixians. They believe so strongly in their technology, their science, their machines. Because we believe, no matter the content, we understand each other, the Ixians and I. They make many devices for me and think they earn my gratitude thus. These very words you are reading were printed by an Ixian device, a dictatel, it is called. If I cast my thoughts in a particular mode, the dictatel is activated. I merely think in this mode, and the words are printed for me on Redulian crystal sheets only one molecule thick. Sometimes I order copies printed on material of lesser permanence. It was two of these latter types that were stolen from me by Siona. Isn't she fascinating, my Siona? As you come to understand her importance to me, you may even question whether I really would have let her die there in the forest. Have no doubt about it. Death is a very personal thing. I will seldom interfere with it. Never in the case of someone who must be tested as Siona requires. I could let her die at any stage. After all, I could bring up a new candidate in very little time, as I measure time. She fascinates even me, though. I watched her there in the forest. Through my Ixian devices I watched her, wondering why I had not anticipated this venture. But Siona is... Siona. That is why I made no move to stop the wolves. It would have been wrong to do that. The D-Wolves are but an extension of my purpose, and my purpose is to be the greatest predator ever known. The Journals of Leda II The following brief dialogue is credited to a manuscript source called the Welbeck Fragment. The reputed author is Siona Atreides. The participants are Siona herself and her father, Moneo, who was, as all the histories tell us, a major domo and chief aide to Leto II. 
It is dated at a time when Siona was still in her teens and was being visited by her father at her quarters in the Fish Speakers School at the festival city of Om, a major population center on the planet now known as Rakis. According to the manuscript identification papers, Moneo had visited his daughter secretly to warn her that she risked destruction. Siona, how have you survived with him for so long a time, father? He kills those who are close to him. Everyone knows that. Moneo, no, you are wrong. He kills no one. You needn't lie about him. I mean it. He kills no one. Then how do you account for the known deaths? It is the worm that kills. The worm is God. Leto lives in the bosom of God, but he kills no one. Then how do you survive? I can recognize the worm. I can see it in his face and in his movements. I know when Shai Halud approaches. He is not Shai Halud. Well, that's what they called the worm in the Fremen days. I've read about that. But he is not the god of the desert. Be quiet, you foolish girl. You know nothing of such things. I know that you are a coward. How little you know. You have never stood where I have stood and seen it in his eyes, in the movements of his hands. What do you do when the worm approaches? I leave. That's prudent. He has killed nine Duncan Idahos that we know about for sure. I tell you, he kills no one. What's the difference? Leto or Worm, they are one body now. They are two separate beings. Leto, the Emperor, and the Worm, who is God. You're mad. Perhaps. But I do serve God. I am the most ardent people watcher who ever lived. I watch them inside me and outside. Past and present can mingle with odd impositions in me. And as the metamorphosis continues in my flesh, wonderful things happen to my senses. It's as though I sensed everything in close-up. I have extremely acute hearing and vision, plus a sense of smell extraordinarily discriminating. I can detect and identify pheromones at three parts per million. I know. I have tested it. You cannot hide very much from my senses. I think it would horrify you what I can detect by smell alone. Your pheromones tell me what you are doing or are prepared to do. And gesture and posture. I stared for half a day once at an old man sitting on a bench in Erekin. He was a fifth-generation descendant of Stilgar the Naive and did not even know it. I studied the angle of his neck, the skin flaps below his chin, the cracked lips and moistness about his nostrils, the pores behind his ears, the wisps of gray hair which crept from beneath the hood of his antique still suit. Not once did he detect that he was being watched. Ha! Stilgar would have known it in a second or two. But this old man was just waiting for someone who never came. 
He got up finally and tottered off. He was very stiff after all of that sitting. I knew I would never see him in the flesh again. He was that near death, and his water was sure to be wasted. Well, that no longer mattered. The Stolen Journals Leto thought it the most interesting place in the universe, this place where he awaited the arrival of his current Duncan Idaho. By most human standards, it was a gigantic space, the core of an elaborate series of catacombs beneath his citadel. Radiating chambers thirty metres high and twenty metres wide ran like spokes from the hub where he waited. His cart had been positioned at the centre of the hub, in a domed and circular chamber four hundred metres in diameter and one hundred metres high at its tallest point above him. He found these dimensions reassuring. It was early afternoon at the Citadel, but the only light in his chamber came from the random drifting of a few suspensor-born glow globes tuned into low orange. The light did not penetrate far into the spokes, but Leto's memories told him the exact position of everything there, the water, the bones, the dust of his ancestors, and of the Atreides who had lived and died since the Dune times. All of them were here, plus a few containers of melange to create the illusion that this was all of his hoard, should it ever come to such an extreme. Leto knew why the Duncan was coming. Idaho had learned that the Tleilaxu were making another Duncan, another Gola created to the specifications demanded by the God-Emperor. This Duncan feared that he was being replaced after almost sixty years of service. It was always something of that nature which began the subversion of the Duncans. A guild envoy had waited upon Leto earlier to warn that the Ixians had delivered a laze gun to this Duncan. Leto chuckled. The guild remained extremely sensitive to anything which might threaten their slender supply of spice. They were terrified at the thought that Leto was the last link with the sandworms which had produced the original stockpiles of Melange. If I die away from water... There will be no more spice. Not ever. That was the guild's fear. And their historian accountants assured them Leto sat on the largest store of melange in the universe. This knowledge made the guild almost reliable as allies. While he waited, Leto did the hand and finger exercises of his Bene Gesserit inheritance. The hands were his pride. Beneath a grey membrane of sand-trout skin, their long digits and opposable thumbs could be used much as any human hands. The almost useless flippers which once had been his feet and legs were more inconvenience than shame. He could crawl, roll, and toss his body with astonishing speed, but he sometimes fell on the flippers and there was pain. What was delaying the Duncan? Leto imagined the man vacillating, staring out a window across the fluid horizon of the Sarir. The air was alive with heat today. Before descending to the crypt, Leto had seen a mirage in the southwest. The heat mirror tipped and flashed an image across the sand, showing him a band of museum fremen trudging past a display sietch for the edification of tourists. It was cool in the crypt. Always cool. The illumination always low. Tunnel spokes were dark holes sloping upward and downward in gentle gradients to accommodate the royal cart. 
Some tunnels extended beyond false walls for many kilometres, passages Leto had created for himself with Ixian tools, feeding tunnels and secret ways. As he contemplated the coming interview, a sense of nervousness began to grow in Leto. He found this an interesting emotion, one he had been known to enjoy. Leto knew that he had grown reasonably fond of the current Duncan. There was a reservoir of hope in Leto that the man would survive the coming interview. Sometimes they did. There was little likelihood that Duncan posed a mortal threat, although this had to be left to such chance as existed. Leto had tried to explain this to one of the earlier Duncans, right here in this room. You will think it strange that I, with my powers, can speak of luck and chance, Leto had said. The Duncan had been angry. You leave nothing to chance. I know you. How naive. Chance is the nature of our universe. Not chance. Mischief. And you're the author of mischief. Excellent Duncan. Mischief is a most profound pleasure. It's in the ways we deal with mischief that we sharpen creativity. You're not even human anymore. Oh, how angry the Duncan had been. Leto had found his accusation irritating, like a grain of sand in an eye. He held on to the remnants of his once-human self with a grimness which could not be denied, although irritation was the closest he could come to anger. Your life is becoming a cliché, Leto had accused. Whereupon the Duncan had produced a small explosive from the folds of his uniform robe. What a surprise! Leto loved surprises even nasty ones. It is something I did not predict. And he said as much to Duncan, who had stood there oddly undecided now that decision was absolutely demanded of him. This could kill you, the Duncan said. I'm sorry, Duncan. It will do a small amount of injury, no more. But you said you didn't predict this, the Duncan's voice had grown shrill. Duncan, Duncan. It is absolute prediction which equals death to me. How unutterably boring death is. At the last instant, the Duncan had tried to throw the explosive to one side, but the material in it had been unstable and it had gone off too soon. The Duncan had died. Ah, well. The Tleilaxu always had another in their axolotl tanks. One of the drifting glow globes above Leto began to blink. Excitement gripped him. Moneo's signal. Faithful Moneo had alerted his god-emperor that the Duncan was descending to the crypt. The door to the human lift between two spoked passages in the northwest arc of the hub swung open. The Duncan strode forth, a small figure at that distance. But Leto's eyes discerned even tiny details. A wrinkle on the uniform elbow, which said the man had been leaning somewhere chin in hand. Yes, there were still the marks of his hand on the chin. The Duncan's odour preceded him. The man was high on his own adrenaline. Leto remained silent while the Duncan approached, observing details. The Duncan still walked with a spring of youth despite all of his long service. He could thank a minimal ingestion of melange for that. The man wore the old Atreides uniform, black, with a golden hawk at the left breast. An interesting statement, that. I serve the honour of the old Atreides.
His hair was still the black cap of caracal, the features fixed in stony sharpness with high cheekbones. The Tleilaxu make their golas well, Leto thought. The Duncan carried a thin briefcase woven of dark brown fibres, one he had carried for many years. It usually contained the material upon which he based his reports, but today it bulged with some heavier weight. The Ixian Lays Gun Idaho kept his attention on Leto's face as he walked. The face remained disconcertingly Atreides, lean features with eyes of total blue which the nervous felt as a physical intrusion. It lurked deep within a grey cowl of sand-trout skin, which, Idaho knew, could roll forward protectively in a flickering reflex, a face-blink rather than an eye-blink. The skin was pink within its grey frame. It was difficult avoiding the thought that Leto's face was an obscenity, a lost bit of humanity trapped in something alien. Stopping only six paces from the royal cart, Idaho did not attempt to conceal his angry determination. He did not even think about whether Leto knew of the Lays Gun. This Imperium had wandered too far from the old Atreides morality, had become an impersonal juggernaut which crushed the innocent in its path. It had to be ended. I've come to talk to you about Siona and other matters, Idaho said. He brought the case into position where he could withdraw the Lays Gun easily. Very well. Leto's voice was full of boredom. Siona was the only one who escaped, but she still has a base of rebel companions. You think I don't know this? I know your dangerous tolerance for rebels. What I don't know is the contents of that package she stole. Oh, that. She has the complete plans for the Citadel. For just a moment, Idaho was Leto's guard commander, deeply shocked at such a breach of security. You let her escape with that? No, you did. Idaho recoiled from this accusation. Slowly, the newly resolved assassin in him regained ascendancy. Is that all she got? Idaho asked. I had two volumes, copies of my journal, in with the charts. She stole the copies. Idaho studied Leto's immobile face. What is in these journals? Sometimes you say it's a diary, sometimes a history. A bit of both. You might even call it a textbook. Does it bother you that she took these volumes? Leto allowed himself a soft smile, which Idaho accepted as a negative answer. A momentary tension rippled through Leto's body then as Idaho reached into the slim case. Would it be the weapon or the reports? Although the core of his body possessed a powerful resistance to heat, Leto knew that some of his flesh was vulnerable to lasguns, especially the face. Idaho brought a report from his case, and even before he began reading from it, the signals were obvious to Leto. Idaho was seeking answers, not providing information. Idaho wanted justification for a course of action already chosen. We have discovered a cult of Alia on Gidi Prime, Idaho said. Leto remained silent while Idaho recounted the details. How boring. Leto let his thoughts wander. The worshippers of his father's long-dead sister served these days only to provide occasional amusement. The Duncans predictably saw such activity as a kind of underground threat. 
Idaho finished reading. His agents were thorough, no denying it. Boringly thorough. This is nothing more than a revival of Isis, Plato said. My priests and priestesses will have some sport suppressing this cult and its followers. Idaho shook his head as though responding to a voice within it. The Bono Gesserit knew about the cult, he said. Now that interested Leto. The sisterhood has never forgiven me for taking their breeding program away from them, he said. This has nothing to do with breeding. Leto concealed mild amusement. The Duncans were always so sensitive on the subject of breeding, although some of them occasionally stood at stud. I see, Leto said. Well, the Bene Gesserit are all more than a little insane. But madness represents a chaotic reservoir of surprises. Some surprises can be valuable. I fail to see any value in this. Do you think the sisterhood was behind this cult? Leto asked. I do. Explain. They had a shrine. They called it the Shrine of the Chris Knife. Did they now? And their chief priestess was called the Keeper of Jessica's Light. Does that suggest anything? It's lovely. Leto did not try to conceal his amusement. What is lovely about it? They unite my grandmother and my aunt into a single goddess. Idaho shook his head slowly from side to side, not understanding. Leto permitted himself a small internal pause, less than a blink. The grandmother within did not particularly care for this giddy prime cult. He was required to wall off her memories and her identity. What do you suppose was the purpose of this cult? Leto asked. Obvious. A competing religion to undermine your authority. That's too simple. Whatever else they may be, the Bene Gesserit are not simpletons. Idaho waited for an explanation. They want more spice, Plato said. More reverend mothers. So they annoy you until you buy them off? I am disappointed in you, Duncan. Idaho merely stared up at Plato, who contrived a sigh. A complicated gesture no longer intrinsic to his new form. The Duncans usually were brighter, but Leto supposed that this one's plot had clouded his alertness. They chose Giddy Prime as their home, Leto said. What does that suggest? It was a Harkonnen stronghold. But that's ancient history. Your sister died there, a victim of the Harkonnens. It is right that the Harkonnens and Giddy Prime be united in your thoughts. Why did you not mention this earlier? I didn't think it was important. Leto drew his mouth into a tight line. The reference to his sister had troubled the Duncan. The man knew, intellectually, that he was only the latest in a long line of fleshly revivals, all products of the Tleilaxu axolotl tanks and taken from the original cells at that. The Duncan could not escape his revived memories. He knew that the Atreides had rescued him from Harkonnen bondage. And whatever else I may be, Leto thought, I am still Atreides. What are you trying to say? Idaho demanded. Leto decided that a shout was required. He let it be a loud one. The Harkonnens were spice hoarders. Idaho recoiled a full step. Leto continued in a lower voice. 
There's an undiscovered melange hoard on Giddy Prime. The sisterhood was trying to winkle it out with their religious tricks as a cover. Idaho was abashed. Once it was spoken, the answer appeared obvious. And I missed it, he thought. Leto's shout had shaken him back into his role as commander of the Royal Guard. Idaho knew about the economics of the Empire. Simplified in the extreme, no interest charges permitted. Cash on the barrel head. The only coinage bore a likeness of Leto's cowled face, the God Emperor. But it was all based on the spice, a substance whose value, though enormous, kept increasing. A man could carry the price of an entire planet in his hand luggage. Control the coinage in the courts, let the rabble have the rest, Leto thought. Old Jacob Broom said it, and Leto could hear the old man chortling within. Things haven't changed all that much, Jacob. Idaho took a deep breath. The Bureau of the Faith shall be notified immediately. Leto remained silent. Taking this as a cue to continue, Idaho went on with his reports, but Leto listened with only a fraction of his awareness. It was like a monitoring circuit which only recorded Idaho's words and actions with but an occasional intensification for an internal comment. And now he wants to talk about the Telelaxu. That is dangerous ground for you, Duncan. But this opened up a new avenue for Leto's reflection. The wily Tleilaxu still produce my Duncans from the original cells. They do a religiously forbidden thing, and we both know it. I do not permit the artificial manipulation of human genetics, but the Tleilaxu have learned how I treasure the Duncans as the commanders of my guard. I do not think they suspect the amusement value in this. It amuses me that a river now bears the Idaho name where once it was a mountain. That mountain no longer exists. We brought it down to get material for the high walls which girdle my sarir. Of course, the Tleilaxu know that I occasionally breed the Duncans back into my own program. The Duncans represent mongrel strength and much more. Every fire must have its damper. It was my intent to breed this one with Siona. But that may not be possible now. Ha! He says he wants me to crack down on the Tleilaxu. Why will he not ask it straight out? Are you preparing to replace me? I am tempted to tell him. Once more Idaho's hand went into the slender pouch. Leto's introspective monitoring did not miss a beat. The Lay's gun or more reports? It is more reports. The Duncan remains wary. He wants not only the assurance that I am ignorant of his intent, but more proofs that I am unworthy of his loyalty. He hesitates in a prolonged fashion. He always has. I have told him enough times that I will not use my prescience to predict the moment of my exit from this ancient form, but he doubts. He always was a doubter. This cavernous chamber drinks up his voice, and were it not for my sensitivity, the dankness here would mask the chemical evidence of his fears. I fade his voice out of immediate awareness. What a bore this Duncan has become. He is recounting the history, the 
history of Siona's rebellion, no doubt leading up to personal admonitions about her latest escapade. It's not an ordinary rebellion, he says. That brings me back. Fool. All rebellions are ordinary and an ultimate bore. They are copied out of the same pattern, one much like another. The driving force is adrenaline addiction and the desire to gain personal power. All rebels are closet aristocrats. That's why I can convert them so easily. Why do the Duncans never really hear me when I tell them about this? I have had the argument with this very Duncan. It was one of our earliest confrontations, and right here in the crypt. The art of government requires that you never give up the initiative to radical elements, he said. How pedantic. Radicals crop up in every generation, and you must not try to prevent this. That's what he means by give up the initiative. He wants to crush them, suppress them, control them, prevent them. He is living proof that there is little difference between the police mind and the military mind. I told him, radicals are only to be feared when you try to suppress them. You must demonstrate that you will use the best of what they offer. They are dangerous, they are dangerous. He thinks that by repeating he creates some kind of truth. Slowly, step by step, I lead him through my method, and he even gives the appearance of listening. This is their weakness, Duncan. Radicals always see matters in terms which are too simple, black and white, good and evil, them and us. By addressing complex matters in that way, they rip open a passage for chaos. The art of government, as you call it, is the mastery of chaos. No one can deal with every surprise. Surprise? Who's talking about surprise? Chaos is no surprise. It has predictable characteristics. For one thing, it carries away order and strengthens the forces at the extremes. Isn't that what radicals are trying to do? Aren't they trying to shake things up so they can grab control? That's what they think they're doing. Actually, they're creating new extremists, new radicals, and they are continuing the old process. What about a radical who sees the complexities and comes at you that way? That's no radical. That's a rival for leadership. But what do you do? You co-opt them or kill them. That's how the struggle for leadership originated, at the grunt level. Yes, but what about messiahs, like my father? The Duncan does not like this question. He knows that in a very special way, I am my father. He knows I can speak with my father's voice and persona, that the memories are precise, never edited, and inescapable. Reluctantly, he says, Well, if you want. Duncan, I am all of them, and I know. There has never been a truly selfless rebel, just hypocrites, Conscious hypocrites or unconscious hypocrites, it's all the same. That stirs up a small hornet's nest among my ancestral memories. Some of them have never given up the belief that they and they alone held the key to all of humankind's problems. Well, in that, they are like me. I can sympathise even while I tell them that failure is its own demonstration. I am forced to block them off, though. There's no sense dwelling on them. 
they now are little more than poignant reminders. As is this Duncan, who stands in front of me with his lay's gun. Great gods below, he has caught me napping. He has the lay's gun in his hand, and it is pointed at my face. You, Duncan, have you betrayed me too? Et tu, Brute. Every fibre of Leto's awareness came to full alert. He could feel his body twitching. The worm flesh had a will of its own. Idaho spoke with derision. Tell me, Leto, how many times must I pay the debt of loyalty? Leto recognised the inner question. How many of me have there been? The Duncans always wanted to know this. Every Duncan asked it, and no answer satisfied. They doubted. In his saddest Muad'Dib voice, Leto asked, Do you take no pride in my admiration, Duncan? Haven't you ever wondered what it is about you that makes me desire you as my constant companion through the centuries? You know me to be the ultimate fool. Duncan! The voice of an angry Muad'Dib could always be counted on to shatter Idaho. Despite the fact that Idaho knew no Bene Gesserit had ever mastered the powers of voice as Leto had mastered them, it was predictable that he would dance to this one voice. The Lay's gun wavered in his hand. That was enough. Leto was off the cart in a hurtling roll. Idaho had never seen him leave the cart this way, had not even suspected it could happen. For Leto there were only two requirements, a real threat which the worm body could sense, and the release of that body. The rest was automatic, and the speed of it always astonished even Leto. The Lay's gun was his major concern. It could scratch him badly, but few understood the abilities of the pre-worm body to deal with heat. Leto struck Idaho while rolling, and the Lay's gun was deflected as it was fired. One of the useless flippers, which had been Leto's legs and feet, sent a shocking burst of sensations crashing into his awareness. For an instant there was only pain, but the worm body was free to act and reflexes ignited a violent paroxysm of flopping. Leto heard bones cracking. The Lay's gun was thrown far across the floor of the crypt by a spasmodic jerk of Idaho's hand. Rolling off of Idaho, Leto poised himself for a renewed attack, but there was no need. The injured flipper still sent pain signals, and he sensed that the tip of the flipper had been burned away. The sand trout skin already had sealed the wound. The pain had eased to an ugly throbbing. Idaho stirred. There could be little doubt that he had been mortally injured. His chest was visibly crushed. There was obvious agony when he tried to breathe. But he opened his eyes and stared up at Leto. The persistence of these mortal possessions, Leto thought. Siona, Idaho gasped. Leto saw the life leave him then. Interesting, Leto thought. Is it possible that this Duncan and Siona? No. This Duncan always displayed a true sneering disdain for Siona's foolishness. Leto climbed back onto the royal cart. That had been a close one. There could be little doubt that the Duncan had been aiming for the brain. Leto was always aware that his hands and feet were vulnerable, 
but he had allowed no one to learn that what had once been his brain was no longer directly associated with his face. It was not even a brain of human dimensions any more, but had spread in nodal congeries throughout his body. He had told this to no one but his journals. Oh, the landscapes I have seen, and the people, the far wanderings of the Fremen and all the rest of it, even back through the myths to Terra. Oh, the lessons in astronomy and intrigue, the migrations, the disheveled flights, the leg-aching and lung-aching runs through so many nights on all of those cosmic specks where we have defended our transient possession. I tell you, we are a marvel, and my memories leave no doubt of this. The Stolen Journals The woman working at the small wall desk was too big for the narrow chair on which she perched. Outside it was mid-morning, but in this windowless room deep beneath the city of Own, there was but a single glow-globe high in a corner. It had been turned to warm yellow, but the light failed to dispel the grey utility of the small room. Walls and ceiling were covered by identical rectangular panels of dull grey metal. There was only one other piece of furniture, a narrow cot with a thin pallet covered by a featureless gray blanket. It was obvious that neither piece of furniture had been designed for the occupant. She wore a one-piece pajama suit of dark blue, which stretched tightly across her wide shoulders as she hunched over the desk. The glow globe illuminated closely cropped blonde hair and the right side of her face, emphasizing the square block of jaw. The jaw moved with silent words as her thick fingers carefully depressed the keys of a thin keyboard on the desk. She handled the machine with a deference which had originated as awe and moved reluctantly into fearsome excitement. Long familiarity with the machine had eliminated neither emotion. As she wrote, words appeared on a screen concealed within the wall rectangle exposed by the downward folding of the desk. Siona continues actions which predict violent attack on your holy person, she wrote. Siona remains unswerving in her avowed purpose. She told me today that she will give copies of the stolen books to groups whose loyalty to you cannot be trusted. The named recipients are the Bene Gesserit, the Guild, and the Ixians. She says the books contain your enciphered words, and by this gift, she seeks help in translating your holy words. Lord, I do not know what great revelations may be concealed on those pages, but if they contain anything of threat to your holy person, I beg you to relieve me from my vow of obedience to Siona. I do not understand why you made me take this vow, but I fear it. I remain your worshipful servant, Nela. The chair creaked as Nayla sat back and thought about her words. The room fell into an almost soundless withdrawal of thick insulation. There was only Nayla's faint breathing, and a distant throbbing of machinery felt more in the floor than in the air. Nayla stared at her message on the screen. Destined only for the eyes of the god-emperor, it required more than holy truthfulness. It demanded a deep candor which she found draining. 
Presently, she nodded and pressed the key which would encode the words and prepare them for transmission. Bowing her head, she prayed silently before concealing the desk within the wall. These actions, she knew, transmitted the message. God himself had implanted a physical device within her head, swearing her to secrecy and warning her that there might come a time when he would speak to her through the thing within her skull. He had never done this. She suspected that Ixians had fashioned the device. It had possessed some of their look. But God himself had done this thing, and she could ignore the suspicion that there might be a computer in it, and that it might be prohibited by the great convention. Make no device in the likeness of the mind. Nayla shuddered. She stood then and moved her chair to its regular position beside the cot, her heavy, muscular body strained against the thin blue garment. There was a steady deliberation about her, the actions of someone constantly adjusting to great physical strength. She turned at the cot and studied the place where the desk had been. There was only a rectangular gray panel like all the others, no bit of lint, no strand of hair, nothing caught there to reveal the panel's secret. Nayla took a deep, restorative breath and let herself out of the room's only door into a gray passage dimly lighted by widely spaced white glow globes. The machinery sounds were louder here. She turned left and a few minutes later was with Siona in a somewhat larger room, a table at its center upon which things stolen from the citadel had been arranged. Two silvery glow globes illuminated the scene. Siona seated at the table, with an assistant named Topri standing beside her. Nayla nurtured grudging admiration for Siona. But Topri, there was a man worthy of nothing except active dislike. He was a nervous fat man with bulging green eyes, a pug nose, and thin lips above a dimpled chin. Topri squeaked when he spoke. Look here, Nayla. Look what Siona has found pressed between the pages of these two books. Nayla closed and locked the room's single door. You talk too much, Topri, Nayla said. You're a blurter. How could you know if I was alone in the passage? Topri paled. An angry scowl settled onto his face. I'm afraid she's right, Siona said. What made you think I wanted Nayla to know about my discovery? You trust her with everything. Siona turned her attention to Nayla. Do you know why I trust you, Nayla? The question was asked in a flat, unemotional voice. Nayla put down a sudden surge of fear. Had Siona discovered her secret? Have I failed, my lord? Have you no response to my question? Siona asked. Have I ever given you cause to do otherwise? Nayla asked. That's not a sufficient cause for trust, Siona said. There's no such thing as perfection, not in human or machine. Then why do you trust me? Your words and your actions always agree. It's a marvelous quality. For instance, you don't like Topri and you never try to conceal your dislike. Nayla glanced at Topri, who cleared his throat. I don't trust him. Nayla said. The words popped into her mind and out of her mouth without reflection. 
Only after she had spoken did Nayla realize the true core of her dislike. Topri would betray anyone for personal gain. Has he found me out? Still scowling, Topri said, I am not going to stand here and accept your abuse. He started to leave, but Siona held up a restraining hand. Topri hesitated. Although we speak the old Fremen words and swear our loyalty to each other, this is not what holds us together, Siona said. Everything is based on performance. That is all I measure. Do you understand, both of you? Topri nodded automatically, but Nayla shook her head from side to side. Siona smiled up at her. You don't always agree with my decisions, do you, Nayla? No, the word was forced from her. And you have never tried to conceal your disagreement, yet you always obey me. Why? That is what I have sworn to do. But I have said this is not enough. Nayla knew she was perspiring, knew that this was revealing, but she could not move. What am I to do? I swore to God that I would obey Siona, but I cannot tell her this. You must answer my question, Siona said. I command it. Nayla caught her breath. This was the dilemma she had most feared. There was no way out. She said a silent prayer and spoke in a low voice. I have sworn to God that I will obey you. Siona clapped her hands in glee and laughed. I knew it, Topri chuckled. Shut up, Topri, Siona said. I am trying to teach you a lesson. You don't believe in anything, not even in yourself. But I, be still, I say. Nayla believes, I believe. This is what holds us together, belief. Topri was astonished. Belief? You believe in, not in the god emperor, you fool. We believe that a higher power will settle with the tyrant worm. We are that higher power. Nayla took a trembling breath. It's all right, Nayla, Siona said. I don't care where you draw your strength, just as long as you believe. Nayla managed a smile, then grinned. She had never been more profoundly stirred by the wisdom of her lord. I may speak the truth, and it works only for my God. Let me show you what I found in these books, Siona said. She gestured at some sheets of ordinary paper on the table, pressed between the pages. Nayla stepped around the table and looked down at it. First, there's this. Siona held up an object which Nayla had not noticed. It was a thin strand of something and what appeared to be a, a flower, Nayla asked. This was between two pages of paper. On the paper was written this. Siona leaned over the table and read, a strand of Ghanima's hair with a starflower blossom which she once brought me. Looking up at Nayla, Siona said, our god emperor is revealed as a sentimentalist. This is a weakness I had not expected. Ghanima? Nayla asked. His sister, remember your oral history. Oh, oh yes, the prayer to Ghanima. Now, listen to this. Siona took up another sheet of paper and read from it. 
The sand beach as gray as a dead cheek, a green tide flow reflects cloud ripples. I stand on the dark wet edge, cold foam cleanses my toes, I smell driftwood smoke. Again, Siona looked up at Nayla. This is identified as words I wrote when told of Ghani's death. What do you think of that? He, he loved his sister. Yes, he is capable of love. Oh, yes, we have him now. Sometimes I indulge myself in safaris which no other being may take. I strike inward along the axis of my memories. Like a schoolchild reporting on a vacation trip, I take up my subject. Let it be female intellectuals. I course backward into the ocean which is my ancestors. I am a great winged fish in the depths. The mouth of my awareness opens and I scoop them up. Sometimes... Sometimes I hunt out specific persons recorded in our histories. What a private joy to relive the life of such a one while I mock the academic pretensions which supposedly formed a biography. The Stolen Journals Moneo descended to the crypt with sad resignation. There was no escaping the duties required of him now. The god-emperor required a small passage of time to grieve the loss of another Duncan. But then life went on. And on. And on. The lift slid silently downward with its superb Ixian dependability. Once, just once, the god-emperor had cried out to his major-domo, Moneo! Sometimes I think you were made by the Ixians! Moneo felt the lift stop. The door opened and he looked out across the crypt at the shadowy bulk on the royal cart. There was no indication that Leto had noticed the arrival. Moneo sighed and began the long walk through the echoing gloom. There was a body on the floor near the cart. No need for déjà vu. This was merely familiar. Once, in Moneo's early days of service, Leto had said, You don't like this place, Moneo. I can see that. No, Lord. With just a little prodding of memory, Moneo could hear his own voice in that naive past, and the voice of the god-emperor responding, You don't think of a mausoleum as a comforting place, Moneo. I find it a source of infinite strength. Moneo remembered that he had been anxious to get off this topic. Yes, Lord. Leto had persisted. There are only a few of my ancestors here. The water of Muad'Dib is here. Ghani and Hakalada are here, of course, but they're not my ancestors. No, if there's any true crypt of my ancestors, I am that crypt. This is mostly the Duncans and the products of my breeding program. You'll be here some day. Moneo found that these memories had slowed his pace. He sighed and moved a bit faster. Leto could be violently impatient on occasion, but there was still no sign from him. Moneo did not take this to mean that his approach went unobserved. Leto lay with his eyes closed and only his other senses to record Moneo's progress across the crypt. Thoughts of Siona had been occupying Leto's attention. Siona is my ardent enemy, he thought. 
I do not need Naylor's words to confirm this. Siona is a woman of action. She lives on the surface of enormous energies which fill me with fantasies of delight. I cannot contemplate those living energies without a feeling of ecstasy. They are my reason for being, a justification for everything I have ever done, even for the corpse of this foolish Duncan in front of me now. Leto's ears told him that Moneo had not yet crossed half the distance to the royal cart. The man moved slower and slower, then picked up his pace. What a gift Moneo has given me in this daughter, Leto thought. Sione is fresh and precious. She is the new, while I am a collection of the obsolete, a relic of the damned, of the lost and strayed. I am the waylaid pieces of history which sank out of sight in all of our pasts. Such an accumulation of riffraff has never before been imagined. Leto paraded the past within him, then, to let them observe what had happened in the crypt. The minutiae are mine. Siona, though, Siona was like a clean slate upon which great things might yet be written. I guard that slate with infinite care. I am preparing it, cleansing it. What did the Duncan mean when he called out her name? Moneo approached the cart, diffidently, yet consummately aware. Surely Leto did not sleep. Leto opened his eyes and looked down as Moneo came to a stop near the corpse. At this moment, Leto found the majordomo a delight to observe. Moneo wore a white Atreides uniform with no insignia, a subtle comment. His face, almost as well known as Leto's, was all the insignia he needed. Moneo waited impatiently. There was no change of expression on his flat, even features. His thick, sandy hair lay in a neat, equally divided part. Deep within his grey eyes there was that look of directness which went with knowledge of great personal power. It was a look which he modified only in the god-emperor's presence, and sometimes not even there. Not once did he glance toward the body on the crypt's floor. When Leto continued silent, Moneo cleared his throat, then... I am saddened, Lord. Exquisite, Leto thought. He knows I feel true remorse about the Duncans. Moneo has seen their records, and has seen enough of them dead. He knows that only nineteen Duncans died what people usually refer to as natural deaths. He had an Ixian lace gun, Leto said. Moneo's gaze went directly to the gun on the floor of the crypt off to his left, demonstrating that he already had seen it. He returned his attention to Leto, sweeping a glance down the length of the great body. You are injured, Lord? Inconsequential. But he hurt you. Those flippers are useless to me. They will be entirely gone within another two hundred years. I will dispose of the Duncan's body personally, Lord, Moneo said. Is there? The piece of me he burned away is entirely ash. We will let it blow away. This is a fitting place for ashes. As my lord says. Before you dispose of the body, disable the lace gun and keep it where I can present it to the Ixian ambassador. As for the guildsman who warned us about it, present him personally with ten grams of spice. Oh, and our priestesses on Gidi Prime should be alerted to a hidden store of melange there, probably old Harkon and contraband. What do you wish done with it when it's found, lord? 
Use a bit of it to pay the Tleilaxu for the new Gola. The rest of it can go into our stores here in the crypt. Lord? Moneo acknowledged the orders with a nod, a gesture which was not quite a bow. His gaze met Leto's. Leto smiled. He thought, We both know that Moneo will not leave without addressing directly the matter which most concerns us. I have seen the report on Siona, Moneo said. Leto's smile widened. Moneo was such a pleasure in these moments. His words conveyed many things which did not require open discussion between them. His words and actions were in precise alignment, carried on the mutual awareness that he, of course, spied on everything. Now, there was a natural concern for his daughter, but he wished it understood that his concern for the god-emperor remained paramount. From his own traverse through a similar evolution, Moneo knew with precision the delicate nature of Siona's present fortunes. Have I not created her, Moneo? Leto asked. Have I not controlled the conditions of her ancestry and her upbringing? She is my only daughter, my only child, Lord. In a way, she reminds me of Harkalada, Leto said. There doesn't appear to be much of Ghani in her, although that has to be there. Perhaps she harks back to our ancestors in the Sisterhood's breeding program. Why do you say that, Lord? Leto reflected. Was there need for Moneo to know this peculiar thing about his daughter? Siona could fade from the prescient view at times. The golden path remained, but Siona faded. Yet she was not prescient. She was a unique phenomenon, and if she survived, Leto decided he would not cloud Moneo's efficiency with unnecessary information. Remember your own past, Leto said. Indeed, Lord, and she has such a potential, so much more than I ever had. But that makes her dangerous, too. And she will not listen to you, Leto said. No, but I have an agent in her rebellion. That will be Topri, Leto thought. It required no prescience to know that Moneo would have an agent in place. Ever since the death of Siona's mother, Leto had known with increasing sureness the course of Moneo's actions. Nela's suspicions pinpointed Topri, and now Moneo paraded his fears and actions, offering them as the price of his daughter's continued safety. How unfortunate he fathered only the one child on that mother. Recall how I treated you in similar circumstances, Leto said. You know the demands of the Golden Path as well as I do. But I was young and foolish, Lord. Young and brash? Never foolish. Moneo managed a tight smile at this compliment his thoughts leaning more and more toward the belief that he now understood Leto's intentions. The dangers, though. Feeding his belief, Leto said, You know how much I enjoy surprises. That is true, Leto thought. Morneo does know it. But even while Siona surprises me, she reminds me of what I fear most, the sameness and boredom which could break the golden path. Look at how boredom put me temporarily in the Duncan's power. Sione is the contrast by which I know my deepest fears. Moneo's concern for me is well grounded. My agent will continue to watch her new companions, Lord, Moneo said. I do not like them. Her companions? I myself had such companions once, long ago. Rebellious, Lord? You? Moneo was genuinely surprised. 
Have I not proved a friend of rebellion? But, Lord, the aberrations of our past are more numerous than you may think. Yes, Lord. Monier was abashed, yet still curious, and he knew that the god-emperor sometimes waxed loquacious after the death of a Duncan. You must have seen many rebellions, Lord. Involuntarily, Leto's thoughts sank into the memories aroused by these words. Ah, Moneo, he muttered, my travels in the ancestral mazes have memorized uncounted places and events which I never desire to see repeated. I can imagine your inward travels, Lord. No, you cannot. I have seen peoples and planets in such numbers that they lose meaning even in imagination. Oh, the landscapes I have passed, the calligraphy of alien roads glimpsed from space and imprinted upon my innermost sight, the eroded sculpture of canyons and cliffs and galaxies has imprinted upon me the certain knowledge that I am a moat. Not you, Lord, certainly not you. Less than a moat. I have seen people and their fruitless societies in such repetitive posturings that their nonsense fills me with boredom, do you hear? I did not mean to anger, my lord, Moneo spoke meekly. You don't anger me. Sometimes you irritate me, that is the extent of it. You cannot imagine what I have seen. Caliphs and Umjids, Rakas, Rajas and Bashas, kings and emperors, Primitos and presidents, I've seen them all, feudal chieftains every one, every one a little pharaoh. Forgive my presumption, Lord. Damn the Romans, Leto cried. He spoke it inwardly to his ancestors. Damn the Romans. Their laughter drove him from the inward arena. I don't understand, Lord, Moneo ventured. That's true. You don't understand. The Romans broadcast the pharaonic disease like grain farmers scattering the seeds of next season's harvest. Caesars, Kaisers, Tsars, Imperators, Caceres, Palatos, damned pharaohs. My knowledge does not encompass all of those titles, Lord. I may be the last of the lot, Moneo. Pray that this is so. Whatever my lord commands. Leto stared down at the man. We are myth-killers, you and I, Moneo. That's the dream we share. I assure you from a god's Olympian perch that government is a shared myth. When the myth dies, the government dies. Thus you have taught me, Lord. That man-machine the army created our present dream, my friend. Moneo cleared his throat. Later recognized the small signs of the Majordomo's impatience. Moneo understands about armies. He knows it was a fool's dream that armies were the basic instrument of governance. As Leto continued silent, Moneo crossed to the Lay's gun and retrieved it from the crypt's cold floor. He began disabling it. Leto watched him, thinking how this tiny scene encapsulated the essence of the army myth. The army fostered technology because the power of machines appeared so obvious to the short-sighted. That laser gun is no more than a machine, but all machines fail or are superseded. Still, the army worships at the shrine of such things, both fascinated and fearful. Look at how people fear the Ixians. 
In its guts, the army knows it is the sorcerer's apprentice. It unleashes technology, and never again can the magic be stuffed back into the bottle. I teach them another magic. Leto spoke to the hordes within them. You see, Moneo has disabled the deadly instrument. A connection broken here, a small capsule crushed there. Leto sniffed. He smelled the esters of a preservative oil riding on the stink of Moneo's perspiration. Still speaking inwardly, Leto said, but the genie is not dead. Technology breeds anarchy. It distributes these tools at random, and with them goes the provocation for violence. The ability to make and use savage destroyers falls inevitably into the hands of smaller and smaller groups, until at last the group is a single individual. Moneo returned to a point below Leto, holding the disabled blaze gun casually in his right hand. There is talk on Pareya and the planets of Dan about another jihad against such things as this. Moneo lifted the laze gun and smiled, signalling that he knew the paradox in such empty dreams. Leto closed his eyes. The hordes within wanted to argue, but he shut them off, thinking, Jihads create armies. The Butlerian Jihad tried to rid our universe of machines which simulate the mind of man. The Butlerians left armies in their wake, and the Ixians still make questionable devices, for which I thank them. What is anathema? The motivation to ravage, no matter the instruments. It happened, he muttered. Lord? Leto opened his eyes. I will go to my tower, he said. I must have more time to mourn my Duncan. The new one is already on his way here, Moneo said. You, the first person to encounter my chronicles for at least four thousand years, beware. Do not feel honored by your primacy in reading the revelations of my Ixian storehouse. You will find much pain in it other than the few glimpses required to assure me that the golden path continued, I never wanted to peer beyond those four millennia. Therefore, I am not sure what the events in my journals may signify to your times. I only know that my journals have suffered oblivion, and that the events which I recount have undoubtedly been submitted to historical distortion for eons. I assure you that the ability to view our futures can become a bore. Even to be thought of as a god, as I certainly was, can become ultimately boring. It has occurred to me more than once that holy boredom is good and sufficient reason for the invention of free will. Inscription on the Storehouse at Dar es Palat I am... Duncan Idaho. That was about all he wanted to know for sure. He did not like the Tleilaxu explanations, their stories, but then the Tleilaxu had always been feared, disbelieved and feared. They had brought him down to the planet on a small guild shuttle, arriving at the dusk line with a green glimmer of sun corona along the horizon as they dipped into the shadow. The spaceport had not looked at all like anything he remembered. It was larger 
and with a ring of strange buildings. Are you sure this is Dune? he had asked. Arrakis, his Tleilaxu escort had corrected him. They had sped him in a sealed ground car to this building somewhere within a city they called On, giving the N sound a strange, rising nasal inflection. The room in which they left him was about three metres square, a cube, really. There was no sign of glow globes, but the place was filled with warm yellow light. I am a gola, he told himself. That had been a shock, but he had to believe it. To find himself living when he knew he had died, that was proof enough. That Leilaxu had taken cells from his dead flesh, and they had grown a bud in one of their axolotl tanks. That bud had become this body in a process which had made him feel at first an alien in his own flesh. He looked down at the body. It was clothed in dark brown trousers and jacket of a coarse weave which irritated his skin. Sandals protected his feet. Except for the body, that was all they had given him, a parsimony which said something about the real Tleilaxu character. There was no furniture in the room. They had let him in through a single door which had no handle on the inside. He looked up at the ceiling and around at the walls, at the door. Despite the featureless character of the place, he felt that he was being watched. Women of the Imperial Guard will come for you, they had said. Then they had gone away, smiling slyly among themselves. Women of the Imperial Guard? The Tleilaxu escort had taken sadistic delight in exposing their shape-changing abilities. He had not known from one minute to the next what new form the plastic flow of their flesh would present. Damned face dancers! They had known all about him, of course, had known how much the shape-changers disgusted him. What could he trust if it came from face dancers? Very little. Could anything they said be believed? My name. I know my name. And he had his memories. They had shocked the identity back into him. Gaulers were supposed to be incapable of recovering the original identity, but the Tleilaxu had done it, and he was forced to believe because he understood how it had been done. In the beginning, he knew, there had been the fully formed Gola, adult flesh without name or memories, a palimpsest upon which the Leilaxu could write almost anything they wished. You are Gola, they had said. That had been his only name for a long time. Gola had been taken like a malleable infant and conditioned to kill a particular man a man so like the original Paul Muad'Dib he had served and adored that Idaho now suspected it might have been another Gola. But if that were true, where had they obtained the original cells? Something in the Idaho cells had rebelled at killing an Atreides. He had found himself standing with a knife in one hand, the bound form of the pseudo-Paul staring up at him in angry terror. Memories had gushed into his awareness. He remembered Gola, and he remembered Duncan Idaho. I am Duncan Idaho, sword master of the Atreides. He clung to this memory as he stood in the yellow room. I died defending Paul and his mother in a cave sietch beneath the sands of Dune. I have been returned to that planet, but Dune is no more. Now it is only Arrakis. 
He had read the truncated history which the Trelaxu provided, but he did not believe it. More than thirty-five hundred years? Who could believe his flesh existed after such a time? Except, with Tleilaxu it was possible. He had to believe his own senses. There have been many of you, his instructors had said. How many? The Lord later will provide that information. The Lord later? The Tleilaxu history said this Lord later was Leto II, grandson of the Leto whom Idaho had served with fanatical devotion, but this second Leto, so the history said, had become something, something so strange that Idaho despaired of understanding the transformation. How could a human slowly turn into a sandworm? How could any thinking creature live more than three thousand years? Not even the wildest projections of geriatric spice allowed such a lifespan. Leto II, the god-emperor? The Tleilaxu history was not to be believed. Idaho remembered a strange child. Twins, really. Leto and Ganima, Paul's children, the children of Cheney, who had died delivering them. The Tleilaxu history said Ganima had died after a relatively normal life, but the god-emperor Leto lived on and on and on. He is a tyrant, Idaho's instructors had said. He has ordered us to produce you from our axolotl tanks and to send you into his service. We do not know what has happened to your predecessor. And here I am. Once more Idaho let his gaze wander around the featureless walls and ceiling. The faint sound of voices intruded upon his awareness. He looked at the door. The voices were muted, but at least one of them sounded female. Women of the Imperial Guard? The door swung inward on noiseless hinges. Two women entered. The first thing to catch his attention was the fact that one of the women wore a mask, a Cebus hood of shapeless, light-drinking black. She would see him clearly through the hood, he knew, but her features would never reveal themselves, not even to the most subtle instruments of penetration. The hood said that the Ixians or their inheritors were still at work in the Imperium. Both women wore one-piece uniforms of rich blue with the Atreides hawk in red braid at the left breast. Idaho studied them as they closed the door and faced him. The masked woman had a blocky, powerful body. She moved with the deceptive care of a professional muscle fanatic. The other woman was graceful and slender, with almond eyes in sharp, high-boned features. Idaho had the feeling that he had seen her somewhere, but he could not fix the memory. Both women carried needle knives in hip sheaths. Something about their movements told Idaho these women would be extremely competent with such weapons. The slender one spoke first. My name is Luli. Let me be the first to address you as Commander. My companion must remain anonymous. Our Lord Leto has commanded it. You may address her as friend. Commander? he asked. It is the Lord Leto's wish that you command his royal guard, Luli said. That so? Let's go talk to him about it. Oh no, Luli was visibly shocked. The Lord Leto will summon you when it is time. For now he wishes us to make you comfortable and happy. And I must obey? Luli merely shook her head in puzzlement. Am I a slave? Luli relaxed and smiled. 
By no means. It's just that the Lord Leto has many great concerns which require his personal attention. He must make time for you. He sent us because he was concerned about his Duncan Idaho. You have been a long time in the hands of the dirty Tleilaxu. Dirty Tleilaxu, Idaho thought. That, at least, had not changed. He was concerned, though, by a particular reference in Luli's explanation. His Duncan Idaho? Are you not an Atreides warrior? Luli asked. She had him there. Idaho nodded, turning his head slightly to stare at the enigmatic masked woman. Why are you masked? It must not be known that I serve the Lord Leto, she said. Her voice was a pleasant contralto, but Idaho suspected that this too was masked by the Sebus hood. Then why are you here? The Lord Leto trusts me to determine if you have been tampered with by the dirty Tleilaxu. Idaho tried to swallow in a suddenly dry throat. This thought had occurred to him several times aboard the guild transport. If the Tleilaxu could condition Agola to attempt the murder of a dear friend, what else might they plant in the psyche of the regrown flesh? I see that you have thought about this, the masked woman said. Are you a mentat? Idaho asked. Oh no, Luli interrupted. The Lord Leto does not permit the training of mentats. Idaho glanced at Luli, then returned his attention to the masked woman. No mentats. The Tleilaxo history had not mentioned that interesting fact. Why would Leto prohibit mentats? Surely the human mind trained in the superabilities of computation still had its uses. The Tleilaxu had assured him that the great convention remained in force, and the mechanical computers were still anathema. Surely these women would know that the Atreides themselves had used mentats. What is your opinion? the masked woman asked. Have the dirty Tleilaxu tampered with your psyche? I don't think so. But you are not certain? No. Do not fear, Commander Idaho, she said. We have ways of making sure and ways of dealing with such problems should they arise. The dirty Tleilaxu have tried it only once and they paid dearly for their mistake. That's reassuring. Did the Lord Leto send me any messages? Luli spoke up. He told us to assure you that he still loves you as the Atreides have always loved you. She was obviously awed by her own words. Idaho relaxed slightly. As an old Atreides hand, superbly trained by them, he had found it easy to determine several things from this encounter. These two had been heavily conditioned to a fanatic obedience. If a Cebus mask could hide the identity of that woman, there had to be many more whose bodies were very similar. All of this spoke of dangers around later, which still required the old and subtle services of spies and an imaginative arsenal of weapons. Luli looked at her companion. What say you, friend? He may be brought to the citadel, the masked woman said. This is not a good place. The Tleilaxu have been here. A warm bath and change of clothing would be pleasant, Idaho said. Luli continued to look at her friend. You are certain? The wisdom of the Lord cannot be questioned, the masked woman said. Idaho did not like the sound of fanaticism in this friend's voice, but he felt secure in the integrity of the Atreides. 
They could appear cynical and cruel to outsiders and enemies, but to their own people they were just and they were loyal. Above all else, the Atreides were loyal to their own. And I am one of theirs, Idaho thought. But what happened to the me that I am replacing? He felt strongly that these two would not answer this question. But later will. Shall we go? he asked. I'm anxious to wash the stink of the dirty Tleilaxu off me. Luli grinned at him. Come, I shall bathe you myself. Enemies strengthen you. Allies weaken. I tell you this in the hope that it will help you understand why I act as I do in the full knowledge that great forces accumulate in my empire with but one wish, the wish to destroy me. You who read these words may know full well what actually happened, but I doubt that you understand it. The Stolen Journals The ceremony of showing by which the rebels began their meetings dragged on interminably for Siona. She sat in the front row and looked everywhere but at Topri, who was conducting the ceremony only a few paces away. This room in the service burrows beneath On was one they had never used before, but it was so like all of their other meeting places that it could have been used as a standard model. Rebel meeting room class B, she thought. It was officially designated as a storage chamber, and the fixed glow globes could not be tuned away from their blank white glaring. The room was about thirty paces long, and slightly less in width. It could be reached only through a labyrinthine series of similar chambers, one of which was conventionally stocked with a supply of stiff folding chairs intended for the small sleeping chambers of the service personnel. Nineteen of Siona's fellow rebels now occupied these chairs around her, with a few empty for any latecomers who might still make the meeting. The time had been set between the midnight and morning shifts to mask the flow of extra people in the service warrens. Most of the rebels wore energy worker disguises, thin, grey, disposable trousers and jackets. Some few, including Siona, were garbed in the green of machinery inspectors. Topra's voice was an insistent monotone in the room. He did not squeak at all while conducting the ceremony. In fact, Siona had to admit he was rather good at it, especially with new recruits. Since Naylor's flat statement that she did not trust the man, though, Siona had looked at Topri in a different way. Naylor could speak with a cutting naivete which pulled away masks, and there were things that Siona had learned about Topri since that confrontation. Siona turned at last and looked at the man. The cold, silvery light did not help Topri's pale skin. He used a copy of a Chris knife in the ceremony, a contraband copy bought from the Museum Fremen. Siona recalled the transaction as she looked at the blade in Topri's hands. It had been Topri's idea, and she had thought it a good one at the time. He had led her to the rendezvous in a hovel on the city's outskirts, leaving on just at dusk. They had waited well into the night until darkness could mask the Museum Fremen's coming. Fremen were not supposed to leave their Siech quarters without a special dispensation from the god-emperor. She had almost given up on him when the Fremen arrived, slipping in out of the night, his escort left behind to guard the door. Topri and Siona had been waiting on a crude bench against a dank wall of the absolutely plain room. 
The only light had come from a dim yellow torch supported on a stick driven into the crumbling mud wall. The Fremen's first words had filled Siona with misgivings. Have you brought the money? Both Topri and Siona had risen at his entry. Topri did not appear bothered by the question. He tapped the pouch beneath his robe, making it jingle. I have the money right here. The Fremen was a wizened figure, crabbed and bent, wearing a copy of the old Fremen robes and some glistening garment underneath, probably their version of a still suit. His hood was drawn forward, shading his features. The torchlight sent shadows dancing across his face. He peered first at Topri, then at Siona, before removing an object wrapped in cloth from beneath his robe. It is a true copy, but it is made of plastic, he said. It will not cut cold grease. He pulled the blade from its wrappings then and held it up. Siona, who had seen Chris Knives only in museums and in the rare old visual recordings of her family's archives, had found herself oddly gripped by the sight of the blade in this setting. She felt something atavistic working on her, and imagined this poor museum Fremen with his plastic Chris knife as a real Fremen of the old days. The thing he held was suddenly a silver-bladed Chris knife, shimmering in the yellow shadows. I guarantee the authenticity of the blade from which we copied it, the Fremen said. He spoke in a low voice, somehow made menacing by its lack of emphasis. Siona heard it then, the way he carried his venom in a sleeve of soft vowels, and she was suddenly alerted. Try treachery, and we will hunt you down like vermin, she said. Topri shot a startled glance at her. The museum Fremen appeared to shrivel. Drawing in upon himself, the blade trembled in his hand, but his gnome fingers still curled inward around it as though clasping a throat. Treachery, lady? Oh, no. But it occurred to us that we asked too little for this copy. Poor as it is, making it and selling it this way puts us in dreadful peril. Siona glared at him, thinking of the old Fremen words from the oral history. Once you acquire a marketplace soul, the souk is the totality of existence. How much do you want? she demanded. He named a sum twice his original figure. Topri gasped. Siona looked at Topri. Do you have that much? Not quite, but we agreed on. Give him what you have. All of it, Siona said. All of it? Isn't that what I said? Every coin in that bag. She faced the museum Fremen. You will accept this payment. It was not a question, and the old man heard her correctly. He wrapped the blade in its cloth and passed it to her. Topri handed over the pouch of coins, muttering under his breath. Siona addressed herself to the museum Fremen. We know your name. You are Teishar, aide to Garun of Tuono. You have a souk mentality, and you make me shudder at what Fremen have become. Lady, we all have to live, he protested. You are not alive, she said. Be gone! Teisha had turned and scurried away, clutching the money pouch close to his chest. Memory of that night did not sit well in Siona's mind as she watched Topri wave the Chris knife copy in their rebel ceremony. We are no better than Teisha, she thought. A copy is worse than nothing. 
Topre brandished the stupid blade over his head as he neared the ceremony's conclusion. Siona looked away from him and stared at Nela, seated off to her left. Nela was looking first one direction and now another. She paid special attention to the new cadre of recruits at the back of the room. Nela did not give her trust easily. Siona wrinkled her nose as a stirring of the air brought the smell of lubricants. The depths of Ong always smelled dangerously mechanical. She sniffed. And this room. She did not like their meeting place. It could easily be a trap. Guards could seal off the outer corridors and send in armed searchers. This could be too easily the place where their rebellion ended. Siona was made doubly uneasy by the fact that this room had been Topri's choice. One of Ulat's few mistakes, she thought. Poor dead Ulat had approved Topri's admission to the rebellion. He is a minor functionary in city services, Ulat had explained. Topri can find us many useful places to meet and arm ourselves. Topri had reached almost the end of his ceremony. He placed the knife in an ornate case and put the case on the floor beside him. My face is my pledge, he said. He turned his profile to the room, first one side and then the other. I show my face, that you may know me anywhere, and know that I am one of you. Stupid ceremony, Siona thought. But she dared not break the pattern of it. And when Topri pulled a black gauze mask from a pocket and placed it over his head, she took out her own mask and donned it. Everyone in the room did the same thing. There was a stirring around the room now. Most of the people here had been alerted that Topri had brought a special visitor. Siona secured her mask's tie behind her neck. She was anxious to see this visitor. Topri moved to the room's one door. There was a clattering bustle as everyone stood and the chairs were folded and stacked against the wall opposite the door. At a signal from Siona, Topri tapped three times on the door panel, waited for a two-count, then tapped four times. The door opened and a tall man in a dark brown official singlet slipped into the room. He wore no mask, his face open for all of them to see, thin and imperious, with a narrow mouth. A skinny blade of a nose, dark brown eyes deeply set under bushy brows. It was a face recognized by most of the room's occupants. My friends, Topri said, I present Iokobat, ambassador from Ix. Ix ambassador, Kobat said. His voice was guttural and tightly controlled. He took a position with his back to the wall facing the masked people in the room. I have this day received orders from our god-emperor to leave Arrakis in disgrace. Why? Siona snapped the question at him without formality. Kobat jerked his head around, a quick movement which fixed his gaze on her masked face. There has been an attempt on the god-emperor's life. He traced the weapon to me. Siona's companions opened a space between her and the ex-ambassador, clearly signalling that they deferred to her. Then why didn't he kill you? she demanded. I think he is telling me that I am not worth killing. There is also the fact that he uses me now to carry a message to Ix. What message? Siona moved through the cleared space to stop within two paces of Kobat. She recognized the sexual alertness in him as he studied her body. You are Moneo's daughter, he said. 
Soundless tension exploded across the room. Why did he reveal that he recognized her? Who else did he recognize here? Cobart did not appear the fool. Why had he done this? Your body, your voice, and your manner are well known here in On, he said. That mask is a foolishness. She ripped the mask from her head and smiled at him. I agree. Now answer my question. She heard Naylor move up close on her left. Two more aides chosen by Naylor came up beside her. Siona saw the moment of realization come over Cobart. His death, if he failed to satisfy her demands. His voice did not lose its tight control, but he spoke slower, choosing his words more carefully. The god Emperor has told me that he knows about an agreement between Ix and the Guild. We are attempting to make a mechanical amplifier of those Guild navigational talents which presently rely on Melange. In this room we call him the Worm, Siona said. What would your Ixian machine do? You are aware that guild navigators require the spice before they can see the safe path to traverse? You would replace the navigators with a machine? It may be possible. What message do you carry to your people concerning this machine? I am to tell my people that they may continue their project only if they send him daily reports on their progress. She shook her head. He needs no such reports. That's a stupid message. Cobart swallowed, no longer concealing nervousness. The Guild and the Sisterhood are excited by our project, he said. They are participating. Siona nodded once. And they pay for their participation by sharing spice with Ix. Cobart glared at her. It's expensive work, and we need the spice for comparative testing by Guild navigators. It is a lie and a cheat, she said. Your device will never work, and the worm knows it. How dare you accuse us of beast-tale? I have just told you the real message. The worm is telling you Ixians to continue cheating the guild and the Bene Gesserit. It amuses him. It could work, Cobart insisted. She merely smiled at him. Who tried to kill the worm? Duncan Idaho. Naylor gasped. There were other small signs of surprise around the room, a frown, an indrawn breath. Is Idaho dead? Siona asked. I presume so, but the... Ah, Worm refuses to confirm it. Why do you presume him dead? The Dralelaxu have sent another Idaho Gola. I see. Siona turned and signaled to Nela who went to the side of the room and returned with a slim package wrapped in pink souk paper, the kind of paper shopkeepers used to enclose small purchases. Naylor handed the package to Siona. This is the price of our silence, Siona said, extending the package to Cobart. This is why Topri was permitted to bring you here tonight. Cobart took the package without removing his attention from her face. Silence, he asked. We undertake not to inform the Guild and Sisterhood that you are cheating them. We are not cheat- Don't be a fool. Cobart tried to swallow in a dry throat. Her meaning had become plain to him. True or not, 
If the rebellion spread such a story, it would be believed. It was common sense, as Topri was fond of saying. Siona glanced at Topri, who stood just behind Kubat. No one joined this rebellion for reasons of common sense. Did Topri not realize that his common sense might betray him? She returned her attention to Kobat. What's in this package? he asked. Something in the way he asked it told Siona he already knew. That is something I am sending to Ix. You will take it there for me. That is copies of two volumes we removed from the Worm's Fortress. Kobat stared down at the package in his hands. It was obvious that he wanted to drop the thing, that his venture into rebellion had loaded him with a burden more deadly than he had expected. He shot a scowling glance at Topri, which said as though he had spoken it, Why didn't you warn me? What? He brought his gaze back to Siona, cleared his throat. What's in these volumes? Your people may tell us that. We think they are the worm's own words, written in a cipher which we cannot read. What makes you think we... You Ixians are clever at such things, and if we fail... She shrugged. We will not blame you for that. However, should you use those volumes for any other purpose, or fail to report a success fully... How can anyone be sure we... We will not depend only on you. Others will get copies. I think the Sisterhood and the Guild will not hesitate to try deciphering those volumes. Kobat slipped the package under his arm and pressed it against his body. What makes you think the... The worm doesn't know about your intentions, even about this meeting. I think he knows many such things, that he may even know who took those volumes. My father believes he is truly prescient. Your father believes the oral history? Everyone in this room believes it. The oral history does not disagree with the formal history on important matters. Then why doesn't the worm act against you? She pointed to the package under Kobat's arm. Perhaps the answer is in there. Oh, you and these cryptic volumes are no real threat to him. Kobat was not concealing his anger. He did not like being forced into decisions. Perhaps. Tell me why you mentioned the oral history. Once more, Kobat heard the menace. It says the worm is incapable of human emotions. That is not the reason, she said. You will get one more chance to tell me the reason. Naylor moved two steps closer to Kobat. I... I was told to review the oral history before coming here. That your people... He shrugged. That we chant it? Yes. Who told you this? Kobat swallowed, cast a fearful glance at Topri, then back to Siona. Topri? Siona asked. I thought it would help him to understand us, Topri said. And you told him the name of your leader, Siona said. He already knew, Topri's voice had found its squeak. What particular parts of the oral history were you told to review, Siona asked. The, ah, uh, the Atreides line. And now you think you know why people join me in rebellion? The oral history tells exactly how he treats everyone in the Atreides line, Kobat said. He gives us a little rope, 
And then he hauls us in? Siona asked. Her voice was deceptively flat. That's what he did with your own father, Cobart said. And now he's letting me play at rebellion? I'm just a messenger, Cobart said. If you kill me, who will carry your message? Or the message of the worm, Siona said. Cobart remained silent. I do not think you understand the oral history, Siona said. I think also you do not know the worm very well, nor do you understand his messages. Cobart's face flushed with anger. What's to prevent you from becoming like all the rest of the Atreides, a nice, obedient part of... Cobart broke off, aware suddenly of what anger had made him say. Just another recruit for the worm's inner circle, Siona said. Just like the Duncan Idahos? She turned and looked at Nela. The two aides, Anouk and Tor, became suddenly alert. But Nela remained impassive. Siona nodded once to Nela. As they were sworn to do, Anouk and Tor moved to positions blocking the door. Nela went around to stand at Topri's shoulder. What's... what's happening? Topri asked. We wish to know everything of importance that the ex-ambassador can share with us, Siona said. We want the entire message. Topri began to tremble. Perspiration started from Kobat's forehead. He glanced once at Topri, then returned his attention to Siona. That one glance was like a veil pulled aside for Siona to peer into the relationship between these two. She smiled. This merely confirmed what she had already learned. Cobart became very still. You may begin, Siona said. I... what do you... The worm gave you a private message for your masters. I will hear it. He... he wants an extension for his cart. Then he expects to grow longer. What else? We are to send him a large supply of Redurian crystal paper. For what purpose? He never explains his demands. This smacks of things he forbids to others, she said. Cobart spoke bitterly. He never forbids himself anything. Have you made forbidden toys for him? I do not know. He's lying, she thought. But she chose not to pursue this. It was enough to know the existence of another chink in the worm's armor. Who will replace you? Siona asked. They are sending a niece of Malki, Kobart said. You may remember that he... We remember Malki, she said. Why does a niece of Malki become the new ambassador? I don't know, but it was ordered even before the go. The worm dismissed me. Her name? Hui Nori. We will cultivate Hui Nori, Siona said. You were not worth cultivating. This Hui Nori may be something else. When do you return to Ix? Immediately after the festival, the first guild ship. What will you tell your masters? About what? My message. They will do as you ask. I know. You may go, ex-ambassador Kobat. Kobat almost collided with the door guards in his haste to leave. Topri made to follow him, but Nela caught Topri's arm and held him. 
Topris swept a fearful glance across Naylor's muscular body, then looked at Siona, who waited for the door to shut behind Kobad before speaking. The message was not merely to the Ixians, but to us as well, she said. The worm challenges us and tells us the rules of the combat. Topri tried to wrest his arm from Naylor's grip. What do you... Topri, Siona said. I too can send a message. Tell my father to inform the worm that we accept. Naylor released his arm. Topre rubbed the place where she had gripped him. Surely you don't. Leave while you can and never come back, Siona said. You can't possibly mean that you sus- I told you to leave. You are clumsy, Topri. I have been in the fish speaker schools for most of my life. They taught me to recognize clumsiness. Kobat is leaving. What harm was there in... He not only knew me, he knew what I had stolen from the citadel. But he did not know that I would send that package to Ix with him. Your actions have told me that the worm wants me to send those volumes to Ix. Topri backed away from Siona toward the door. Anuk and Tor opened a passage for him swung the door wide. Siona followed him with her voice. Do not argue that it was the worm who spoke of me and my package to Kobat. The worm does not send clumsy messages. Tell him I said that. Some say I have no conscience. How false they are, even to themselves. I am the only conscience which has ever existed. As wine retains the perfume of its cask, I retain the essence of my most ancient genesis, and that is the seed of conscience. That is what makes me holy. I am God because I am the only one who really knows his heredity. The Stolen Journals The Inquisitors of Ix, having assembled in the Grand Palais with the candidate for ambassador to the court of the Lord Leto, the following questions and answers were recorded. Inquisitor, you indicate that you wish to speak to us of the Lord Leto's motives. Speak. Queen Ori, your formal analyses do not satisfy the questions I would raise. What questions? I ask myself what would motivate the Lord Leto to accept this hideous transformation, this worm body, this loss of his humanity. You suggest merely that he did it for power and for long life. Are those not enough? Ask yourselves if one of you would make such payment for so paltry a return. From your infinite wisdom, then... Tell us why the Lord Leto chose to become a worm. Does anyone here doubt his ability to predict the future? Now then, is that not payment enough for his transformation? But he already had the prescient ability, as did his father before him. No. I propose that he made this desperate choice because he saw in our future something that only such a sacrifice would prevent. What was this peculiar thing which only he saw in our future? I do not know, but I propose to discover it. 
You make the tyrant appear a selfless servant of the people. Was that not a prominent characteristic of his Atreides family? So the official histories would have us believe. The oral history affirms it. What other good character would you give to the tyrant worm? Good character, Sirrah? Character, then. My uncle Malky often said that the Lord later was given to moods of great tolerance for selected companions. Other companions he executes for no apparent reason. I think there are reasons, and my uncle Malky deduced some of those reasons. Give us one such deduction. Clumsy threats to his person. Clumsy threats, now. And he does not tolerate pretensions. Recall the execution of the historians and the destruction of their works. He does not want the truth known. He told my Uncle Malky that they lied about the past. And mark you, who would know this better than he? We all know the subject of his introversion. What proof have we that all of his ancestors live in him? I will not enter that bootless argument. I will merely say that I believe it on the evidence of my Uncle Malky's belief and his reasons for that belief. We have read your uncle's reports and interpret them otherwise. Malky was overly fond of the worm. My uncle accounted him the most supremely artful diplomat in the empire, a master conversationalist and expert in any subject you could name. Did your uncle not speak of the worm's brutality? My uncle judged him ultimately civilized. I asked about brutality. Capable of brutality, yes. Your uncle feared him. The Lord Leto lacks all innocence and naivete. He is to be feared only when he pretends these traits. That was what my uncle said. Those were his words, yes. More than that, Malky said the Lord Leto delights in the surprising genius and diversity of humankind. He is my favorite companion. Giving us the benefit of your supreme wisdom, how do you interpret these words of your uncle? Do not mock me. We do not mock. We seek enlightenment. These words of Malky and many other things that he wrote directly to me suggest that the Lord Leto is always seeking after newness and originality, but that he is wary of the destructive potential in such things. So my uncle believed. Is there more which you wish to add to these beliefs which you share with your uncle? I see no point in adding to what I've already said. I am sorry to have wasted the Inquisitor's time. But you have not wasted our time. You are confirmed as ambassador to the court of Lord Leto, the god-emperor of the known universe. You must remember that I have at my internal demand every expertise known to our history. This is the fund of energy I draw upon when I address the mentality of war. 
If you have not heard the moaning cries of the wounded and the dying, you do not know about war. I have heard those cries in such numbers that they haunt me. I have cried out myself in the aftermath of battle. I have suffered wounds in every epoch. Wounds from fist and club and rock, from shell-studded limb and bronze sword, from the mace and the cannon, from arrows and laser guns and the silent smothering of atomic dust, from biological invasions which blacken the tongue and drown the lungs, from the swift gush of flame and the silent working of slow poisons, and more I will not recount. I have seen and felt them all. To those who dare ask why I behave as I do, I say, with my memories I can do nothing else. I am not a coward, and once I was human. The Stolen Journals In the warm season, when the satellite weather controllers were forced to contend with winds across the great seas, evening often saw rainfall at the edges of the Sarir. Moneo, coming in from one of his periodic inspections of the citadel's perimeter, was caught in a sudden shower. Night fell before he reached shelter. A fish-speaker guard helped him out of his damp cloak at the south portal. She was a heavy-set, blocky woman with a square face, a type Leto favoured for his guardians. Those damned weather controllers should be made to shape up, she said, as she handed him his damp cloak. Moneo gave her a curt nod before beginning the climb to his quarters. All of the fish-speaker guards knew the god-emperor's aversion to moisture, but none of them made Moneo's distinction. It is the worm who hates water, Moneo thought. Shai Hulud hungers for dune. In his quarters, Moneo dried himself and changed to dry clothing before descending to the crypt. There was no point in inviting the worm's antagonism. Uninterrupted conversation with Leto was required now, plain talk about the impending peregrination to the festival city of On. Leaning against the wall of the descending lift, Moneo closed his eyes. Immediately, fatigue swept over him. He knew he had not slept enough in days, and there was no let-up in sight. He envied Leto's apparent freedom from the need for sleep. A few hours of semi-repose a month appeared to be sufficient for the god-emperor. The smell of the crypt and the stopping of the lift jarred Moneo from his catnap. He opened his eyes and looked out at the god-emperor on his cart in the centre of the great chamber. Moneo composed himself and strode out for the familiar long walk into the terrible presence. As expected, Leto appeared alert. That, at least, was a good sign. Leto had heard the lift approaching and saw Moneo awaken. The man looked tired and that was understandable. The peregrination to On was at hand with all of the tiresome business of off-planet visitors, the ritual with the fish speakers, the new ambassadors, the changing of the Imperial Guard, the retirements and the appointments, and now a new Duncan Idaho Gola to fit into the smooth working of the Imperial apparatus. Moneo was occupied with mounting details, and he was beginning to show his age. Let me see, Plato thought. Moneo will be one hundred and eighteen years old in the week after our return from On. The man could live many times that long if he would take the spice. But he refused. Leto had no doubt of the reason. Moneo had entered that peculiar human state where he longed for death, 
He lingered now only to see Siona installed in the royal service, the next director of the Imperial Society of Fish Speakers. My Huris, as Malki used to call them. And Moneo knew it was Leto's intention to breed Siona with a Duncan. It was time. Moneo stopped two paces from the cart and looked up at Leto. Something in his eyes reminded Leto of the look on the face of a pagan priest in the Terran times, a crafty supplication at the familiar shrine. Lord, you have spent many hours observing the new Duncan, Moneo said. Have the Tleilaxu tampered with his cells or his psyche? He is untainted. A deep sigh shook Moneo. There was no pleasure in it. You object to his use as a stud? Plato asked. I find it peculiar to think of him as both an ancestor and the father of my descendants. But he gives me access to a first-generation cross between an older human form and the current products of my breeding program. Siona is twenty-one generations removed from such a cross. I fail to see the purpose. The Duncans are slower and less alert than anyone in your guard. I am not looking for good, segregant offspring, Moneo. Did you think me unaware of the progression geometrics dictated by the laws which govern my breeding program? I have seen your stock book, Lord. Then you know that I keep track of the recessives and weed them out. The key genetic dominance are my concern. And the mutations, Lord? There was a sly note in Moneo's voice which caused Leto to study the man intently. We will not discuss that subject, Moneo. Leto watched Moneo pull back into his cautious shell. How extremely sensitive he is to my moods, Leto thought. I do believe he has some of my abilities there, although they operate at an unconscious level. His question suggests that he may even suspect what we have achieved in Siona. Testing this, Leto said, It is clear to me that you do not yet understand what I hope to achieve in my breeding program. Moneo brightened. My lord knows I try to fathom the rules of it. Laws tend to be temporary over the long haul, Moneo. There is no such thing as rule-governed creativity. But, lord, you yourself speak of laws which govern your breeding program. What have I just said to you, Moneo? Trying to find rules for creation is like trying to separate mind from body. But something is evolving, Lord. I know it in myself. He knows it in himself. Dear Moneo, he is so close. Why do you always seek after absolutely derivative translations, Moneo? I have heard you speak of transformational evolution, Lord. That is the label on your stock book. But what of surprise? Moneo, rules change with each surprise. Lord, have you no improvement of the human stock in mind? Leto glared down at him, thinking, if I use the key word now, will he understand? Perhaps. I am a predator, Moneo. Pred? Moneo broke off and shook his head. He knew the meaning of the word, he thought but the word itself shocked him. Was the god-emperor joking? Predator, lord? The predator improves the stock. How can this be, lord? You do not hate us. 
You disappoint me, Moneo. The predator does not hate its prey. Predators kill, Lord. I kill. But I do not hate. Prey assuages hunger. Prey is good. Moneo peered up at Leto's face in its grey cowl. Have I missed the approach of the worm? Moneo wondered. Fearfully, Moneo looked for the signs. There were no tremors in the giant body, no glazing of the eyes, no twisting of the useless flippers. For what do you hunger, Lord? Moneo ventured. For a humankind which can make truly long-term decisions. Do you know the key to that ability, Moneo? You have said it many times, Lord. It is the ability to change your mind. Change? Yes. And do you know what I mean by long term? For you, it must be measured in millennia, Lord. Moneo, even my thousands of years are but a puny blip against infinity. But your perspective must be different from mine, Lord. In the view of infinity, any defined long-term is short-term. Then there are no rules at all, Lord? Moneo's voice conveyed a faint hint of hysteria. Leto smiled to ease the man's tensions. Perhaps one. Short-term decisions tend to fail in the long-term. Moneo shook his head in frustration. But, Lord... Your perspective is... Time runs out for any finite observer. There are no closed systems. Even I only stretch the finite matrix. Moneo jerked his attention from Leto's face and peered into the distances of the mausoleum corridors. I will be here some day. The golden path may continue, but I will end... That was not important, of course. Only the golden path which he could sense in unbroken continuity, only that mattered. He returned his attention to later, but not to the all-blue eyes. Was there truly a predator lurking in that gross body? You do not understand the function of a predator, Leto said. The words shocked Moneo because they smacked of mind-reading. He lifted his gaze to Leto's eyes. You know, intellectually, that even I will suffer a kind of death some day, Plato said, but you do not believe it. How can I believe what I will never see? Moneo had never felt more lonely and fearful. What was the god-emperor doing? I came down here to discuss the problems of the peregrination and to find out about his intentions towards Siona. Does he toy with me? Let us talk about Siona, Leto said. Mind reading again. When will you test her, Lord? The question had been waiting in the front of his awareness all this time, but now that he had spoken it, Moneo feared it. Soon. Forgive me, Lord, but surely you know how much I fear for the well-being of my only child. Others have survived the test, Moneo. You did. Moneo gulped, remembering how he had been sensitized to the golden path. My mother prepared me. Siona has no mother. She has the fish speakers. She has you. Accidents happen, Lord. Tears sprang into Moneo's eyes. Leto looked away from him, thinking, 
he is torn by his loyalty to me and his love of Siona. How poignant it is, this concern for an offspring. Can he not see that all of humankind is my only child? Returning his attention to Moneo, Leto said, You are right to observe that accidents happen even in my universe. Does this teach you nothing? Lord, just this once, couldn't you? Moneo, surely you do not ask me to delegate authority to a weak administrator. Moneo recoiled one step. No, Lord, of course not. Then trust Siona's strength. Moneo squared his shoulders. I will do what I must. Siona must be awakened to her duties as an Atreides. Yes, of course, Lord. Is that not our commitment, Moneo? I do not deny it, Lord. When will you introduce her to the new Duncan? The test comes first. Moneo looked down at the cold floor of the crypt. He stares at the floor so often, Leto thought. What can he possibly see there? Is it the millennial tracks of my cart? Ah, no. It is into the depths that he peers, into the realm of treasure and mystery which he expects to enter soon. Once more, Moneo lifted his gaze to Leto's face. I hope she will like the Duncan's company, Lord. Be assured of it, that Lelaxu have brought him to me in the undistorted image. That is reassuring, Lord. No doubt you have noted that his genotype is remarkably attractive to females. That has been my observation, Lord. There's something about those gently observant eyes, those strong features and that black goat hair which positively melts the female psyche. As you say, Lord. You know he's with the fish speakers right now? I was informed, Lord. Leto smiled. Of course, Moneo was informed. They will bring him to me soon for his first view of the god-emperor. I have inspected the viewing room personally, Lord. Everything is in readiness. Sometimes I think you wish to weaken me, Moneo. Leave some of these details for me. Moneo tried to conceal a constriction of fear. He bowed and backed away. Yes, Lord, but there are some things which I must do. Turning, he hurried away. It was not until he was ascending in the lift that Moneo realized he had left without being dismissed. He must know how tired I am. He will forgive. Your Lord knows very well what is in your heart. Your soul suffices this day as a reckoner against you. I need no witnesses. You do not listen to your soul, but listen instead to your anger and your rage. Lord Leto to a penitent from the Oral History The following assessment of the state of the Empire in the year 3508 of the reign of the Lord Leto is taken from the Welbeck Abridgment. The original is in the Chapter House archives of the Bene Gesserit Order. A comparison reveals that the deletions do not subtract from the essential accuracy of this account. In the name of our sacred order and its unbroken sisterhood, this accounting has been judged reliable and worthy of entry into the chronicles of the chapter house. Sisters Chenoweth and Torsuoko 
have returned safely from Arrakis to report confirmation of the long-suspected execution of the nine historians who disappeared into his citadel in the year 2116 of Lord Leto's reign. The sisters report that the nine were rendered unconscious, then burned on pyres of their own published works. This conforms exactly with the stories which spread across the Empire at the time. The accounts of that time were judged to have originated with Lord Leto himself. Sisters Chenua and Torsuoko bring the handwritten records of an eyewitness account, which says that when Lord Leto was petitioned by other historians seeking word of their fellows, Lord Leto said, They were destroyed because they lied pretentiously. Have no fear that my wrath will fall upon you because of your innocent mistakes. I am not overly fond of creating martyrs. Martyrs tend to set dramatic events adrift in human affairs. Drama is one of the targets of my predation. Tremble only if you build false accounts and stand pridefully upon them. Go now and do not speak of this. Internal evidence of the handwritten account identifies its author as Ikonikri, Lord Leto's majordomo, in the year 2116. Attention is called to Lord Leto's use of the word predation. This is highly suggestive in view of theories advanced by Reverend Mother Siaxa that the god-emperor views himself as a predator in the natural sense. Sister Chenua was invited to accompany the fish speakers in an entourage which accompanied one of Lord Leto's infrequent peregrinations. At one point she was invited to trot beside the royal cart and converse with the Lord Leto himself. She reports the exchange as follows. The Lord Leto said, Here on the royal road I sometimes feel that I stand on battlements protecting myself against invaders. Sister Chenua said, No one attacks you here, Lord. The Lord Leto said, You Bene Gesserit assail me on all sides. Even now you seek to suborn my fish speakers. Sister Chenua said that she steeled herself for death but the god-emperor merely stopped his cart and looked across her at his entourage. She says the others stopped and waited on the road in well-trained passivity, all of them at a respectful distance. The Lord Leto said, There is my little multitude, and they tell me everything. Do not deny my accusation. Sister Chenua said, I do not deny it. The Lord Leto looked at her then and said, Have no fear for your person. It is my wish that you report my words in your chapter house. Sister Chenua says she could see then that the Lord Leto knew all about her, about her mission, her special training as an oral recorder, everything. He was like a reverend mother, she said. I could hide nothing from him. The Lord Leto then commanded her, Look toward my festival city and tell me what you see. Sister Chenua looked toward On and said, I see the city in the distance. It is beautiful in this morning light. There is your forest on the right. It has so many greens in it I could spend all day describing them. On the left and all around the city there are the houses and the gardens of your servitors. Some of them look very rich and some look very poor. The Lord Leto said, We have cluttered this landscape. Trees are a clutter. Houses. Gardens. You cannot exult at new mysteries in such a landscape. Sister Chenoweth, emboldened by Lord Leto's assurances, asked, 
Does the Lord truly want mysteries? The Lord Leto said, There is no outward spiritual freedom in such a landscape. Do you not see it? You have no open universe here with which to share. Everything is closures, doors, latches, locks. Sister Chenue asked, Has mankind no longer any need for privacy and protection? The Lord Leto said, When you return, tell your sisters that I will restore the outward view. Such a landscape as this one turns you inward in search for whatever freedom your spirits can find within. Most humans are not strong enough to find freedom within. Sister Chenua said, I will report your words accurately, Lord. The Lord Leto said, See that you do. Tell your sisters also that the Bene Gesserit of all people should know the dangers of breeding for a particular characteristic, of seeking a defined genetic goal. Sister Chenua says this was an obvious reference to the Lord Leto's father, Paul Atreides. Let it be noted that our breeding program achieved the Kwisatz Haderach one generation early. In becoming Muad'Dib, the leader of the Fremen, Paul Atreides escaped from our control. There is no doubt that he was a male with the powers of a reverend mother, and other powers for which humankind still is paying a heavy price. As the Lord Leto said, You got the unexpected, you got me, the wild card, and I have achieved Siona. The Lord Leto refused to elaborate on this reference to the daughter of his majordomo, Moneo. The matter is being investigated. In other matters of concern to the chapter house, our investigators have supplied information on the fish speakers. The Lord Leto's female legions have elected their representatives to attend the decennial festival on Arrakis. Three representatives will attend from each planetary garrison, see attached list of those chosen. As usual, no adult males will attend, not even consorts of fish speaker officers. The consort list has changed very little in this reporting period. We have appended the new names with genealogical information where available. Note that only two of the names can be starred as descendants of the Duncan Idaho Golas. We can add nothing new to our speculations about his use of the Golas in his breeding program. None of our efforts to form an alliance between fish speakers and Bene Gesserit succeeded during this period. Lord Leto continues to increase certain garrison sizes. He also continues to emphasize the alternative missions of the fish speakers, de-emphasizing their military missions. This has been the expected result of increasing local admiration and respect and gratitude for the presence of the fish speaker garrisons. See attached list for garrisons which were increased in size. Editor's note, the only pertinent garrisons were those on the home planets of the Bene Gesserit, Ixians and Tleilaxu. Spacing guild monitors were not increased. Priesthood Except for the few natural deaths and replacements which are listed in attachments, there have been no significant changes. Those consorts and officers delegated to perform the ritual duties remain few. Their powers abridged by continuing requirement for consultation with Arrakis before taking any important action. It is the opinion of the Reverend Mother Siaxa and some others that the religious character of the fish speakers is slowly being devolved. Breeding Program Other than the unexplained reference to Siona and to our failure with his father, 
we have nothing significant to add to our continued monitoring of the Lord Leto's breeding program. There is evidence of a certain randomness in his plan, which is reinforced by the Lord Leto's statement about genetic goals. But we cannot be certain that he was truthful with Sister Chenoa. We call your attention to the many instances where he has either lied or changed directions dramatically and without warning. The Lord Leto continues to prohibit our participation in his breeding program. His monitors from our fish speaker garrison remain adamant in weeding out our births to which they object. Only by the most stringent controls were we able to maintain the level of reverend mothers during this reporting period. Our protests are not answered. In response to a direct question from Sister Chenoe, the Lord Leto said, Be thankful for what you have. This warning is duly noted here. We have transmitted a gracious letter of thankfulness to the Lord Leto. Economics The Chapter House continues to maintain its solvency, but the measures of conservation cannot be eased. In fact, as a precaution, certain new measures will be instituted in the next reporting period. These include a reduction in the ritual use of melange and an increase in the rates charged for our usual services. We expect to double the fees for the schooling of great house females across the next four reporting periods. You are hereby charged to begin preparing your arguments in defence of this action. The Lord Leto has denied our petition for an increase in our melange allotment. No reason was given. Our relationship with the combiné Honnête Ober Advancer Mercantile remains on a sound footing. Chome has accomplished in the preceding period a regional cartel in Star Jewels, a project whereby we gained a substantial return through our advisory and bargaining functions. The ongoing profits from this arrangement should more than offset our losses on Gidi Prime. The Gidi Prime investment has been written off. Great Houses Thirty-one former Great Houses suffered economic disaster in this reporting period. Only six managed to maintain house minor status. See attached list. This continues the general trend noted over the past thousand years, where the once great houses melt gradually into the background. It is to be noted that the six who averted total disaster were all heavy investors in Chome, and that five of these six were deeply involved in the Star Jewel project. The lone exception held a diversified portfolio, including a substantial investment in antique whale fur from Caladan. Our pongee rice reserves were increased almost twofold in this period at the expense of our whale fur holdings. The reasons for this decision will be reviewed in the next period. Family Life As has been observed by our investigators over the preceding two thousand years, the homogenization of family life continues unabated. The exceptions are those you would expect. The guild, the fish speakers, the royal courtiers, the shape-changing face dancers of the Tlelaxu, who are still mules despite all efforts to change that condition, and our own situation, of course. It is to be noted that familial conditions grow more and more similar no matter the planet of residence, a circumstance which cannot be attributed to accident. We are seeing here the emergence of a portion of the Lord Leto's grand design. Even the poorest families are well-fed, yes, but the circumstances of daily life grow increasingly static. We remind you of a statement from the Lord Leto which was reported here almost eight generations ago. 
I am the only spectacle remaining in the empire. Reverend Mother Siaxa has proposed a theoretical explanation for this trend, a theory which many of us are beginning to share. R.M. Siaxa attributes to Lord Leto a motive based on the concept of hydraulic despotism. As you know, hydraulic despotism is possible only when a substance or condition upon which life in general absolutely depends can be controlled by a relatively small and centralised force. The concept of hydraulic despotism originated when the flow of irrigation water increased local human populations to a demand level of absolute dependence. When the water was shut off, people died in large numbers. This phenomenon has been repeated many times in human history, not only with water and the products of arable land, but with hydrocarbon fuels such as petroleum and coal, which were controlled through pipelines and other distribution networks. At one time, when distribution of electricity was only through complicated mazes of lines strung across the landscape, even this energy resource fell into the role of a hydraulic despotism substance. R.M. Siaxa proposes that the Lord Leto is building the empire toward an even greater dependence upon melange. It is worth noting that the ageing process can be called a disease for which melange is the specific treatment, although not a cure. R.M. Siaxa proposes that the Lord Leto may even go so far as introducing a new disease which can only be suppressed by melange. Although this may appear far-fetched, it should not be discarded out of hand. Stranger things have happened, and we should not overlook the role of syphilis in early human history. Transport Guild The three-mode transportation system once peculiar to Arrakis, that is, on foot with heavy loads relegated to suspensor-borne pallets, in the air via ornithopter, or off-planet by guild transport, is coming to dominate more and more planets of the Empire. Ix is the primary exception. We attribute this in part to planetary devolution into sedentary and static lifestyles, and partly it is the attempt to copy the pattern of Arrakis. The generalised aversion to things Ixian plays no small part in this trend. There is also the fact that the fish speakers promote this pattern to reduce their work in maintaining order. Over the guild's part in this trend hangs the absolute dependence of the guild navigators upon melange. We are therefore keeping a close watch upon the joint effort of guild and Ix to develop a mechanical substitute for the navigator's predictive talents. Without melange or some other means of projecting a highliner's course, every translite guild voyage risks disaster. Although we are not very sanguine about this guild Ixian project, there is always the possibility, and we shall report on this as conditions warrant. The God Emperor Other than some small increments of growth, we note little change in the bodily characteristics of the Lord Leto. A rumoured aversion to water has not been confirmed, although the use of water as a barrier against the original sandworms of Dune is well documented in our records, as is the water death by which Fremen killed a small worm to produce the spice essence employed in their orgies. There is considerable evidence for the belief that the Lord Leto has increased his surveillance of Ix, possibly because of the Guild Ixian project. Certainly, success in that project would reduce his hold upon the Empire. He continues to do business with Ix, ordering replacement parts for his royal cart. 
The new Gola Duncan Idaho has been sent to the Lord Leto by the Tleilaxu. This makes it certain that the previous Gola is dead, although the manner of his death is not known. We call your attention to previous indications that the Lord Leto himself has killed some of his Golas. There is increasing evidence that the Lord Leto employs computers. If he is, in fact, defying his own prohibitions and the prescriptions of the Butlerian Jihad, the possession of proof by us could increase our influence over him, possibly even to the extent of certain joint ventures which we have long contemplated. Sovereign control of our breeding program is still a primary concern. We will continue our investigation with, however, the following caveat. As with every report preceding this one, we must address the Lord Leto's prescience. There is no doubt that his ability to predict future events, an oracular ability much more powerful than that of any ancestor, is still the mainstay of his political control. We do not defy it. It is our belief that he knows every important action we take far in advance of the event. We guide ourselves, therefore, by the rule that we will not knowingly threaten either his person or such of his grand plan as we can discern. Our address to him will continue to be, Tell us if we threaten you that we may desist, and tell us of your grand plan that we may help. He has provided no new answers to either question during this period. The Ixians Other than the Guild Ix project, there is little of significance to report. Ix is sending a new ambassador to the court of Lord Leto, one Hui Nori a niece of the Malki who once was reputed to be such a boon companion of the god-emperor. The reason for the choice of replacement is not known, although there is a small body of evidence that this Hui Nori was bred for a specific purpose, possibly as the Ixian representative at the court. We have reason to believe that Malki also was genetically designed with that official context in mind. We will continue to investigate. The Museum Fremen these degenerate relics of the once proud warriors continue to function as our major source of reliable information about affairs on Arrakis. They represent a major budget item for our next reporting period because their demands for payment are increasing and we dare not antagonise them. It is interesting to note that although their lives bear little resemblance to that of their ancestors, their performance of Fremen rituals and their ability to ape Fremen ways remains flawless. We attribute this to fish-speaker influence upon Fremen training. The Tleilaxu We do not expect the new Gola of Duncan Idaho to provide any surprises. The Tleilaxu continue to be much chastened by the Lord Leto's reaction to their one attempt at changing the cellular nature and the psyche of the original. A recent envoy from the Tleilaxu renewed their attempts to entice us into a joint venture, the avowed purpose being the production of a totally female society without the need for males. For all of the obvious reasons, including our distrust of everything Tleilaxu, we responded with our usual polite negative. Our embassy to the Lord Leto's decennial festival will make a full report of this to him. Respectfully submitted, the Reverend Mothers Siaksa, Yitob, Mamalut, Eknekosk and Akili. Odd as it may seem, 
Great struggles such as the one you can see emerging from my journals are not always visible to the participants. Much depends on what people dream in the secrecy of their hearts. I have always been as concerned with the shaping of dreams as with the shaping of actions. Between the lines of my journals is the struggle with humankind's view of itself, a sweaty contest on a field where motives from our darkest past can well up out of an unconscious reservoir and become events with which we not only must live, but contend. It is the hydra-headed monster which always attacks from your blind side. I pray, therefore, that when you have traversed my portion of the golden path, you no longer will be innocent children, dancing to music you cannot hear. The Stolen Journals Nayla moved in a steady, plodding pace as she climbed the circular stairs to the god-emperor's audience chamber atop the citadel's south tower. Each time she traversed the southwest arc of the tower, the narrow, slitted windows drew dust-defined golden lines across her path. She knew that the central wall beside her confined a lift of Ixian make large enough to carry her lord's bulk to the upper chamber, certainly large enough to hold her relatively small body but she did not resent the fact that she was required to use the stairs. The breeze through the open slits brought her the burnt flint smell of blown sand. The low-lying sun ignited the light of red mineral flakes in the inner wall, ruby matches glowing there. Now and then she cast a glance through a slitted window at the dunes. Never once did she pause to admire the things to be seen around her. You have heroic patience, Nayla, the Lord had once told her. Remembrance of those words warmed Nayla now. Within the tower, Leto followed Nayla's progress up the long circular stairs that spiralled around the Ixian tube. Her progress was transmitted to him by an Ixian device which projected her approaching image quarter size onto a region of three-dimensional focus directly in front of his eyes. How precisely she moves, he thought. The precision, he knew, came from a passionate simplicity. She wore her fish-speaker blues and a cape robe without the hawk at the breast. Once past the guard station at the foot of the tower, she had thrown back the Cebus mask he required her to wear on these personal visits. Her blocky, muscular body was like that of many others among his guardians, but her face was like no other in all of his memory. Almost square, with a mouth so wide it seemed to extend around the cheeks, an illusion caused by deep creases at the corners. Her eyes were pale green, the closely cropped hair like old ivory. Her forehead added to the square effect, almost flat, with pale eyebrows which often went unnoticed because of the compelling eyes. The nose was a straight, shallow line which terminated close to the thin-lipped mouth. When Nayla spoke, her great jaws opened and closed like those of some primordial animal. Her strength, known to few outside the core of fish speakers, was legendary there. Leto had seen her lift a one-hundred-kilo man with one hand. Her presence on Arrakis had been arranged originally without Moneo's intervention, although the Majordomo knew Leto employed his fish-speakers as secret agents. Leto turned his head away from the plodding image and looked out the wide opening beside him at the desert to the south. The colours of the distant rocks danced in his awareness, brown, gold, a deep, Amber.
There was a line of pink on a faraway cliff, the exact hue of an egret's feathers. Egrets did not exist anymore, except in Leto's memory. But he could place that pale pastel ribbon of stone against an inner eye, and it was as though the extinct bird flew past him. The climb, he knew, should be starting to tire even Nayla. She paused at last to rest, stopping at a point two steps past the three-quarter mark, precisely the place where she rested every time. It was part of her precision, one of the reasons he had brought her back from the distant garrison on Saprik. A dune hawk floated past the opening beside Leto only a few wings' length from the tower wall. Its attention was held on the shadows at the base of the citadel. Small animals sometimes emerged there, Leto knew. Dimly on the horizon beyond the hawk's path he could see a line of clouds. What a strange thing those were to the old Fremen in him. Clouds on Arrakis, and rain, and open water. Leto reminded the inner voices, Except for this last desert, my Sarir, the remodelling of Dune into verdant Arrakis has gone on remorselessly since the first days of my rule. The influence of geography on history went mostly unrecognised, Leto thought. Humans tended to look more at the influence of history on geography. Who owns this river passage, this verdant valley, this peninsula, this planet? None of us. Nayla was climbing once more, her gaze fixed upward on the stairs she must traverse. Leto's thoughts locked on her. In many ways she is the most useful assistant I have ever had. I am her god. She worships me quite unquestioningly. Even when I playfully attack her faith, she takes this merrily as testing. She knows herself superior to any test. When he had sent her to the rebellion and had told her to obey Siona in all things, she did not question. When Nayla doubted, even when she framed her doubts in words, her own thoughts were enough to restore faith. Or had been enough. Recent messages, however, made it clear that Nayla required the Holy Presence to rebuild her inner strength. Leto recalled the first conversation with Nayla, the woman trembling in her eagerness to please. Even if Siona sends you to kill me, you must obey. She must never learn that you serve me. No one can kill you, Lord. But you must obey Siona. Of course, Lord. That is your command. You must obey her in all things. I will do it, Lord. Another test. Nayla does not question my tests. She treats them as flea bites. Her Lord commands. Nayla obeys. I must not let anything change that relationship. She would have made a superb shout-out in the old days, Leto thought. It was one of the reasons he had given Nayla a Chris knife. A real one, preserved from Sietch Tabor. It had belonged to one of Stilgar's wives. Nela wore it in a concealed sheath beneath her robes, more a talisman than a weapon. He had given it to her in the original ritual, a ceremony which had surprised him by evoking emotions he had thought forever buried. This is the tooth of Shai Hulud. He had extended the blade to her on his silvery-skinned hands. Take it, and you become part of both past and future. Soil it, and the past will give you no future. Nayla had accepted the blade, then the sheath. 
Draw the blood of a finger, Leto had commanded. Nayla had obeyed. Sheath the blade. Never remove it without drawing blood. Again, Nayla had obeyed. As Leto watched the three-dimensional image of Nayla's approach, his reflections on that old ceremony were touched by sadness. Unless fixed in the old Fremen way, the blade would grow increasingly brittle and useless. It would keep its Chris knife shape throughout Nayla's life, but little longer. I have thrown away a bit of the past. How sad it was that the Shadart of old had become today's fish speaker, and a true Chris knife had been used to bind a servant more strongly to her master. He knew that some thought his fish speakers were really priestesses, Leto's answer to the Bene Gesserit. He creates another religion, the Bene Gesserit said. Nonsense, I have not created a religion. I am the religion. Nalo entered the tower sanctuary and stood three paces from Leto's cart, her gaze lowered in proper subservience. Still in his memories, Leto said, Look at me, woman. She obeyed. I have created a holy obscenity, he said. This religion built around my person disgusts me. Yes, Lord. Nayla's green eyes on the gilded cushions of her cheeks stared out at him without questioning, without comprehension, without the need of either response. If I sent her out to collect the stars, she would go and she would attempt it. She thinks I am testing her again. I do believe she could anger me, This damnable religion should end with me, Leto shouted. Why should I want to loose a religion upon my people? Religions wreck from within, empires and individuals alike, it's all the same. Yes, Lord. Religions create radicals and fanatics like you. Thank you, Lord. The short-lived pseudo-rage sank back out of sight into the depths of his memories. Nothing dented the hard surface of Naylor's faith. Topri has reported to me through Moneo, Leto said. Tell me about this, Topri. Topri is a worm. Isn't that what you call me when you're among the rebels? I obey my lord in everything. Touché. Topri is not worth cultivating, then? Leto asked. Siona assessed him correctly. He is clumsy. He says things which others will repeat, thus exposing his hand in the matter. Within seconds after Kobat began to speak, she had confirmation that Topri was a spy. Everyone agrees, even Monail, Leto thought. Topri is not a good spy. The agreement amused Leto. The petty machinations muddied water which remained completely transparent to him. The performers, however, still suited his designs. Siona does not suspect you, Leto asked. I am not clumsy. Do you know why I summoned you? To test my faith. Ah, Nela, how little you know of testing. I want your assessment of Siona. I want to see it on your face and see it in your movements and hear it in your voice, Leto said. Is she ready? The fish speakers need that one, Lord. Why do you risk losing her? Forcing the issue is the surest way of losing what I treasure most in her, Leto said. 
She must come to me with all of her strengths intact. Nayla lowered her gaze. As my lord commands. Later recognized the response. It was a Nayla reaction to whatever she failed to understand. Will she survive the test, Nayla? As my lord describes the test, Nayla lifted her gaze to Leto's face, shrugged. I do not know, lord. Certainly she is strong. She was the only one to survive the wolves. But she is ruled by hate. Quite naturally. Tell me, Nayla, what will she do with the things she stole from me? Did Topri not inform you about the books which they say contain your sacred words? Odd how she can capitalize words only with her voice, Leto thought. He spoke curtly. Yes, yes, the Ixians have a copy and soon the Guild and Sisterhood as well will be hard at work on them. What are those books, Lord? They are my words for my people. I want them to be read. What I want to know is what Siona has said about the citadel charts she took. She says there is a great horde of melange beneath your citadel, Lord, and the charts will reveal it. The charts will not reveal it. Will she tunnel? She seeks Ixian tools for that. Ix will not provide them. Is there such a horde of spice, Lord? Yes. There is a story about how your horde is defended, Lord, that Arrakis itself would be destroyed if anyone tried to steal your melange. Is it true? Yes. And that would shatter the Empire. Nothing would survive. Not Guild or Sisterhood, not Ix or Tleilaxu, not even the fish speakers. She shuddered. Then, I will not let Siona try to get your spice. Nela, I commanded you to obey Siona in everything. Is this how you serve me? Lord? She stood in fear of his anger, closer to a loss of faith than he had ever seen her. It was the crisis he had created, knowing how it must end. Slowly, Nayla relaxed. He could see the shape of her thought as though she had laid it out for him in illuminated words. The ultimate test. You will return to Siona and guard her life with your own, Leto said. That is the task I set for you and that you accepted. It is why you were chosen. It is why you carry a blade from Stilgar's household. Her right hand went to the Chris knife concealed beneath her robe. How sure it is, Blato thought, that a weapon can lock a person into a predictable pattern of behavior. He stared with fascination at Naylor's rigid body. Her eyes were empty of everything except adoration. The ultimate rhetorical despotism. And I despise it. Go then, he barked. Nayla turned and fled the holy presence. Is it worth this? Leto wondered. But Nayla had told him what he needed to know. Nayla had renewed her faith and revealed with accuracy the thing which Leto could not find in Siona's fading image. Nayla's instincts were to be trusted. Siona has reached that explosive moment which I require. The Duncans always think it odd that I choose women for combat forces, but my fish speakers are a temporary army in every sense. 
While they can be violent and vicious, women are profoundly different from men in their dedication to battle. The cradle of Genesis ultimately predisposes them to behavior more protective of life. They have proved to be the best keepers of the golden path. I reinforce this in my design for their training. They are set aside for a time from ordinary routines. I give them special sharings which they can look back upon with pleasure for the rest of their lives. They come of age in the company of their sisters in preparation for events more profound. What you share in such companionship always prepares you for greater things. The haze of nostalgia covers their days among their sisters, making those days into something different than they were. That's the way today changes history. All contemporaries do not inhabit the same time. The past is always changing, but few realize it. The Stolen Journals After sending word to the fish speakers, Leto descended to the crypt in the late evening. He found it best to begin the first interview with a new Duncan Idaho in a darkened room, where the gola could hear Leto describe himself before actually seeing the pre-worm body. There was a small side room carved in black stone off the central rotunda of the crypt which suited this requirement. The chamber was large enough to accommodate Leto on his cart, but the ceiling was low. Illumination came from hidden glow globes which he controlled. There was only the one door, but it was in two segments, one swinging wide to admit the royal cart, the other a small portal in human dimensions. Leto rolled his royal cart into the chamber, sealed the large portal, and opened the smaller one. He composed himself then for the ordeal. Boredom was an increasing problem. The pattern of the Tleilaxu golas had become boringly repetitious. Once Leto had sent word warning the Tleilaxu to send no more Duncans, but they had known they could disobey him in this thing. Sometimes I think they do it just to keep disobedience alive. The Tleilaxu relied on an important thing which they knew protected them in other matters. The presence of a Duncan pleases the Paul Atreides in me. As Leto had explained it to Moneo in the Majordomo's first days at the Citadel, the Duncans must come to me with much more than Tleilaxu preparation. You must see to it that my Huris gentle the Duncans and that the women answer some of his questions. Which questions may they answer, Lord? They know. Moneo had, of course, learned all about this procedure over the years. Leto heard Moneo's voice outside the darkened room, then the sound of the fish-speaker escort, and the hesitantly distinctive footsteps of the new Gola. Through that door, Moneo said, it will be dark inside, and we will close the door behind you. Stop just inside and wait for the Lord Leto to speak. Why will it be dark? The Duncan's voice was full of aggressive misgivings. He will explain. Duncan was thrust into the room and the door was sealed behind him. Leto knew what the gola saw. Only shadows among shadows, and blackness where not even the source of a voice could be fixed. As usual, Leto brought the Paul Muad'Dib voice into play. It pleases me to see you again, Duncan. I can't see you. 
Idaho was a warrior, and the warrior attacks. This reassured Leto that the Gola was a fully restored original. The morality play by which the Tleilaxu reawakened a Gola's pre-death memories always left some uncertainties in the Gola's minds. Some of the Duncans believed they had threatened a real Paul Muad'Dib. This one carried such illusions. I hear Paul's voice, but I can't see him, Idaho said. He didn't try to conceal the frustrations, let them all come out in his voice. Why was an Atreides playing this stupid game? Paul was truly dead in some long ago, and this was Leto, the carrier of Paul's resurrected memories, and the memories of many others, if the Tleilaxu stories were to be believed. You have been told that you are only the latest in a long line of duplicates, Leto said. I have none of those memories. Leto recognized hysteria in the Duncan, barely covered by the warrior bravado. The cursed Tleilaxu post-tank restoration tactics had reduced the usual mental chaos. This Duncan had arrived in a state of near shock, strongly suspecting he was insane. Leto knew that the most subtle powers of reassurance would be required now to soothe the poor fellow. This would be emotionally draining for both of them. There have been many changes, Duncan, Leto said. One thing, though, does not change. I am still Atreides. They say your body is... Yes, that has changed. The damned Glaylaxu. They tried to make me kill someone. I... Well, he looked like you. I suddenly remembered who I was, and there was this... Could that have been a Muad'Dib Gola? A face dancer mimic, I assure you. He looked and talked so much like... Are you sure? An actor... No more. Did he survive? Of course. That's how they wakened my memories. They explained the whole damned thing. Is it true? It's true, Duncan. I detest it, but I permit it for the pleasure of your company. The potential victims always survive, Plato thought. At least for the Duncans I see. There have been slips. The fake Paul's slain and the Duncans wasted but there are always more cells carefully preserved from the original. What about your body? Idaho demanded. Muad'Dib could be retired now. Later resumed his usual voice. I accepted the sand trout as my skin. They have been changing me ever since. Why? I will explain that in due course. The Tleilaxu said you look like a sandworm. What did my fish speakers say? They said you're God. Why do you call them fish speakers? An odd conceit. The first priestesses spoke to fish in their dreams. They learned valuable things that way. How do you know? I am those women, and everything that came before and after them. Leto heard the dry swallowing in Idaho's throat, then, I see why the darkness. You're giving me time to adjust. You always were quick, Duncan except when you were slow. How long have you been changing? More than thirty-five hundred years. Then what the Tleilaxu told me is true. They seldom dare to lie any more. That's a long time. Very long. The Tleilaxu have... copied me many times? Many. It's time you asked how many, Duncan. 
How many of me? I will let you see the records for yourself. And so it starts, Leto thought. This exchange always appeared to satisfy the Duncans, but there was no escaping the nature of the question, how many of me? The Duncans made no distinctions of the flesh, even though no mutual memories passed between golas of the same stock. I remember my death, Idaho said. Harkonnen blades, lots of them trying to get at you and Jessica. Leto restored the Muad'Dib voice for momentary play. I was there, Duncan. I'm a replacement, is that right? Idaho asked. That's right, Leto said. How did the other... me... I mean, how did he die? All flesh wears out, Duncan. It's in the records. Leto waited patiently, wondering how long it would be until the tamed history failed to satisfy this Duncan. What do you really look like? Idaho asked. What's this sandworm body that Leilaxu described? It will make sandworms of sorts some day. It's already far down the road of metamorphosis. What do you mean of sorts? It will have more ganglia. It will be aware. Can't we have some light? I'd like to see you. Leto commanded the floodlight. Brilliant illumination filled the room. The black walls and the lighting had been arranged to focus the illumination on Leto, every visible detail revealed. Idaho swept his gaze along the faceted, silvery-gray body, noted the beginnings of a sandworm's ribbed sections, the sinuous flexings, the small protuberances which had once been feet and legs, one of them somewhat shorter than the other. He brought his attention back to the well-defined arms and hands, and finally lifted his attention to the cowled face with its pink skin almost lost in the immensity, a ridiculous extrusion on such a body. Well, Duncan, Leto said, you were warned. Idaho gestured mutely toward the pre-worm body. Leto asked it for him. Why? Idaho nodded. I'm still Atreides, Duncan, and I assure you with all the honor of that name there were compelling reasons. What could possibly? You will learn in time. Idaho merely shook his head from side to side. It's not a pleasant revelation, Leto said. It requires that you learn other things first. Trust the word of an Atreides. Over the centuries, Leto had found that this invocation of Idaho's profound loyalties to all things Atreides dampened the immediate wellspring of personal questions. Once more, the formula worked. So I'm to serve the Atreides again, Idaho said. That sounds familiar. Is it? In many ways, old friend. Old to you, maybe, but not to me. How will I serve? Didn't my fish speakers tell you? They said I would command your elite guard, a force chosen from among them. I don't understand that. An army of women? I need a trusted companion who can command my guard. You object? Why women? There are behavioural differences between the sexes which make women extremely valuable in this role. You're not answering my question. You think them inadequate? Some of them looked pretty tough, but others were, uh, soft with you? Idaho blushed. Leto found this a charming reaction. The Duncans were among the few humans of these times who could do this. It was understandable. 
a product of the Duncans' early training, their sense of personal honour, very chivalrous. I don't see why you trust women to protect you, Idaho said. The blood slowly receded from his cheeks. He glared at Leto. But I have always trusted them as I trust you, with my life. What do we protect you from? Moneo and my fish speakers will bring you up to date. Idaho shifted from one foot to the other, his body swaying in a heartbeat rhythm. He stared around the small room, his eyes not focusing. With the abruptness of sudden decision, he returned his attention to Leto. What do I call you? It was the sign of acceptance for which Leto had been waiting. Will Lord Leto do? Yes, my lord. Idaho stared directly into Leto's Fremen blue eyes. Is it true what your fish speakers say? You have memories of... We're all here, Duncan. Leto spoke it in the voice of his paternal grandfather. Then, even the women are here, Duncan. It was the voice of Jessica, Leto's paternal grandmother. You knew them well, Leto said, and they know you. Idaho inhaled a slow, trembling breath. That will take a little getting used to. My own initial reaction exactly, Leto said. An explosion of laughter shook Idaho, and Leto thought it more than the weak jest deserved. But he remained silent. Presently, Idaho said, Your fish speakers were supposed to put me in a good mood, weren't they? Did they succeed? Idaho studied Leto's face, recognizing the distinctive Atreides features. Your Atreides always did know me too well, Idaho said. That's better, Leto said. You're beginning to accept that I'm not just one Atreides. I'm all of them. Paul said that once. So I did. As much as the original personality could be conveyed by tone and accent, it was Muad'Dib speaking. Idaho gulped, looked away at the room's door. You've taken something away from us, he said. I can feel it. Those women. Moneo. Us against you, Leto thought. The Duncans always choose the human side. Idaho returned his attention to Leto's face. What have you given us in exchange? Throughout the Empire, Leto's peace. And I can see that everyone's delightfully happy. That's why you need a personal guard. Leto smiled. My peace is actually enforced tranquility. Humans have a long history of reacting against tranquility. So you give us the fish speakers, and the hierarchy you can identify without any mistakes. A female army, Idaho muttered. The ultimate male enticing force, Leto said. Sex always was a way of subduing the aggressive male. Is that what they do? They prevent or ameliorate excesses which could lead to more painful violence. And you let them believe you're a god? I don't think I like this. The curse of holiness is as offensive to me as it is to you, Idaho frowned. It was not the response he had expected. What kind of game are you playing, Lord Leto? A very old one, but with new rules. Your rules. Would you rather I turned it all back to Chom and Lansrat and the great houses? The Tleilaxu say there is no more Lansrat. You don't allow any real self-rule. Well then, I could step aside for the Bene Gesserit, 
or maybe the Ixians, or the Tleilaxu. Would you like me to find another Baron Harkonnen to assume power over the Empire? Say the word, Duncan, and I'll abdicate. Under this avalanche of meanings, Idaho again shook his head from side to side. In the wrong hands, Plato said. Monolithic, centralized power is a dangerous and volatile instrument. And your hands are the right ones? I'm not certain about my hands, but I will tell you, Duncan, I'm certain about the hands of those who've gone before me. I know them. Idaho turned his back on Leto. What a fascinating, ultimately human gesture, Leto thought. Rejection coupled to acceptance of his vulnerability. Leto spoke to Idaho's back. You object quite rightly that I use people without their full knowledge and consent. Idaho turned his profile to Leto, then turned his head to look up at the cowled face, cocking his head forward a bit to peer into the all-blue eyes. He is studying me, Leto thought, but he has only the face to measure me by. The Atreides had taught their people to know the subtle signals of face and body, and Idaho was good at it, but the realization could be seen coming over him. He was beyond his depth here. Idaho cleared his throat. What's the worst thing you would ask of me? How like a Duncan, Leto thought. This one was a classic. Idaho would give his loyalty to an Atreides, to the guardian of his oath, but he sent a signal that he would not go beyond the personal limits of his own morality. You will be asked to guard me by whatever means necessary, and you will be asked to guard my secret. What secret? That I am vulnerable. That you're not God? Not in that ultimate sense. Your fish speakers talk about rebels. They exist. Why? They are young, and I have not convinced them that my way is better. It's very difficult convincing the young of anything. They are born knowing so much. I never before heard an Atreides sneer at the young that way. Perhaps it's because I'm so much older. Old, compounded by old. And my task gets more difficult with each passing generation. What is your task? You will come to understand it as we go along. What happens if I fail you? Do your women eliminate me? I try not to burden the fish speakers with guilt. But you would burden me. If you accept it. If I find that you're worse than the Harkonnens, I'll turn against you. How like a Duncan. They measure all evil against the Harkonnens. How little they know of evil. Leto said, The Baron ate whole planets, Duncan. What could be worse than that? Eating the Empire. I am pregnant with my Empire. I'll die giving birth to it. If I could believe that, Will you command my guard? Why me? You're the best. Dangerous work, I'd imagine. Is that how my predecessors died, doing your dangerous work? Some of them. I wish I had the memories of those others. You couldn't have and still be the original. I want to learn about them, though. You will. So the Atreides still need a sharp knife? We have jobs that only a Duncan Idaho can do. You say, we... Idaho swallowed, looked at the door, then at Leto's face. Leto spoke to him as Muad'Dib would have, but still in the Leto voice. 
When we climbed to Sech Tabor for the last time together, you had my loyalty then, and I had yours. Nothing of that has really changed. That was your father. That was me, Paul Muad'Dib's voice of command coming from Leto's bulk always shocked the Golas. Idaho whispered, All of you, in that one body. He broke off. Leto remained silent. This was the decision moment. Presently, Idaho permitted himself that devil-may-care grin for which he had been so well known. Then I will speak to the first, Leto, and to Paul, the ones who know me best. Use me well, for I did love you. Leto closed his eyes. Such words always distressed him. He knew it was love to which he was most vulnerable. Moneo, who had been listening, came to the rescue. He entered and said, Lord, shall I take Duncan Idaho to the guards he will command? Yes. The one word was all that Leto could manage. Moneo took Idaho's arm and led him away. Good Moneo, Leto thought. So good. He knows me so well. But I despair of his ever understanding me. I know the evil of my ancestors because I am those people. The balance is delicate in the extreme. I know that few of you who read my words have ever thought about your ancestors this way. It has not occurred to you that your ancestors were survivors and that the survival itself sometimes involved savage decisions, a kind of wanton brutality which civilized humankind works very hard to suppress. What price will you pay for that suppression? Will you accept your own extinction? The Stolen Journals As he dressed for his first morning of fish speaker command, Idaho tried to shake off a nightmare. It had awakened him twice, and both times he had gone out on the balcony to stare up at the stars, the dream still roaring in his head. Women weaponless women in black armor, rushing at him with a hoarse, mindless shouting of a mob, waving hands moist with red blood, and as they swarmed over him their mouths opened to display terrible fangs. In that moment he awoke. Morning light did little to dispel the effects of the nightmare. They had provided him with a room in the North Tower. The balcony looked out over a vista of dunes to a distant cliff with what appeared to be a mud-hut village at its base. Idaho buttoned his tunic as he stared at the scene. Why does Leto choose only women for his army? Several comely fish speakers had offered to spend the night with their new commander, but Idaho had rejected them. It was not like the Atreides to use sex as a persuader. He looked down at his clothing, a black uniform with golden piping, a red hawk at the left breast. That at least was familiar. No insignia of rank. They know your face, Moneo had said. Strange little man, Moneo. This thought brought Idaho up short. Reflection told him that Moneo was not little. Very controlled, yes, but no shorter than I am. Moneo appeared drawn into himself, though. Collected. Idaho glanced around his room, sybaritic in its attention to comfort. Soft cushions, 
appliances concealed behind panels of brown polished wood. The bath was an ornate display of pastel blue tiles, with a combination bath and shower in which at least six people could bathe at the same time. The whole place invited self-indulgence. These were quarters where you could let your senses indulge in remembered pleasures. Clever, Idaho whispered. A gentle tapping on his door was followed by a female voice saying, Commander, Moneo is here. Idaho glanced out at the sunburnt colours of the distant cliff. Commander, the voice was a bit louder. Come in, Idaho called. Moneo entered, closing the door behind him. He wore tunic and trousers of chalk white, which forced the eyes to concentrate on his face. Moneo glanced once around the room. So this is where they put you, those damned women. I suppose they thought they were being kind, but they ought to know better. How do you know what I like? Idaho demanded. Even as he asked it, he realized it was a foolish question. I'm not the first Duncan Idaho that Moneo has seen. Moneo merely smiled and shrugged. I did not mean to offend you, Commander. Will you keep these quarters, then? I like the view. But not the furnishings. It was a statement. Those can be changed, Idaho said. I will see to it. I suppose you're here to explain my duties. As much as I can. I know how strange everything must appear to you at first. This civilization is profoundly different from the one you knew. I can see that. How did my predecessor die? Moneo shrugged. It appeared to be his standard gesture, but there was nothing self-effacing about it. He was not fast enough to escape the consequences of a decision he had made, Moneo said. Be specific. Moneo sighed. The Duncans were always like this. So demanding. The rebellion killed him. Do you wish the details? Would they be useful to me? No. I want a complete briefing on this rebellion today. But first, why are there no men in Leto's army? He has you. You know what I mean. He has a curious theory about armies. I have discussed it with him on many occasions. But do you not want to breakfast before I explain? Can't we have both at the same time? Moneo turned toward the door and called out a single word. No. The effect was immediate and fascinating to Idaho. A troop of young fish speakers swarmed into the room. Two of them took a folding table and chairs from behind a panel and placed them on the balcony. Others set the table for two people. More brought food, fresh fruit, hot rolls, and a steaming drink which smelled faintly of spice and caffeine. It was all done with a swift and silent efficiency which spoke of long practice. They left as they had come, without a word. Idaho found himself seated across from Moneo at the table within a minute after the start of this curious performance. Every morning like that? Idaho asked. Only if you wish it. Idaho sampled the drink. Melange coffee. He recognized the fruit. The soft Caladan melon called Paradan. My favorite. You know me pretty well, Idaho said. Moneo smiled. We've had some practice. Now, about your question. And Leto's curious theory. Yes. He says that the all-male army was too dangerous to its civilian support base. That's crazy. Without the army, there would have been no... 
I know the argument, but he says that the male army was a survival of the screening function delegated to the non-breeding males in the prehistoric pack. He says it was a curiously consistent fact that it was always the older males who sent the younger males into battle. What does that mean, screening function? The ones who were always out on the dangerous perimeter, protecting the core of breeding males, females, and the young. The ones who first encountered the predator. How is that dangerous to the civilians? Idaho took a bite of the melon, found it ripened perfectly. The Lord Leto says that when it was denied an external enemy, the all-male army always turned against its own population. Always. Contending for the females? Perhaps. He obviously does not believe, however, that it was that simple. I don't find this a curious theory. You have not heard all of it. There's more? Oh, yes. He says that the all-male army has a strong tendency toward homosexual activities. Idaho glared across the table at Moneo. I never... Of course not. He is speaking about sublimation, about deflected energies and all the rest of it. The rest of what? Idaho was prickly with anger at what he saw as an attack on his male self-image. Adolescent attitudes, just boys together, jokes designed purely to cause pain, loyalty only to your pack mates, things of that nature. Idaho spoke coldly. What's your opinion? I remind myself, Moneo turned and spoke while looking out at the view, of something which he has said and which I am sure is true. He is every soldier in human history. He offered to parade for me a series of examples, famous military figures who were frozen in adolescence. I declined the offer. I have read my history with care and have recognized this characteristic for myself. Moneo turned and looked directly into Idaho's eyes. Think about it, Commander. Idaho prided himself on self-honesty, and this hit him. Cults of youth and adolescence preserved in the military. It had the ring of truth. There were examples in his own experience. Moneo nodded. The homosexual latent or otherwise, who maintains that condition for reasons which could be called purely psychological, tends to indulge in pain-causing behavior, seeking it for himself and inflicting it upon others. Lord Leto says this goes back to the testing behavior in the prehistoric pack. You believe him? I do. Idaho took a bite of the melon. It had lost its sweet savor. He swallowed and put down his spoon. I will have to think about this, Idaho said. Of course. You're not eating, Idaho said. I was up before dawn and ate then. Moneo gestured at his plate. The women continually try to tempt me. Do they ever succeed? Occasionally. You're right. I find his theory curious. Is there more to it? Oh... He says that when it breaks out of the adolescent homosexual restraints, the male army is essentially rapist. Rape is often murderous, and that's not survival behavior. Idaho scowled. A tight smile flitted across Moneo's mouth. 
Lord Leto says that only Atreides' discipline and moral restraints prevented some of the worst excesses in your times. A deep sigh shook Idaho. Moneo sat back, thinking of a thing the god-emperor had once said. No matter how much we ask after the truth, self-awareness is often unpleasant. We do not feel kindly toward the truth-sayer. Those damned Atreides, Idaho said. I am Atreides, Moneo said. What? Idaho was shocked. His breeding program, Moneo said. I'm sure that Lelaxu mentioned it. I am directly descended from the mating of his sister and Harkaladar. Idaho leaned toward him. Don't tell me, Atreides. How are women better soldiers than men? They find it easier to mature. Idaho shook his head in bewilderment. They have a compelling physical way of moving from adolescence into maturity, Moneo said. As Lord Leto says, carry a baby in you for nine months, and that changes you. Idaho sat back. What does he know about it? Moneo merely stared at him until Idaho recalled the multitude in Leto, both male and female. The realization plunged over Idaho. Moneo saw it, recalling a comment of the god-emperor's. Your words brand him with a look you want him to have. As the silence continued, Moneo cleared his throat. Presently, he said, The immensity of the Lord Leto's memories has been known to stop my tongue, too. Is he being honest with us? Idaho asked. I believe him. But he does so many... I mean, take this breeding program. How long has that been going on? From the very first. From the day he took it away from the Bene Gesserit. What does he want from it? I wish I knew. But you're... An Atreides and his chief aide, yes. You haven't convinced me that a female army is best. They continue the species. At last, Idaho's frustration and anger had an object. Is that what I was doing with them that first night? Breeding? Possibly. The fish speakers take no precautions against pregnancy. Damn him! I'm not some animal he can move from stall to stall like a... Like a... Like a stud? Yes. But the Lord later refuses to follow the Tlilaxu pattern of gene surgery and artificial insemination. What have the Tlilaxu got to- They are the object lesson. Even I can see that. Their face dancers are mules, closer to a colony organism than to human. Those others of- Me. Were any of them his studs? Some. You have descendants. Who? I am one. Idaho stared into Moneo's eyes, lost suddenly in a tangle of relationships. Idaho found the relationships impossible to understand. Moneo obviously was so much older than... But I am... Which of them was truly the older? Which the ancestor, and which the descendant? I sometimes have trouble with this myself, Moneo said. If it helps, the Lord Leto assures me that you are not my descendant, not in any ordinary sense. However... You may well father some of my descendants. Idaho shook his head from side to side. Sometimes I think only the god-emperor himself can understand these things, Moneo said.
That's another thing, Idaho said. This God business. The Lord later says he has created a holy obscenity. This was not the response Idaho had expected. What did I expect? A defense of the Lord Leto? Holy obscenity, Moneo repeated. The words rolled from his tongue with a strange sense of gloating in them. Idaho focused a probing stare on Moneo. He hates his god-emperor. No, he fears him. But don't we always hate what we fear? Why do you believe in him? Idaho demanded. You ask if I shared in the popular religion? No. Does he? I think so. Why? Why do you think so? Because he says he wishes to create no more face dancers. He insists that his human stock, once it has been paired, breeds in the way it has always bred. What the hell does that have to do with it? You ask me what he believes in. I think he believes in chance. I think that's his god. That's superstition, considering the circumstances of the Empire. A very daring superstition. Idaho glared at Moneo. You damned Atreides, he muttered. You'll dare anything. Moneo noted that there was dislike mixed with admiration in Idaho's voice. The Duncans always begin that way. What is the most profound difference between us? Between you and me? You already know it. It's these ancestral memories. Mine come at me in the full glare of awareness. Yours work from your blind side. Some call it instinct or fate. The memories apply their leverages to each of us, on what we think and what we do. You think you are immune to such influences. I am Galileo. I stand here and tell you, yet it moves. That which moves can exert its force in ways no mortal power ever before dared stem. I am here to dare this. The Stolen Journals When she was a child, she watched me remember. When she thought I was not aware, Siona watched me like the desert hawk which circles above the lair of its prey. You yourself mentioned it. Leto rolled his body a quarter turn on his cart while speaking. This brought his cowled face close to that of Moneo, who trotted beside the cart. It was barely dawn on the desert road which followed the high artificial ridge from the citadel in Sarir to the festival city. The road from the desert ran laser beam straight until it reached this point where it curved widely and dipped into terraced canyons before crossing the Idaho River. The air was full of thick mists from the river tumbling in its distant clamour, but later had opened the bubble cover which sealed the front of his cart. The moisture made his worm self tingle with vague distress but there was the smell of sweet desert growth in the mist, and his human nostrils savoured it. He ordered the cortege to stop. Why are we stopping, Lord? Moneo asked. Leto did not answer. The cart creaked as he heaved his bulk into an arching curve which lifted his head and allowed him to look across the forbidden forest to the Kynes Sea, glistening silver far off to the right. He turned left, and there were the remains of the shield wall, 
a sinuous low shadow in the morning light. The ridge here had been raised almost 2,000 metres to enclose the Sarrier and limit airborne moisture there. From his vantage, Leto could see the distant notch where he had caused the festival city of On to be built. It is a whim which stops me, Leto said. Shouldn't we cross the bridge before resting? Moneo asked. I am not resting. Leto stared ahead. After a series of switchbacks, which were visible from here only as a twisting shadow, the high road crossed the river on a fairy bridge, climbed to a buffer ridge and then sloped down to the city, which presented a vista of glittering spires at this distance. The Duncan acts subdued, Leto said. Have you had your long conversation with him? Precisely as you required, Lord. Well, it's only been four days, Leto said. They often take longer to recover. He has been busy with your guard, Lord. They were out until late again last night. The Duncans do not like to walk in the open. They think about the things which could be used to attack us. I know, Lord. Leto turned and looked squarely at Moneo. The major-domo wore a green cloak over his white uniform. He stood beside the open bubble cover, exactly in the place where duty required that he station himself on these excursions. You are very dutiful, Moneo, Leto said. Thank you, Lord. Guards and courtiers kept themselves at a respectful distance well behind the cart. Most of them were trying to avoid even the appearance of eavesdropping on Leto and Moneo. Not so Idaho. He had positioned some of the fish-speaker guards at both sides of the royal road, spreading them out. Now he stood staring at the cart. Idaho wore a black uniform with white piping, a gift of the fish-speakers, Moneo had said. They like this one very much. He is good at what he does. What does he do, Moneo? Why, guard your person, Lord. The women of the guard all wore skin-tight green uniforms, each with a red Atreides hawk at the left breast. They watch him very closely, Leto said. Yes, he is teaching them hand signals. He says it's the Atreides way. That is certainly correct. I wonder why the previous one didn't do that. Lord, if you don't know... I jest, Moneo. The previous Duncan did not feel threatened until it was too late. Has this one accepted our explanations? So I'm told, Lord. He is well started in your service. Why is he carrying only that knife in the belt sheath? The women have convinced him that only the specially trained among them should have lays guns. Your caution is groundless, Moneo. Tell the women that it's much too early for us to begin fearing this one. As my lord commands. It was obvious to Leto that his new guard commander did not enjoy the presence of the courtiers. He stood well away from them. Most of the courtiers, he had been told, were civil functionaries. They were decked out in their brightest and finest for this day when they could parade themselves in their full power and in the presence of the god-emperor. Leto could see how foolish the courtiers must appear to Idaho. But Leto could remember far more foolish finery, and he thought that this day's display might be an improvement. Have you introduced him to Siona? Leto asked. At the mention of Siona, Moneo's brows congealed into a scowl. Calm yourself, Leto said. Even when she spied on me, I cherished her. 
I sense danger in her, Lord. I think sometimes she sees into my most secret thoughts. The wise child knows her father. I do not joke, Lord. Yes, I can see that. Have you noticed that the Duncan grows impatient? They scouted the road almost to the bridge, Moneo said. What did they find? The same thing I found. A new museum, Fremen. Another petition? Do not be angry, Lord. Once more, Leto peered ahead. This necessary exposure to the open air, the long and stately journey with all of its ritual requirements to reassure the fish speakers, all of it troubled Leto. And now, another petition. Idaho strode forward to stop directly behind Moneo. There was a sense of menace about Idaho's movements. Surely not this soon, Leto thought. Why are we stopping, my lord? Idaho asked. I often stop here, Leto said. It was true. He turned and looked beyond the fairy bridge. The way twisted downward out of the canyon heights into the forbidden forest, and thence through fields beside the river. Leto had often stopped here to watch the sunrise. There was something about this morning, though the sun striking across the familiar vista, something which stirred old memories. The fields of the royal plantations reached outward beyond the forest, and when the sun lifted over the far curve of land, it beamed glowing gold across grain rippling in the fields. The grain reminded Leto of sand, of sweeping dunes which once had marched across this very ground. And we'll march once more. The grain was not quite the bright, silica amber of his remembered desert. Leto looked back at the cliff-enclosed distances of his sarir, his sanctuary of the past. The colours were distinctly different. All the same, when he looked once more toward Festival City, he felt an ache where his many hearts once more were reforming in their slow transformation towards something profoundly alien. What is it about this morning that makes me think about my lost humanity? Leto wondered. Of all the royal party looking at that familiar scene of grain fields and forest, Leto knew that only he still thought of the lush landscape as the Bar Bellamar, the ocean without water. Duncan, Leto said, you see that out there toward the city? That was the Tanzaruft. The land of terror? Idaho revealed his surprise in the quick look toward On and the sudden return of his gaze to Leto. The Bar Bellama, Leto said. It has been concealed under a carpet of plants for more than three thousand years. Of all who live on Arrakis today, only the two of us ever saw the desert original. Idaho looked toward On. Where is the shield war? he asked. Mwadib's gap is right there right where we built the city. That line of little hills? That was the shield wall? What happened to it? You are standing on it. Idaho looked up at Leto, then down to the roadway and all around. Lord, shall we proceed? Moneo asked. Moneo, with that clock ticking in his breast, is the goad to duty, Leto thought. There were important visitors to see and other vital matters. Time pressed him and he did not like it when his god-emperor talked about old times with the Duncans. Leto was suddenly aware that he had paused here far longer than ever before. The courtiers and guards were cold after their run in the morning air. 
Some had chosen their clothing more for show than protection. Then again, Leto thought, perhaps show is a form of protection. There were dunes, Idaho said. Stretching for thousands of kilometers, Leto agreed. Moneo's thoughts churned. He was familiar with the god emperor's reflexive mood, but there was a sense of sadness in it this day. Perhaps the recent death of a Duncan. Leto sometimes let important information drop when he was sad. You never questioned the god emperor's moods or his whims, but sometimes they could be employed. Siona will have to be warned, Moneo thought, if the young fool will listen to me. She was far more of a rebel than he had been. Far more. Leto had tamed his Moneo, sensitized him to the golden path and the rightful duties for which he had been bred, but methods used on a Moneo would not work with Siona. In his observation of this, Moneo had learned things about his own training which he had never before suspected. I don't see any identifiable landmarks, Idaho was saying. Right over there, Leto said, pointing, where the forest ends. That was the way to splintered rock. Moneo shut out their voices. It was ultimate fascination with the god-emperor which finally brought me to heel. Leto never ceased to surprise and amaze. He could not be reliably predicted. Moneo glanced at the god-emperor's profile. What has he become? As part of his early duties, Moneo had studied the Citadel's private records, the historical accounts of Leto's transformation. But symbiosis with sand trout remained a mystery which even Leto's own words could not dispel. If the accounts were to be believed, the sand trout's skin made his body almost invulnerable to time and violence. The great body's ribbed core could even absorb laser gun bursts. First the sand trout, then the worm, all part of the great cycle which had produced Melange. That cycle lay within the god-emperor, marking time. Let us proceed, Leto said. Moneo realized that he had missed something. He came out of his reverie and looked at a smiling Duncan Idaho. We used to call that wool-gathering, Leto said. I'm sorry, Lord. Moneo said, I was, you were wool-gathering, but it's all right. His moods improved, Moneo thought. I can thank the Duncan for that, I think. Leto adjusted his position on the cart, closed part of the bubble cover and left only his head free. The cart crunched over small rocks on the roadbed as Leto activated it. Idaho took up position at Moneo's shoulder and trotted along beside him. There are floater bulbs under that cart, but he uses the wheels, Idaho said. Why is that? It pleases the Lord Leto to use wheels instead of anti-gravity. What makes the thing go? How does he steer it? Have you asked him? I haven't had the opportunity. The royal cart is of Ixian manufacture. What does that mean? It is said that the Lord Leto activates his cart and steers it just by thinking in a particular way. Don't you know? Questions such as this do not please him. Even to his intimates, Moneo thought, the god-emperor remains a mystery. Moneo, Leto called. You had better return to your guards, Moneo said, gesturing for Idaho to fall back. I'd rather be out in front with them, Idaho said. 
The Lord Leto does not want that. Now go back. Moneo hurried to place himself close beside Leto's face, noting that Idaho was falling back through the courtiers to the rear ring of guards. Leto looked down at Moneo. I thought you handled that very well, Moneo. Thank you, Lord. Do you know why the Duncan wants to be out in front? Certainly, Lord. It's where the guard should be. And this one senses danger. I don't understand you, Lord. I cannot understand why you do these things. That's true, Moneo. The female sense of sharing originated as familial sharing, care of the young, the gathering and preparation of food, sharing joys, love, and sorrows. Funeral lamentation originated with women. Religion began as a female monopoly, wrested from them only after its social power became too dominant. Women were the first medical researchers and practitioners. There has never been any clear balance between the sexes, because power goes with certain roles as it certainly goes with knowledge. The Stolen Journals For the Reverend Mother Tertius Eileen Antiac, this had been a disastrous morning. She had arrived on Arrakis with her fellow truthsayer Marcus Claire Lucial, both of them coming down with their official party less than three hours ago aboard the first shuttle from the Guild Highliner hanging in stationary orbit. First they had been assigned rooms at the absolute edge of the Festival City's embassy quarter. The rooms were small and not quite clean. Any farther out and we'd be camping in the slums, Lucial had said. Next they had been denied communications facilities. All of the screens remained blank, no matter how many switches were toggled and palm dials turned. Antiac had addressed herself sharply to the heavyset officer commanding the fish-speaker escort, a glowering woman with low brows and the muscles of a manual labourer. I wish to complain to your commander. No complaints allowed at festival time, the Amazon had rasped. Antiac had glared at the officer, a look which in Antiac's old and seamed face had been known to make even her fellow reverend mothers hesitate. The Amazon had merely smiled and said, I have a message. I have to tell you that your audience with the God Emperor has been moved to the last position. Most of the Bene Gesserit party had heard this, and even the lowliest attendant postulate had recognized the significance. All of the spice allotments would be fixed or the gods protect us, even gone by that time. We were to have been third, Antiac had said, her voice remarkably mild in the circumstances. It is the god emperor's command. Antiac knew that tone in a fish speaker. To defy it risked violence. A morning of disasters and now this. Antiac occupied a low stool against one wall of a tiny, almost empty room near the centre of their inadequate quarters. Beside her there was a low pallet, no more than you would assign to an acolyte. The walls were a pale, scabrous green, and there was but one ageing glow-globe so defective it could not be tuned out of the yellow. The room gave signs of having been a storage chamber. It smelled musty, dents and scratches marred the black plastic of the floor. Smoothing her black arbor robe across her knees, Antiac leaned close to the postulate messenger who knelt, head bowed, directly in front of the Reverend Mother. 
The messenger was a doe-eyed blonde creature with the perspiration of fear and excitement on her face and neck. She wore a dusty tan robe with the dirt of the streets along its hem. You are certain, absolutely certain, Antiac spoke softly to soothe the poor girl, who still trembled with the gravity of her message. Yes, Reverend Mother, she kept her gaze lowered. Go through it once more, Antiac said, and she thought, I'm sparring for time. I heard her correctly. The messenger lifted her gaze to Antioch and looked directly into the totally blue eyes as all the postulates and acolytes were taught to do. As I was commanded, I made contact with the Ixians at their embassy and presented your greetings. I then inquired if they had any messages for me to bring back. Yes, yes, girl, I know. Get to the heart of it. The messenger gulped. The spokesman identified himself as Otwi Yaki temporary superior in the embassy and assistant to the former ambassador. You're sure he was not a face-dancer substitute? None of the signs were there, Reverend Mother. Very well. We know this, Yake. You may continue. Yake said they were awaiting the arrival of the new Hui Nori, the new ambassador, yes. She's due here today. The messenger wet her lips with her tongue. Antiac made a mental note to return this poor creature to a more elementary training schedule. Messengers should have better self-control, although some allowance had to be made for the seriousness of this message. He then asked me to wait, the messenger said. He left the room and returned shortly with a Tleilaxu, a face dancer, I'm sure of it. There were the certain signs of the, I'm sure you're correct, girl, Antiac said. Now get to the... Antioch broke off as Lucial entered. What's this I hear about messages from the Ixians and Tleilaxu? Lucial asked. The girls are repeating it now, Antioch said. Why wasn't I summoned? Antioch looked up at her fellow truth-sayer, thinking that Lucial might be one of the finest practitioners of the art, but she remained too conscious of rank. Lucial was young, however, with the sensuous oval features of the Jessica type, and those genes tended to carry a headstrong nature. Antiac spoke softly. Your acolyte said you were meditating. Lucial nodded, sat down on the pallet and spoke to the messenger. Continue. The face dancer said he had a message for the reverend mothers. He used the plural, the messenger said. He knew there were two of us this time. Antioch said. Everyone knows it, Lucial said. Antioch returned her full attention to the messenger. Would you enter memory trance now, girl, and give us the face dancer's words verbatim? The messenger nodded, sat back onto her heels and clasped her hands in her lap. She took three deep breaths, closed her eyes, and let her shoulders sag. When she spoke, her voice had a high-pitched nasal twang. Tell the reverend mothers that by tonight the empire will be rid of its god-emperor. We will strike him today before he reaches on. We cannot fail. A deep breath shook the messenger. Her eyes opened and she looked up at Antioch. The Ixian Yake told me to hurry back with this message. He then touched the back of my left hand in that particular way, further convincing me that he was not. Yake is one of ours, Antioch said. Tell Lucial the message of the fingers. 
The messenger looked at Lucille. We have been invaded by face dancers and cannot move. As Lucille started and began to rise from the pallet, Antiac said, I already have taken the appropriate steps to guard our doors. Antiac looked at the messenger. You may go now, girl. You have been adequate to your task. Yes, Reverend Mother. The messenger lifted her lithe body with a certain amount of grace, but there was no doubt in her movements that she knew the import of Antiac's words. Adequate was not well done. When the messenger had gone, Lucial said, She should have made some excuse to study the embassy and find out how many of the Ixians have been replaced. I think not, Antiac said. In that respect she performed well. No, but it would have been better had she found a way to get a more detailed report from Yake. I fear we have lost him. The reason that Leilaxu sent us that message is obvious, of course, Luceal said. They are really going to attack him, Antiac said. Naturally, it's what the fools would do. But I address myself to why they sent the message to us. Antiac nodded. They think we now have no choice except to join them. And if we try to warn the Lord Leto that Leilaxu will learn our messengers and their contacts. What if the Tleilaxu succeed? Antiac asked. Not likely. We do not know their actual plan, only its general timing. What if this girl, this Siona, has a part in it? Lucille asked. I have asked myself that same question. Have you heard the full report from the Guild? Only the summary? Is that enough? Yes, with high probability. You should be careful with terms such as high probability, Lucille said. We don't want anyone thinking you're a mentat. Antiac's tone was dry. I presume you will not give me away. Do you think the Guild is right about this, Siona? Lucille asked. I do not have enough information. If they are right, she is something extraordinary. As the Lord Leto's father was extraordinary? A Guild navigator could conceal himself from the oracular eye of the Lord Leto's father but not from the Lord Leto. I have read the full guild report with care. She does not so much conceal herself and the actions around her as, well, she fades, they said. She fades from their sight. She alone, Antiac said. And from the sight of the Lord Leto as well? They do not know. Do we dare make contact with her? Do we dare not? Antiac asked. This all may be moot if the Tleilaxu... Antiac, we should at least make the attempt to warn him. We have no communications devices, and there now are fish speaker guards at the door. They permit our people to enter, but not to leave. Should we speak to one of them? I have thought about that. We can always say we feared they were face-dancer substitutes. Guards at the door, Lucille muttered. Is it possible that he knows? Anything is possible. With a lord later, that's the only thing you can say for sure, Lucial said. Antiac permitted herself a small sigh as she lifted herself from the stool. How I long for the old days when we had all of the spice we could ever need. Ever was just another illusion, Lucial said. I hope we have learned our lesson well, no matter how the Tleilaxu make out today. They will do it clumsily, whatever the outcome, Antiac grumbled. Gods, there are no good assassins to be found any more. 
There are always the Gola Idahos, Luceal said. What did you say? Antiax stared at her companion. There are always... Yes! The Golas are too slow in the body, Luceal said, but not in the head. What are you thinking? Is it possible that the Tleilaxu... No, not even they could be that. An Idaho face dancer? Luceal whispered. Antiac nodded mutely. Put it out of your mind, Luceal said. They could not be that stupid. That's a dangerous judgment to make about Trelaxu, Antiac said. We must prepare ourselves for the worst. Get one of those fish speaker guards in here. Unceasing warfare gives rise to its own social conditions which have been similar in all epochs. People enter a permanent state of alertness to ward off attacks. You see the absolute rule of the autocrat. All new things become dangerous frontier districts, new planets, new economic areas to exploit, new ideas or new devices, visitors, everything suspect. Feudalism takes firm hold, sometimes disguised as a politburo or similar structure, but always present. Hereditary succession follows the lines of power. The blood of the powerful dominates. The vice-regents of heaven or their equivalent apportion the wealth. And they know they must control inheritance or slowly let the power melt away. Now. Do you understand Leto's peace? The Stolen Journals Have the Bene Gesserit been informed of the new schedule? Leto asked. His entourage had entered the first shallow cut which would wind into switchbacks at the approach to the bridge across the Idaho River. The sun stood at the morning's first quarter and a few courtiers were shedding cloaks. Idaho walked with a small troop of fish speakers at the left flank, his uniform beginning to show traces of dust and perspiration. Walking and trotting at the speed of a royal peregrination was hard work. Moneo stumbled and caught himself. They have been informed, Lord. The change of schedule had not been easy, but Moneo had learned to expect erratic shifts of direction at festival time. He kept contingency plans at the ready. Are they still petitioning for a permanent embassy on Arrakis? Leto asked. Yes, Lord. I gave them the usual answer. A simple no should suffice, Leto said. They no longer need to be reminded that I abhor their religious pretensions. Yes, Lord. Moneo held himself to just within the prescribed distance beside Leto's cart. The worm was very much present this morning, the bodily signs quite apparent to Moneo's eyes. No doubt it was the moisture in the air. That always seemed to bring out the worm. Religion always leads to rhetorical despotism, Leto said. Before the Bene Gesserit, the Jesuits were the best at it. Jesuits, Lord? Surely you've met them in your histories? I'm not certain, Lord. When were they? No matter. You learn enough about rhetorical despotism from a study of the Bene Gesserit. Of course, they do not begin by deluding themselves with it. The Reverend Mothers are in for a bad time, Moneo told himself. He's going to preach at them. They detest that. This could cause serious trouble. What was their reaction? Leto asked. I'm told they were disappointed but did not press the matter. 
and Moneo thought, I'd best prepare them for more disappointment, and they'll have to be kept away from the delegations of Ix and Leilaxu. Moneo shook his head. This could lead to some very nasty plotting. The Duncan had better be warned. It leads to self-fulfilling prophecy and justifications for all manner of obscenities, Leto said. This rhetorical despotism, Lord? Yes. It shields evil behind walls of self-righteousness which are proof against all arguments against the evil. Moneo kept a wary eye on Leto's body, noting the way the hands twisted, almost a random movement, the twitching of the great ribbed segments. What will I do if the worm comes out of him here? Perspiration broke out on Moneo's forehead. It feeds on deliberately twisted meanings to discredit opposition, Leto said. All of that, Lord? The Jesuits called that securing your power base. It leads directly to hypocrisy, which is always betrayed by the gap between actions and explanations. They never agree. I must study this more carefully, Lord. Ultimately, it rules by guilt, because hypocrisy brings on the witch hunt and the demand for scapegoats. Shocking, Lord. The cortege rounded a corner where the rock had been opened for a glimpse of the bridge in the distance. Moneo, are you paying close attention to me? Yes, Lord, indeed. I'm describing a tool of the religious power base. I recognize that, Lord. Then why are you so afraid? Talk of religious power always makes me uneasy, Lord. Because you and the fish speakers wield it in my name? Of course, Lord. Power bases are very dangerous because they attract people who are truly insane, people who seek power only for the sake of power, do you understand? Yes, Lord. That is why you so seldom grant petitions for appointments in your government. Excellent, Moneo. Thank you, Lord. In the shadow of every religion lurks a Torquemada, Leto said. You have never encountered that name. I know because I caused it to be expunged from all the records. Why was that, Lord? He was an obscenity. He made living torches out of people who disagreed with him. Moneo pitched his voice low. Like the historians who angered you, Lord. Do you question my actions, Moneo? No, Lord. Good. The historians died peacefully. Not a one felt the flames. Torquemada, however, delighted in commending to his god the agonized screams of his burning victims. How horrible, Lord! The cortege turned another corner with a view of the bridge. The span appeared to be no closer. Once more Moneo studied his god-emperor. The worm appeared no closer. Still too close, though. Moneo could feel the menace of that unpredictable presence, the holy presence which could kill without warning. Moneo shuddered. What had been the meaning of that strange sermon? Moneo knew that few had ever heard the god-emperor speak thus. It was a privilege and a burden. It was part of the price paid for Leto's peace. Generation after generation marched in their ordered way under the dictates of that peace. Only the citadel's inner circle knew all of the infrequent breaks in that peace, the incidents when fish speakers were sent out in anticipation of violence. Anticipation? Moneo glanced at the now silent Leto. The god-emperor's eyes were closed and a look of brooding had come over his face. That was another of the worm signs. A bad one. Moneo trembled. 
Did Leto anticipate even his own moments of wild violence? It was the anticipation of violence which sent tremors of awe and fear throughout the Empire. Leto knew where guards must be posted to put down a transitory uprising. He knew it before the event. Even thinking about such matters dried Moneo's mouth. There were times, Moneo believed, when the god-emperor could read any mind. Oh, Leto employed spies. An occasional shrouded figure passed by the fish speakers for the climb to Leto's tower eerie, or descended to the crypt. Spies, no doubt of it. But Moneo suspected they were used merely to confirm what Leto already knew. As though to confirm the fears in Moneo's mind, Leto said, Do not try to force an understanding of my ways, Moneo. Let understanding come of itself. I will try, Lord. No, do not try. Tell me instead if you have announced yet that there will be no changes in the spice allotments. Not yet, Lord. Delay the announcement. I am changing my mind. You know, of course, that there will be new offers of bribes. Moneo sighed. The amounts offered him in bribes had reached ridiculous heights. Leto, however, had appeared amused by the escalation. Draw them out, he had said earlier. See how high they will go. Make it appear that you can be bribed at last. Now, as they turned another corner with a view of the bridge, Leto asked, Has House Corino offered you a bribe? Yes, Lord. Do you know the myth which says that some day House Corino will be restored to its ancient powers? I have heard it, Lord. Have the Corino killed? It is a task for the Duncan. We will test him. So soon, Lord? It is still known that Melange can extend human life. Let it also be known that the spice can shorten life. As you command, Lord. Moneo knew this response in himself. It was the way he spoke when he could not voice a deep objection which he felt. He also knew that the Lord Leto understood this and was amused by it. The amusement rankled. Try not to be impatient with me, Moneo, Leto said. Moneo suppressed his feeling of bitterness. Bitterness brought peril. Rebels were bitter. The Duncans grew bitter before they died. Time has a different meaning for you than it has for me, Lord, Moneo said. I wish I could know that meaning. You could, but you will not. Moneo heard rebuke in the words and fell silent, turning his thoughts instead to the melange problems. It was not often that the Lord Leto spoke of the spice, and then it usually was to set allotments or withdraw them, to apportion rewards or send the fish speakers after some newly revealed hoard. The greatest remaining store of spice, Moneo knew, lay in some place known only to the god-emperor. In his first days of royal service, Moneo had been covered in a hood and led by the Lord Leto himself to that secret place along twisting passages which Moneo had sensed were underground. When I removed the hood, we were underground. The place had filled Monea with awe. Great bins of melange lay all around in a gigantic room cut from native rock and illuminated by glow-globes of an ancient design with arabesques of metal scrollwork upon them. The spice had glowed radiant blue in the dim silver light, and the smell, bitter cinnamon, unmistakable. There had been water dripping nearby. Their voices had echoed against the stone. One day all of this will be gone, the Lord Leto had said. Shocked, Moneo had asked, 
What will Guild and Bene Gesserit do then? What they are doing now, but more violently. Staring around the gigantic room with its enormous store of melange, Moneo could only think of things he knew were happening in the Empire at that moment. Bloody assassinations, piratical raids, spying and intrigue. The god-emperor kept a lid on the worst of it, but what remained was bad enough. The temptation, Moneo whispered. The temptation indeed. Will there be no more melange ever, lord? Some day I will go back into the sand. I will be the source of spice then. You, lord? And I will produce something just as wonderful. More sand trout. A hybrid and a prolific breeder. Trembling at this revelation, Moneo stared at the shadowy figure of the god-emperor who spoke of such marvels. The sand trout, Lord Leto said, will link themselves into large living bubbles to enclose this planet's water deep underground, just as it was in the dune times. All of the water, Lord? Most of it. Within three hundred years the sandworm once more will reign here. It will be a new kind of sandworm, I promise you. How is that, Lord? It will have animal awareness and a new cunning. The spice will be more dangerous to seek and far more perilous to keep. Monet had looked up at the cavern's rocky ceiling, his imagination probing through the rock to the surface. Everything desert again, Lord? Watercourses will fill with sand. Crops will be choked and killed. Trees will be covered by great moving dunes. The sand death will spread until... until a subtle signal is heard in the barren lands. What signal, Lord? The signal for the next cycle, the coming of the Maker, the coming of Shai Holud. Will that be you, Lord? Yes. The great sandworm of dune will rise once more from the deeps. This land will be again the domain of spice and worm. But what of the people, Lord? All of the people? Many will die. Food plants and the abundant growth of this land will be parched. Without nourishment, meat animals will die. Will everyone go hungry, Lord? Under nourishment and the old diseases will stalk the land, while only the hardiest survive, the hardiest and most brutal. Must that be, Lord? The alternatives are worse. Teach me about those alternatives, Lord. In time, you will know them. As he marched beside the god-emperor in the morning light of their peregrination to Ong, Moneo could only admit that he had indeed learned of alternative evils. To most of the empire's docile citizens, Moneo knew, the firm knowledge which he held in his own head lay concealed in the oral history in the myths and wild stories told by infrequent mad prophets who cropped up on one planet or another to gather a short-lived following. But I know what the fish-speakers do. And he knew also about evil men who sat at table, gorging themselves on rare delicacies while they watched the torture of fellow humans. Until the fish-speakers came and gore erased such scenes. I enjoyed the way your daughter watched me, Plato said. She was so unaware that I knew. Lord, I fear for her. She is my blood, my... Mine too, Moneo. Am I not Atreides? You would be better employed fearing for yourself. 
Monio cast a fearful glance along the god-emperor's body. The signs of the worm remained too near. Moneo glanced at the cortege following, then along the road ahead. They now were into the steep descent, the switchbacks short and cut into high walls in the man-piled rocks of the cliff barrier which girdled the Sarir. Siona does not offend me, Moneo. But she... Moneo! Here, in its mysterious capsule, is one of life's great secrets. To be surprised. To have a new thing occur. That is what I desire most. Lord, I... New. Isn't that a radiant, a wonderful word? If you say it, Lord. Leto was forced to remind himself then, Moneo is my creature. I created him. Your child is worth almost any price to me, Moneo. You decry her companions, but there may be one among them that she will love. Moneo cast an involuntary glance back at Duncan Idaho marching with the guards. Idaho was glaring ahead as though trying to probe each turn in the road before they reached it. He did not like this place, with its high walls all around from which attack might come. Idaho had sent scouts up there in the night, and Moneo knew that some of them still lurked on the heights. But there also were ravines ahead before the marchers reached the river, and there had not been enough guards to station them everywhere. We will depend upon the Fremen. Moneo had reassured him. Fremen? Idaho did not like what he heard about the Museum Fremen. At least they can sound an alarm against intruders, Moneo had said. You saw them and asked them to do that? Of course. Moneo had not dared to broach the subject of Siona to Idaho. Time enough for that later. But now the god-emperor had said a disturbing thing, had there been a change in plans. Moneo returned his attention to the god-emperor and lowered his voice. Love a companion, lord? But you said the Duncan... I said love, not breed with. Moneo trembled, thinking of how his own mating had been arranged, the wrenching away from... No, best not follow those memories. There had been affection, even a real love, later, but in the first days. You are wool-gathering again, Moneo. Forgive me, lord, but when you speak of love... You think I have no tender thoughts? It's not that, lord, but... You think I have no memories of love and breeding, then? The cart swerved toward Moneo, forcing him to dodge away, frightened by the glowering look on the Lord Leto's face. Lord, I beg you. This body may never have known such tenderness, but all of the memories are mine. Moneo could see the signs of the worm growing more dominant in the god-emperor's body, and there was no escaping recognition of this mood. I am in grave danger. We all are. Moneo grew aware of every sound around him, the creaking of the royal cart, the coughs and low conversation from the entourage, the feet on the roadway. There was an exhalation of cinnamon from the god-emperor. The air here between the enclosing rock walls still held its morning chill, and there was dampness from the river. Was it the moisture bringing out the worm? Listen to me, Moneo, as though your life depended on it. Yes, Lord, Moneo whispered, and he knew his life did depend on the care he took now, not only in listening, but in observing. Part of me dwells forever underground, without thought, Leto said. That part reacts. It does things without a care for knowing or logic. Moneo nodded, 
his attention glued on the god-emperor's face. Were the eyes about to glaze? I am forced to stand off and watch such things. Nothing more, Leto said. Such a reaction could cause your death. The choice is not mine. Do you hear? I hear you, lord, Monheo whispered. There is no such thing as choice in such an event. You accept it, merely accept it. You will never understand it or know it. What do you say to that? I fear the unknown, lord. But I don't fear it. Tell me why. Moneo had been expecting a crisis such as this, but now that it had come, he almost welcomed it. He knew that his life depended on his answer. He stared at his god-emperor, mind-racing. It is because of all your memories, lord. Yes. An incomplete answer, then. Moneo grasped at words. You see everything that we know, all of it as it once was, unknown. A surprise to you. A surprise must be merely something new for you to know. As he spoke, Moneo realized he had put a defensive question mark on something that should have been a bold statement. But the god emperor only smiled. Or such wisdom I grant you a boon, Moneo. What is your wish? Sudden relief only opened a path for other fears to emerge. Could I bring Siona back to the citadel? That will cause me to test her sooner. She must be separated from her companions, lord. Very well. My lord is gracious. I am selfish. The god-emperor turned away from Moneo then and fell silent. Looking along the segmented body, Moneo observed that the worm signs had subsided somewhat. This had turned out well after all. He thought then of the Fremen with their petition, and fear returned. That was a mistake. It will only arouse him again. Why did I say they could present their petition? The Fremen would be waiting up ahead, marshalled on this side of the river with their foolish papers waving in their hands. Moneo marched in silence, his apprehension increasing with each step. Over here sand blows, over there sand blows, over there a rich man waits, over here I wait. The Voice of Shai Hulud from the Oral History Sister Chenoway's account, found among her papers after her death. I obey both my tenets as a Bene Gesserit and the commands of the God-Emperor by withholding these words from my report without secreting them that they may be found when I am gone. For the Lord Leto said to me, You will return to your superiors with my message, but these words keep secret for now. I will visit my rage upon your sisterhood if you fail. As the Reverend Mother Siaxa warned me before I left, you must do nothing which will bring down his wrath upon us. While I ran beside the Lord Leto on that short peregrination of which I had spoken, I thought to ask him about his likeness to a reverend mother. I said, Lord, I know how it is that a reverend mother acquires the memories of her ancestors and of others. How was it with you? It was a design of our genetic history and the working of the spice. My twin sister Ganima and I were awakened in the womb, aroused before birth into the presence of our ancestral memories. Lord, my sisterhood calls that abomination. And rightly so, the Lord Leto said. The ancestral numbers can be overwhelming, and who knows before the event which force will command such a horde, good or evil. 
Lord, how did you overcome such a force? I did not overcome it, the Lord Leto said, but the persistence of the pharaonic model saved both Gani and me. Do you know that model, Sister Chenoa? We of the sisterhood are well coached in history, Lord. Yes, but you do not think of this as I do, the Lord Leto said. I speak of a disease of government which was caught by the Greeks who spread it to the Romans who distributed it so far and wide that it never has completely died out. Does my lord speak riddles? No riddles. I hate this thing, but it saved us. Gani and I formed powerful internal alliances with ancestors who followed the pharaonic model. They helped us form a mingled identity within that long dormant mob. I find this disturbing, lord and well you should. Why are you telling me this now, Lord? You have never answered one of us before in this manner, not that I know of. Because you listen well, Sister Chenoweth, because you will obey me, and because I will never see you again. The Lord later spoke those strange words to me, and then he asked, Why have you not inquired about what your sisterhood calls my insane tyranny? emboldened by this manner, I ventured to say, Lord, we know about some of your bloody executions. They trouble us. The Lord Leto then did a strange thing. He closed his eyes as we went, and he said, Because I know you have been trained to record accurately whatever words you hear, I will speak to you now, Sister Chenoa, as though you were a page in one of my journals. Preserve these words well, for I do not want them lost. I assure my sisterhood now that what follows, exactly as he spoke them, are the words uttered then by the Lord Leto. To my certain knowledge, when I am no longer consciously present here among you, when I am here only as a fearsome creature of the desert, many people will look back upon me as a tyrant. Fair enough, I have been tyrannical. A tyrant, not fully human, not insane, merely a tyrant. But even ordinary tyrants have motives and feelings beyond those usually assigned them by facile historians, and they will think of me as a great tyrant. Thus, my feelings and motives are a legacy I would preserve lest history distort them too much. History has a way of magnifying some characteristics while it discards others. People will try to understand me and to frame me in their words. They will seek truth but the truth always carries the ambiguity of the words used to express it. You will not understand me. The harder you try, the more remote I will become, until finally I vanish into eternal myth, a living God at last. That's it, you see. I am not a leader, nor even a guide. A God. Remember that. I am quite different from leaders and guides. Gods need take no responsibility for anything except Genesis. Gods accept everything, and thus accept nothing. Gods must be identifiable, yet remain anonymous. Gods do not need a spirit world. My spirits dwell within me, answerable to my slightest summons. I share with you, because it pleases me to do so, what I have learned about them and through them. They are my truth. Beware of the truth, gentle sister. Although much sought after, truth can be dangerous to the seeker. Myths and reassuring lies are much easier to find and believe. If you find a truth, even a temporary one, it can demand that you make painful changes. Conceal your truths within words. Natural ambiguity will protect you then. Words are much easier to absorb than are the sharp, delphic stabs of wordless portent. 
with words you can cry out in the chorus, Why didn't someone warn me? But I did warn you. I warned you by example, not with words. There are inevitably more than enough words. You record them in your marvellous memory even now, and someday my journals will be discovered. More words. I warn you that you read my words at your peril. The wordless movement of terrible events lies just below their surface. Be deaf. You do not need to hear, or hearing you do not need to remember. How soothing it is to forget, and how dangerous. Words such as mine have long been recognized for their mysterious power. There is a secret knowledge here which can be used to rule the forgetful. My truths are the substance of myths and lies which tyrants have always counted on to maneuver the masses for selfish design. You see, I share it all with you, even the greatest mystery of all time, the mystery by which I compose my life. I reveal it to you in words. The only past which endures lies wordlessly within you. The god-emperor fell silent then. I dared to ask, are those all of the words that my lord wishes me to preserve? Those are the words, the god-emperor said, and I thought he sounded tired, discouraged. He had the sound of someone uttering a last testament. I recalled that he had said he would never see me again, and I was fearful, but I praise my teachers because the fear did not emerge in my voice. Lord Leto, I said, these journals of which you speak, for whom are they written? For posterity after the span of millennia. I personalize those distant readers, Sister Chenoue. I think of them as distant cousins filled with family curiosities. They are intent on unraveling the dramas which only I can recount. They want to make the personal connections to their own lives. They want the meanings, the truth. But you warn us against truth, Lord, I said. Indeed, all of history is a malleable instrument in my hands. Oh, I have accumulated all of these pasts, and I possess every fact. Yet the facts are mine to use as I will, and even using them truthfully, I change them. What am I speaking to you now? What is a diary, a journal? Words. Again, the Lord later fell silent. I weighed the portent of what he had said, weighed it against the admonition of Reverend Mother Siaxa and against the things that the God-Emperor had uttered to me earlier. He said I was his messenger, and thus I felt that I was under his protection and might dare more than any other. Thus it was that I said, Lord Leto, you have said that you will not see me again. Does that mean you are about to die? I swear it here in my record of this event. The Lord Leto laughed. Then he said, No, gentle sister, it is you who will die. You will not live to be a reverend mother. Do not be saddened by this, for by your presence here today, by carrying my message back to the sisterhood, by preserving my secret words as well, you will achieve a far greater status. You become here an integral part of my myth. Our distant cousins will pray to you for intercession with me. Again the Lord Leto laughed, but it was a gentle laughter, and he smiled upon me warmly. I find it difficult to record here with that accuracy which I am enjoined to employ in every accounting such as this one, 
Yet in the moment that the Lord Leto spoke these terrible words to me, I felt a profound bond of friendship with him, as though some physical thing had leaped between us, tying us together in a way that words cannot fully describe. It was not until the instant of this experience that I understood what he had meant by the wordless truth. It happened, yet I cannot describe it. Archivist's Note Because of intervening events, the discovery of this private record is now little more than a footnote to history, interesting because it contains one of the earliest references to the god-emperor's secret journals. For those wishing to explore further into this account, a reference may be made to archive records, subheadings Chenoe, Holy Sister Quintinius Violet, Chenoe Report The, and Melange Rejection, Medical Aspects Of. Footnote. Sister Quintinius Violet Chenoe died in the fifty-third year of her sisterhood, the cause being ascribed to Melange incompatibility during her attempt to achieve the status of Reverend Mother. Our ancestor, Asur Nasser Atli, who was known as the cruelest of the cruel, seized the throne by slaying his own father and starting the reign of the sword. His conquests included the Urumia Lake region, which led him to Komajan and Kabur. His son received tribute from the Shuites, from Tyre, Sidon, Gable, and even from Jehu, son of Omri, whose very name struck terror into thousands. The conquests which began with Asur Nasser Apli carried arms into Media and later into Israel, Damascus, Edom, Arpad, Babylon, and Umlias. Does anyone remember these names and places now? I have given you enough clues. Try to name the planet. The Stolen Journals The air was stagnant, deep within the carved cut of the royal road, leading down to the flat approach to the bridge across the Idaho River. The road turned to the right out of the man-made immensity of rock and earth. Moneo, walking beside the royal cart, saw the paved ribbon leading across a narrow ridgetop to the lacery of plasteel, which was the bridge almost a kilometre distant. The river, still deep in a chasm, turned inward toward him on the right, and then ran straight through multi-stage cascades toward the far side of the forbidden forest, where the confining walls dropped down almost to the level of the water. There, at the outskirts of On, lay the orchards and gardens which helped to feed the city. Moneo, looking at the distant stretch of river visible from where he walked, saw that the canyon top was bathed in light, while the water still flowed in shadows broken only by the faint, silvery shimmering of the cascades. Straight ahead of him, the road to the bridge was brilliant in sunlight. The dark shadows of erosion gullies on both sides set off like arrows to indicate the correct path. The rising sun already had made the roadway hot. The air trembled above it, a warning of the day to come. We'll be safe into the city before the worst of the heat, Moneo thought. He trotted along in the weary patience which always overcame him at this point his gaze fixed forward in expectation of the petitioning museum Fremen. They would come up out of one of the erosion gullies, he knew, somewhere on this side of the bridge. That was the arrangement he had made with them, no way to stop them now. And the god-emperor still showed signs of the worm. 
Vallejo heard the Fremen before any of his party either saw or heard them. Listen, he said. Moneo came to full alert. Leto rolled his body on the cart, arched the front upward out of the bubble shield and peered ahead. Moneo knew this kind of thing well. The god-emperor's senses, much more acute than any of those around him, had detected a disturbance ahead. The Fremen were beginning to move up to the road. Moneo let himself fall back one pace and moved out to the limit of his dutiful position. He heard it himself then. There was the sound of gravel spilling. The first Fremen appeared, coming up out of gullies on both sides of the road, no more than a hundred metres ahead of the royal party. Duncan Idaho dashed forward and slowed himself to a trot beside Moneo. Are those the Fremen? Idaho asked. Yes. Moneo spoke with his attention on the god emperor, who had lowered his bulk back onto the cart. The museum Fremen assembled on the road, dropped their outer robes to reveal inner robes of red and purple. Moneo gasped. The Fremen were togged out as pilgrims, with some kind of black garment under the colourful robes. The ones in the foreground waved rolls of paper as the entire group began singing and dancing toward the royal entourage. A petition, Lord! the leaders cried. Hear our petition! Duncan! Leto cried. Clear them out! Fish speakers surged forward through the courtiers as their lord shouted. Idaho waved them forward and began running toward the approaching mob. The guards formed a phalanx, Idaho at the apex. Leto slammed closed the bubble cover of his cart, increased its speed and called out in an amplified roar, Clear away! Clear away! The museum Fremen, seeing the guards run forward, the cart picking up speed as Leto shouted, made as though to open a path up the centre of the road. Moneo forced to run to keep up with the cart, his attention momentarily on the running footsteps of the courtiers behind him saw the first unexpected change of programme by the Fremen. As one person, the chanting throng threw off the pilgrim cloaks to reveal black uniforms identical to those worn by Idaho. What are they doing? Moneo wondered. Even while he was asking himself this question, Moneo saw the flesh of the approaching faces melt away in face-dancer mockery, every face resolving into a likeness of Duncan Idaho. Face-dancers! someone screamed. Leto, too, had been distracted by the confusion of events, the sounds of many feet running on the road, the barked orders as fish speakers formed their phalanx. He had applied more speed to his cart, closing the distance between himself and the guards, beginning then to ring a warning bell and sound the cart's distortion klaxon. White noise blared across the scene, disorienting even some of the fish speakers who were conditioned to it. At that instant, the petitioners discarded their pilgrim cloaks and began the transformation manoeuvre, their faces flickering into likenesses of Duncan Idaho. Leto heard the scream, Face dancers! He identified its source, a consort clerk in royal accounting. Leto's initial reaction was amusement. Guards and face dancers collided. Screams and shouts replaced the petitioner's chanting. Leto recognized Tleilaxu battle commands. A thick knot of fish speakers formed around the black-clad figure of his Duncan. The guards were obeying Leto's oft-repeated instruction to protect their Gola commander. But how will they tell him from the others? Leto brought his cart almost to a stop. He could see fish speakers on the left swinging their stun clubs. Sunlight flashed from knives. 
Then came the buzzing hum of Lay's guns, a sound Leto's grandmother had once described as the most terrible in our universe. More hoarse shouts and screams erupted from the vanguard. Leto reacted with the first sound of Lay's guns. He swerved the royal cart off the road to his right, shifted from wheels to suspensors, and drove the vehicle back like a battering ram into a clot of face dancers trying to enter the fray from his side. Turning in a tight arc, he hit more of them on the other side, feeling the crushing impact of flesh against plasteel, a red spray of blood, then he was down off the road into an erosion gully. The brown serrated sides of the gully flashed past him. He swept upward and swooped across the river canyon to a high, rock-girt viewpoint beside the royal road. There he stopped and turned, well beyond the range of hand-held laser guns. What a surprise! Laughter shook his great body with grunting, trembling convulsions. Slowly the amusement subsided. From his vantage, Later could see the bridge and the area of the attack. Bodies lay in tangled disarray all across the scene and into the flanking gullies. He recognised courtier finery, fish-speaker uniforms, the blooded black of the face-dancer disguises. Surviving courtiers huddled in the background while fish-speakers sped among the fallen, making sure the attackers were dead with a swift knife-stroke into each body. Leto swept his gaze across the scene, searching for the black uniform of his Duncan. There was not one such uniform standing. Not one. Leto put down a surge of frustration, then saw a clutch of fish-speaker guards among the courtiers and... and a naked figure there. Naked. It was Duncan. Naked, of course. The Duncan Idaho, without a uniform, was not a face dancer. Again laughter shook him. Surprises on both sides. What a shock that must have been to the attackers. Obviously they had not prepared themselves for such a response. Leto eased his cart out onto the roadway, dropped the wheels into position and rolled down to the bridge. He crossed the bridge with a sense of déjà vu, aware of the countless bridges in his memories, the crossings to view the aftermaths of battles. As he cleared the bridge, Idaho broke from the knot of guards and ran toward him, skipping and dodging the bodies. Leto stopped his cart and stared at the naked runner. The Duncan was like a Greek warrior messenger dashing toward his commander to report the outcome of battle. The condensation of history stunned Leto's memories. Idaho skidded to a stop beside the cart. Leto opened the bubble cover. Face dancers! Every damned one! Idaho panted. Not trying to conceal his amusement, Leto asked, Whose idea was it to strip off your uniform? Mine, but they wouldn't let me fight. Moneo came running up then with a group of guards. One of the fish speakers tossed a guard's blue cloak to Idaho, calling out, We're trying to salvage a complete uniform from the bodies. I ripped mine off, Idaho explained. Did any of the face dancers escape? Moneo asked. Not a one, Idaho said. I admit your women are good fighters, but why wouldn't they let me get into— Because they have instructions to protect you, Leto said. They always protect the most valuable— Four of them died getting me out of there, Idaho said. We lost more than thirty people altogether, Lord, Moneo said. We're still counting. How many face dancers? Leto asked. It looks like there were an even fifty of them, Lord, Moneo said. He spoke softly a stricken look on his face. 
Leto began to chuckle. Why are you laughing? Idaho demanded. More than thirty of our people. But the Relaxu was so inept, Leto said. Do you not realize that only about five hundred years ago they would have been far more efficient, far more dangerous? Imagine them daring that foolish masquerade and not anticipating your brilliant response. They had laser guns, Idaho said. Leto twisted his bulky forward segments around and pointed at a hole burned in his canopy almost at the cart's midpoint. A melted and fused starburst surrounded the hole. They hit several other places underneath, Leto said. Fortunately, they did not damage any suspensors or wheels. Idaho stared at the hole in the canopy, noted that it lined up with Leto's body. Didn't it hit you? he asked. Oh, yes, Leto said. Are you injured? I am immune to lace guns, Leto lied. When we get time, I will demonstrate. Well, I'm not immune, Idaho said, and neither are your guards. Every one of us should have a shield belt. Shields are banned throughout the Empire, Leto said. It is a capital offence to have a shield. The question of shields, Moneo ventured. Idaho thought Moneo was asking for an explanation of shields and said, The belts develop a force field which will repel any object trying to enter at a dangerous speed. They have one major drawback. If you intersect the force field with a laser gun beam, the resultant explosion rivals that of a very large fusion bomb. Attacker and attacked go together. Moneo only stared at Idaho, who nodded. I see why they were banned, Idaho said. I presume the Great Convention Against Atomics is still in force and working well? Working even better since we searched out all of the family atomics and removed them to a safe place, Leto said. But we do not have time to discuss such matters here. We can discuss one thing, Idaho said. Walking out here in the open is too dangerous. We should... It is the tradition, and we will continue it, Leto said. Moneo leaned close to Idaho's ear. You are disturbing the Lord Leto, he said. But have you not considered how much easier it is to control a walking population? Moneo asked. Idaho jerked around to stare into Moneo's eyes with sudden comprehension. Leto took the opportunity to begin issuing orders. Moneo, see that there is no sign of the attack left here, not one spot of blood or a torn rag of clothing, nothing. Yes, Lord. Idaho turned at the sound of people pressing close around them, saw that all of the survivors, even the wounded wearing emergency bandages, had come up to listen. All of you, Leto said, addressing the throng around the cart. Not a word of this. Let the Tleilaxu worry. He looked at Idaho. Duncan, how did those face dancers get into a region where only my museum Fremen should roam free? Idaho glanced involuntarily at Moneo. Lord, it is my fault, Moneo said. I was the one who arranged for the Fremen to present their petition here. I even reassured Duncan Idaho about them. I recall your mentioning the petition, Leto said. I thought it might amuse you, Lord. Petitions do not amuse me. They annoy me. I am especially annoyed by petitions from people whose one purpose in my scheme of things is to preserve the ancient forms. Lord, it was just that you have spoken so many times about the boredom of these peregrinations into— But I am not here to ease the boredom of others. Lord? 
The museum Fremen understand nothing about the old ways. They are only good at going through the motions. This naturally bores them, and their petitions always seek to introduce changes. That's what annoys me. I will not permit changes. Now, where did you learn of the supposed petition? From the Fremen themselves, Moneo said. Adela. He broke off, scowling. Were the members of the delegation known to you? Of course, Lord. Otherwise I'd... They're dead, Idaho said. Moneo looked at him, uncomprehending. The people you knew were killed and replaced by face-dancer mimics, Idaho said. I have been remiss, Plato said. I should have taught all of you how to detect face-dancers. It will be corrected now that they grow foolishly bold. Why are they so bold? Idaho asked. Perhaps to distract us from something else, Moneo said. Leto smiled at Moneo. Under the stress of personal threat, the Majordomo's mind worked well. He had failed his lord by mistaking face-dancer mimics for known Fremen. Now, Moneo felt that his continued service might depend upon those abilities for which the god-emperor had originally chosen him. And now we have time to prepare ourselves, Leto said. Distract us from what? Idaho demanded. From another plot in which they participate, Plato said. They think I will punish them severely for this, but the Tleilaxu core remains safe because of you, Duncan. They didn't intend to fail here, Idaho said. But it was a contingency for which they were prepared, Moneo said. They believe I will not destroy them because they hold the original cells of my Duncan Idaho, Plato said. Do you understand, Duncan? Are they right? Idaho demanded. They approach being wrong, Leto said. He returned his attention to Moneo. No sign of this event must go with us to On. Fresh uniforms, new guards to replace the dead and wounded, everything just as it was. There are dead among your courtiers, Lord, Moneo said. Replace them. Moneo bowed. Yes, Lord and send for a new canopy to my cart, as my lord commands. Leto backed his cart a few paces away, turned it, and headed for the bridge, calling back to Idaho, Duncan, you will accompany me. Slowly at first, reluctance heavy in every movement, Idaho left Moneo and the others, then, increasing his pace, came up beside the cart's open bubble and walked there while staring in at Leto. What troubles you, Duncan? Leto asked. Do you really think of me as your Duncan? Of course, just as you think of me as your Leto. Why didn't you know this attack was coming? Through my vaunted prescience? Yes. The face dancers have not attracted my attention for a long time, Leto said. I presume that is changed now? Not to any great degree. Why not? Because Moneo was correct. I will not let myself be distracted. Could they really have killed you there? A distinct possibility. You know, Duncan, few understand what a disaster my end will be. What are the Tleilaxu plotting? A snare, I think. A lovely snare. They have sent me a signal, Duncan. What signal? There is a new escalation in the desperate motives which drive some of my subjects. They left the bridge and began the climb to Leto's viewpoint. Idaho walked in a fermenting silence. At the top, 
Leto lifted his gaze over the far cliffs and looked at the barons of the Sarir. The lamentations of those in his entourage who had lost loved ones continued at the attack seen beyond the bridge. With his acute hearing, Leto could separate Moneo's voice, warning them that the time of mourning was necessarily short. They had other loved ones at the citadel, and they well knew the god-emperor's wrath. Their tears will be gone, and smiles will be pasted on their faces by the time we reach on, Leto thought. They think I spurn them. What does that really matter? This is a flickering nuisance among the short-lived and the short-thoughted. The view of the desert soothed him. He could not see the river in its canyon from this point without turning completely around and looking toward the festival city. The Duncan remained mercifully silent beside the cart. Turning his gaze slightly to the left, Leto could see an edge of the forbidden forest. Against that glimpse of verdant landscape, his memory suddenly compressed the Sarir into a tiny, weak remnant of the planet-wide desert which once had been so mighty that all men feared it, even the wild Fremen who had roamed it. It is the river, Leto thought. If I turn, I will see the thing that I have done. The man-made chasm through which the Idaho River tumbled was only an extension of the gap which Paul Muad'Dib had blasted through the towering shield wall for the passage of his worm-mounted legions. Where water flowed now, Muad'Dib had led his Fremen out of a Coriolis storm's dust into history. And into this. Leto heard Moneo's familiar footsteps, the sounds of the Major Domo laboring up to the viewpoint. Moneo came up to stand beside Idaho and paused a moment to catch his breath. How long until we can go on? Idaho asked. Moneo waved him to silence and addressed Leto. Lord, we have had a message from On. The Bene Gesserit sent word that the Tleilaxu will attack before you reach the bridge. Idaho snorted. Aren't they a little late? It is not their fault, Moneo said. The captain of the fish speaker guard would not believe them. Other members of Leto's entourage began trickling onto the viewpoint level. Some of them appeared drugged, still in shock. The fish speakers moved briskly among them, commanding a show of good spirits. Remove the guard from the Bene Gesserit embassy, Leto said. Send them a message. Tell them that their audience will still be the last one, but they are not to fear this. Tell them that the last will be first. They will know the illusion. What about the Tleilaxu? Idaho asked. Leto kept his attention on Moneo. Yes, the Tleilaxu. We will send them a signal. Yes, Lord. When I order it, and not until then, you will have the Tleilaxu ambassador publicly flogged and expelled. Lord! You disagree? If we are to keep this secret, Moneo glanced over his shoulder, how will you explain the flogging? We will not explain. We will give no reason at all? No reason. But, Lord, the rumors and the stories that will— I am reacting, Moneo. Let them sense the underground part of me which does things without my knowing, because it has not the wherewithal of knowing. This will cause great fear, Lord. A gruff burst of laughter escaped Idaho. He stepped between Moneo and the cart. He does a kindness to this ambassador. There have been rulers who would have killed the fool over a slow fire. 
Moneo tried to speak to Leto around Idaho's shoulder. But, Lord, this action will confirm for the Tleilaxu that you were attacked. They already know that, Leto said. But they will not talk about it. And when none of the attackers return, Idaho said. Do you understand, Moneo? Leto asked. When we march into On, apparently unscathed, the Tleilaxu will believe they have suffered utter failure. Moneo glanced around at the fish speakers and courtiers, listening spellbound to this conversation. Seldom had any of them heard such a revealing exchange between the god-emperor and his most immediate aides. When will my lord signal punishment of the ambassador? Moneo asked. During the audience. Leto heard thopters coming, saw the glint of sunlight on their wings and rotors, and, when he focused intently, made out the fresh canopy for his cart slung beneath one of them. Have this damaged canopy returned to the citadel and restored, Leto said, still peering at the approaching thopters. If questions are asked, tell the artisans to say that it's just routine. Another canopy scratched by blown sand. Moneo sighed. Yes, lord. It will be done as you say. Come, Moneo, cheer up, Leto said. Walk beside me as we continue. Turning to Idaho, Leto said, Take some of the guards and scout ahead. Do you think there'll be another attack? Idaho asked. No, but it'll give the guards something to do. And get a fresh uniform. I don't want you wearing something that has been contaminated by the dirty Tleilaxu. Idaho moved off in obedience. Leto signalled Moneo to come closer. Closer. When Moneo was bending into the cart, face less than a metre from Leto's, Leto pitched his voice low and said, There is a special lesson here for you, Moneo. Lord, I know I should have suspected the face- No, not the face dancers. It is a lesson for your daughter. Siona? What could she- Tell her this. In a fragile way, she is like that force within me which acts without knowing. Because of her, I remember what it was to be human and to love. Moneo stared at Leto without comprehension. Simply give her the message, Leto said. You needn't try to understand it. Merely tell her my words. Moneo withdrew. As my lord commands. Leto closed the bubble canopy, making a single unit of the entire cover for the approaching crews on the thopters to replace. Moneo turned and glanced around at the people waiting on the flat area of the viewpoint. He noted then a thing he had not observed earlier, a thing revealed by the disarray which some of the people had not yet repaired. Some of the courtiers had fitted themselves with delicate devices to assist their hearing. They had been eavesdropping, and such devices could only come from Ix. I will warn the Duncan and the guard, Moneo thought. Somehow he thought of this discovery as a symptom of rot. How could they prohibit such things, when most of the courtiers and the fish speakers either knew or suspected that the god-emperor traded with Ix for forbidden machines? I am beginning to hate water. The sand trout skin which imperils my metamorphosis has learned the sensitivities of the worm. Moneo and many of my guards know my aversion. Only Moneo suspects the truth, that this marks an important waypoint. 
I can feel my ending in it. Not soon as Moneo measures time, but soon enough as I endure it. Sand trouts swarmed to water in the dune days, a problem during the early stages of our symbiosis. The enforcement of my willpower controlled the urge then, and until we reached a time of balance. Now I must avoid water because there are no other sand trout, only the half-dormant creatures of my skin. Without sand trout to bring this world back to desert, Shai Hulud will not emerge. The sandworm cannot evolve until the land is parched. I am their only hope. The Stolen Journals It was mid-afternoon before the royal entourage came down the final slope into the precincts of the festival city. Throngs lined the streets to greet them, held back by tight lines of ursine fish speakers in uniforms of Atreides green, their stun clubs crossed and linked. As the royal party approached, a bedlam of shouts erupted from the crowd. Then the fish speaker guardians began to chant, Sianok! 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 As it echoed back and forth between the high buildings, the chanted word had a strange effect on the crowd which was not initiated into the meanings of it. A wave of silence swept up the thronged avenues while the guardians continued to chant. People stared in awe at the women armed with stun clubs who guarded the royal passage, the women who chanted while they fixed their gaze on the face of their passing lord. Idaho, marching with the fish speaker guards behind the royal cart, heard the chant for the first time and felt the hair on the back of his neck rise. Moneo marched beside the cart, not looking left or right. He had once asked later the meaning of the word. I give the fish speakers only one ritual, Leto had said. They had been in the god emperor's audience chamber beneath On's central plaza at the time, with Moneo fatigued after a long day of directing the flow of dignitaries who crowded the city for decennial festivities. What has the chanting of that word to do with it, lord? The ritual is called Sianok, the feast of Leto. It is the adoration of my person in my presence. An ancient ritual, lord? It was with the Fremen before they were Fremen. But the keys to the festival secrets died with the old ones. Only I remember them now. I recreate the festival in my own likeness and for my own ends. Then the Museum Fremen do not use this ritual. Never. It is mine and mine alone. I claim eternal right to it because I am that ritual. It is a strange word, Lord. I have never heard its like. It has many meanings, Moneo. If I tell them to you, will you hold them secret? My lord commands. Never share this with another, nor reveal to the fish speakers what I tell you now. I swear it, lord. Very well. Sianok means giving honor to one who speaks with sincerity. It signifies the remembrance of things which are spoken with sincerity. But, lord... Doesn't sincerity really mean that the speaker believes, has faith in what is said? Yes, but Sianork also contains the idea of light as that which reveals reality. You continue to shine light on what you see. Reality? That is a very ambiguous word, Lord. Indeed, but Sianork also stands for fermentation because reality, 
or the belief that you know a reality which is the same thing always sets up a ferment in the universe. All of that in a single word, Lord? And more. Sihanouk also contains the summoning to prayer, and the name of the recording angel, Sihaya, who interrogates the newly dead. A great burden for one word, Lord. Words can carry any burden we wish. All that's required is agreement and a tradition upon which to build. Why must I not speak of this to the fish speakers, Lord? Because this is a word reserved for them. They resent my sharing it with a male. Moneo's lips pressed into a thin line of remembrance as he marched beside the royal cart into the festival city. He had heard the fish speakers chant the god emperor into their presence many times since that first explanation, and had even added his own meanings to the strange word. It means mystery and prestige. It means power. It invokes a license to act in the name of God. Sianok, 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 the word had a sour sound in Moneo's ears. They were well into the city, almost to the central plaza. Afternoon sunlight came down the royal road behind the procession to illuminate the way. It gave brilliance to the citizenry's colourful costumes. It shone on the upturned faces of the fish speakers lining the way. Marching beside the cart with the guards, Idaho put down a first alarm as the chant continued. He asked one of the fish speakers beside him about it. It is not a word for men, she said, but sometimes the Lord shares Sianok with a Duncan. A Duncan. He had asked Leto about it earlier and disliked the mysterious evasions. You will learn about it soon enough. Idaho relegated the chant to the background while he looked around him with a tourist's curiosity. In preparation for his duties as guard commander, Idaho had inquired after the history of On, finding that he shared Leto's wry amusement in the fact that it was the Idaho River flowing nearby. They had been in one of the large open rooms of the citadel at the time, an airy place full of morning light and with wide tables upon which fish-speaker archivists had spread charts of the Saria and of On. Leto had wheeled his cart onto a ramp which allowed him to look down on the charts. Idaho stood across a chart-littered table from him, studying the plan of the festival city. Peculiar design for a city, Idaho mused. It has one primary purpose, public viewing of the god-emperor. Idaho looked up at the segmented body on the cart, brought his gaze to the cowled face. He wondered if he would ever find it easy to look on that bizarre figure. But that's only once every ten years, Idaho said. At the great sharing, yes. And you just close it down between times? The embassies are there, the offices of the trading factors, the fish speaker schools, the service and maintenance cadres, the museums and libraries. What space do they take? Idaho wrapped the chart with his knuckles. A tenth of the city at most. Less than that. Idaho let his gaze wander pensively over the chart. Are there other purposes in this design, my lord? It is dominated by the need for public viewing of my person. There must be clerks, government workers, even common labourers. Where do they live? Mostly in the suburbs. Idaho pointed at the chart. These tiers of apartments? Note the balconies, Duncan, all around the plaza. He leaned close to peer down at the chart. That plaza is two kilometres across. Note how the balconies are set back in steps, right up to the ring of spires. 
The elite are lodged in the spires. And they can all look down on you in the plaza. You do not like that? There's not even an energy barrier to protect you. What an inviting target I make. Why do you do it? There is a delightful myth about the design of On. I foster and promote the myth. It is said that once there lived a people whose ruler was required to walk among them once a year in total darkness without weapons or armour. The mythical ruler wore a luminescent suit while he made his walk through the night-shrouded throng of his subjects, and his subjects. They wore black for the occasion and were never searched for weapons. What's that have to do with On and you? Well, obviously. If the ruler survived his walk, he was a good ruler. You don't search for weapons? Not openly. You think people see you in this myth? It was not a question. Many do. Idaho stared up at Leto's face deep in its grey cowl. The blue-on-blue eyes stared back at him without expression. Melange eyes, Idaho thought. But Leto said he no longer consumed any spice. His body supplied what spice his addiction demanded. You don't like my holy obscenity, my enforced tranquility, Leto said. I don't like you playing God, but a god can conduct the empire as a musical conductor guides a symphony through its movements. My performance is limited only by my restriction to Arrakis. I must direct the symphony from here. Idaho shook his head and looked once more at the city plan. What are these apartments behind the spires? Lesser accommodations for our visitors. They can't see the plaza, but they can. Ixian devices project my image into those rooms. And the inner ring looks directly down on you. How do you enter the plaza? A presentation stage rises from the centre to display me to my people. Do they cheer? Idaho looked directly into Leto's eyes. They are permitted to cheer. You Atreides always did see yourselves as part of history. How astute of you to understand a cheer's meaning. Idaho returned his attention to the city map. And the fish speaker schools are here? Under your left hand, yes. That's the academy where Siona was sent to be educated. She was ten at the time. Siona. I must learn more about her, Idaho mused. I assure you that nothing will get in the way of your desire. As he marched along in the royal peregrination, Idaho was lifted from his reverie by awareness that the fish-speaker chant was diminishing. Ahead of him, the royal cart had begun its descent into the chambers beneath the plaza, rolling down a long ramp. Idaho, still in sunlight, looked up and around at the glistening spires, this reality for which the charts had not prepared him. People crowded the balconies of the great, tiered ring around the plaza, silent people who stared down at the procession. No cheering from the privileged, Idaho thought. The silence of the people on the balconies filled Idaho with foreboding. He entered the ramp tunnel and its lip hid the plaza. The fish speaker chant faded away as he descended into the depths. The sound of marching feet all around him was curiously amplified. Curiosity replaced the sense of oppressive foreboding. Idaho stared around him. The flat-floored tube was artificially illuminated and wide, very wide. Idaho estimated that seventy people could march abreast into the bowels of the plaza. 
There were no mobs of greeters here, only a widely spaced line of fish speakers who did not chant, contenting themselves to stare at the passage of their god. Memory of the charts told Idaho the layout of this gigantic complex beneath the plaza, a private city within the city, a place where only the god-emperor, the courtiers and the fish speakers could go without escort. But the charts had told nothing of the thick pillars, the sense of massive guarded spaces, the eerie quiet broken by the tramping of feet and the creaking of Leto's cart. Idaho looked suddenly at the fish speakers lining the way, and realized that their mouths were moving in unison, a silent word on their lips. He recognized the word. Sianok. Another festival so soon, the Lord Lado asked. It has been ten years, the Majordomo said. Do you think by this exchange that the Lord Lado betrays an ignorance of time's passage? The Oral History During the private audience period preceding the festival proper, many commented that the god-emperor spent more than the allotted time with the new Ixian ambassador, the young woman named Hui Nori. She was brought down at mid-morning by two fish speakers, who were still full of first-day excitement. The private audience chamber beneath the plaza was brilliantly illuminated. The light revealed a room about fifty metres long by thirty-five wide. Antique Fremen rugs decorated the walls, their bright patterns worked in jewels and precious metals, all combined in weavings of priceless spice fibres. The dull reds, of which the old Fremen had been so fond, predominated. The chamber's floor was mostly transparent, a setting for exotic fishes worked in radiant crystal. Beneath the floor flowed a stream of clear blue water, all of its moisture sealed away from the audience chamber, but excitingly near Leto, who rested on a padded elevation at the end of the room opposite the door. His first view of Hui Nori revealed a remarkable likeness to her uncle Malki but her grave movements and the calmness of her stride were equally remarkable in their difference from Malki. She did have that dark skin, though, the oval face with its regular features. Placid brown eyes stared back at Leto, and where Malki's hair had been grey, hers was a luminous brown. Hui Nori radiated an inner peace which Leto sensed, spreading its influence around her as she approached. She stopped ten paces away, below him, there was a classical balance about her, something not accidental. With growing excitement, Leto realized a betrayal of Ixian machinations in the new ambassador. They were well along in their own program to breed selected types for specific functions. Hui Nori's function was distressingly obvious, to charm the god-emperor, to find a chink in his armor. Despite this, as the meeting progressed, Leto found himself truly enjoying her company. Hui Nori stood in a puddle of daylight which was guided into the chamber by a system of Ixian prisms. The light filled Leto's end of the chamber with glowing gold, which centred on the ambassador, dimming behind the god-emperor where stood a short line of fish-speaker guards, twelve women chosen for their inability to hear or speak. Hui Nori wore a simple gown of purple ambiel, decorated only by a silver necklace pendant stamped with the symbol of Ix. Soft sandals, the colour of her gown, peaked from beneath her hem. 
Are you aware, Leto asked her, that I killed one of your ancestors? She smiled softly. My uncle Malki included that information in my early training, Lord. As she spoke, Leto realized that part of her education had been conducted by the Bene Gesserit. She had their way of controlling her responses, of sensing the undertones in a conversation. He could see, however, that the Bene Gesserit overlay had been a delicate thing, never penetrating the basic sweetness of her nature. You were told that I would introduce this subject, he said. Yes, Lord. I know that my ancestor had the temerity to bring a weapon here in the attempt to harm you. As did your immediate predecessor. Were you told that as well? I did not learn it until my arrival, Lord. They were fools. Why did you spare my predecessor? When I did not spare your ancestor? Yes, Lord. Kobat, your predecessor, was more valuable to me as a messenger. Then they told me the truth, she said. Again she smiled. One cannot always depend on hearing truth from one's associates and superiors. The response was so utterly open that Leto could not suppress a chuckle. Even as he laughed, he realized that this young woman still possessed the mind of first awakening, the elemental mind which came in the first shock of birth awareness. She was alive. Then you do not hold it against me that I killed your ancestor? he asked. He tried to assassinate you. I am told you crushed him, Lord, with your own body. True. And next you turned his weapon against your own holy self, to demonstrate that the weapon was ineffectual, and it was the best lace gun we Ixians could make. The witnesses reported correctly, Leto said. And he thought, which shows how much you can depend on witnesses. As a matter of historical accuracy, he knew that he had turned the lace gun only against his ribbed body, not against hands, face, or flippers. The pre-worm body possessed a remarkable capacity for absorbing heat, the chemical factory within him converted heat to oxygen. I never doubted the story, she said. Why has Ix repeated this foolish gesture? Leto asked. They have not told me, Lord. Perhaps Kobat took it onto himself to behave this way. I think not. It has occurred to me that your people desired only the death of their chosen assassin. The death of Kobat? No, the death of the one they chose to use the weapon. Who was that, Lord? I've not been told. It's unimportant. Do you recall what I said at the time of your ancestor's foolishness? You threatened terrible punishment should such violence ever again enter our thoughts. She lowered her gaze, but not before Leto glimpsed a deep determination in her eyes. She would use the best of her abilities to blunt his wrath. I promised that none of you would escape my anger, Leto said. She jerked her attention up to his face. Yes, Lord. And now her manner revealed personal fear. None can escape me. Not even the futile colony you've recently planted at... And later reeled off for her the standard chart coordinates of a new colony the Ixians had planted secretly far beyond what they thought were the reaches of his empire. She betrayed no surprise. Lord... I think it was because I warned them you would know of this that I was chosen as ambassador. Leto studied her more carefully. What have we here? he wondered. 
an observation had been subtle and penetrating. The Ixians, he knew, had thought distance and enormously magnified transportation costs would insulate the new colony. Hui Nori thought not and had said so. But she believed her masters had chosen her as ambassador because of this. A comment on the Ixian caution. They thought they had a friend at court here, but one who also would be seen as Leto's friend. He nodded as the pattern took shape. Quite early in his ascendancy, he had revealed to the Ixians the exact location of the supposedly secret Ixian core, the heartland of the technological federation which they governed. It had been a secret the Ixians thought safe because they paid gigantic bribes for it to the Spacing Guild. Later had winkled them out by prescient observation and deduction, and by consulting his memories, where there were more than a few Ixians. At the time, Leto had warned the Ixians that he would punish them if they acted against him. They had responded with consternation and accused the guild of betraying them. This had amused Leto, and he had responded with such a burst of laughter that the Ixians were abashed. He had then informed them in a cold and accusatory tone that he had no need of spies or traitors or other ordinary trappings of government. Did they not believe he was a god? For a time thereafter, the Ixians were responsive to his requests. Leto had not abused the relationship. His demands were modest, a machine for this, a device for that. He would state his needs, and presently the Ixians would deliver the required technological toy. Only once had they tried to deliver a violent instrument into one of his machines. He had slain the entire Ixian delegation before they could even unwrap the thing. Hui Nori waited patiently while later mused. Not the slightest sign of impatience surfaced. Beautiful, he thought. In view of his long association with the Ixians, this new stance sent the juices coursing through Leto's body. Ordinarily, the passions, crises, and necessities which had produced and impelled him burned low. He often felt that he had outlived his times, but the presence of a Hui Nori said he was needed. This pleased him. Leto felt that it might even be possible that the Ixians had achieved a partial success with their machine to amplify the linear prescience of a guild navigator. A small blip in the flow of great events might have escaped him. Could they really make such a machine? What a marvel that would be. Purposefully, he refused to use his powers for even the smallest search through this possibility. I wish to be surprised. Leto smiled benignly at Hui. How have they prepared you to woo me? he asked. She did not blink. I was provided with a set of memorized responses for particular exigencies, she said. I learned them as I was required, but I do not intend to use them. Which is exactly what they want, Leto thought. Tell your masters, he said, that you are precisely the right kind of bait to dangle in front of me. She bowed her head. If it pleases, my lord. Yes, you do. He indulged himself then in a small temporal probe to examine Hui's immediate future, tracing the threads of her past through this. Hui appeared in a fluid future, a current whose movements were susceptible to many deflections. She would know Siona in only a casual way, unless... Questions flowed through Leto's mind. A guild steersman was advising the Ixians, and he obviously had detected Siona's disturbance in the temporal fabric. Did the steersman really believe he could provide security against the god-emperor's detection? 
The temporal probe took several minutes, but Hui did not fidget. Leto looked at her carefully. She seemed timeless, outside of time in a deeply peaceful way. He had never before encountered a common mortal able to wait thus in front of him without some nervousness. Where were you born, Hui? he asked. On Ix itself, Lord. I mean specifically. The building, its location, your parents, the people around you, friends and family, your schooling. All of it. I never knew my parents, Lord. I was told they died while I was still an infant. Did you believe this? At first. Of course. Later I built fantasies. I even imagined that Malki was my father. But— She shook her head. You did not like your uncle Malki? No, I didn't. Oh, I admired him. My reaction precisely, Leto said. But what of your friends and your schooling? My teachers were specialists. Even some Bene Gesserits were brought in to train me in emotional control and observation. Malki said I was being prepared for great things. And your friends? I don't think I ever had any real friends. Only people who were brought in contact with me for specific purposes in my education. And these great things for which you were trained, did anyone ever speak of those? Malke said I was being prepared to charm you, Lord. How old are you, Hui? I don't know my exact age. I guess I'm about twenty-six. I've never celebrated a birthday. I only learned about birthdays by accident, one of my teachers giving an excuse for her absence. I never saw that teacher again. Leto found himself fascinated by this response. His observations provided him with certainty that there had been no Tleilaxu interventions into her Ixian flesh. She had not come from a Tleilaxu axolotl tank. Why the secrecy, then? Does your uncle Malki know your age? Perhaps, but I haven't seen him for many years. Didn't anyone ever tell you how old you were? No. Why do you suppose that is? Maybe they thought I'd ask if I were interested. Were you interested? Yes. Then why didn't you ask? I thought at first there might be a record somewhere. I looked. There was nothing. I reasoned then that they would not answer my question. For what it tells me about you, Hui, that answer pleases me very much. I, too, am ignorant of your background, but I can make an enlightened guess at your birthplace. Her eyes focused on his face with a charged intensity which had no pretense in it. You were born within this machine your masters are trying to perfect for the guild, Plato said. You were conceived there as well. It may even be that Malki was your father. That is not important. Do you know about this machine, Hui? I am not supposed to know about it, Lord. But another indiscretion by one of your teachers? By my uncle himself? A burst of laughter erupted from Leto. What a rogue, he said. What a charming rogue. Lord? This is his revenge on your masters. He did not like being removed from my court. He told me at the time that his replacement was less than a fool. Hui shrugged. A complex man, my uncle. Listen to me carefully, Hui. Some of your associations here on Arrakis could be dangerous to you. I will protect you as I can, do you understand? I think so, Lord. She stared up at him solemnly. Now, a message for your masters. It is clear to me that they have been listening to a guild steersman, 
and they have joined themselves to the Tleilaxu in a perilous fashion. Tell them for me that their purposes are quite transparent. Lord, I have no knowledge of— I am aware of how they use you, Hui. For this reason you may tell your masters also that you are to be the permanent ambassador to my court. I will not welcome another Ixion. And should your masters ignore my warnings, trying further interference with my wishes, I shall crush them. Tears welled from her eyes and ran down her cheeks, but Leto was grateful that she did not indulge in any other display, such as falling to her knees. I already have warned them, she said. Truly I did. I told them they must obey you. Leto could see that this was true. What a marvellous creature, this Hui Nori, he thought. She appeared the epitome of goodness, obviously bred and conditioned for this quality by her Ixian masters with their careful calculation of the effect this would have on the god-emperor. Out of his thronging ancestral memories, Leto could see her as an idealised nun, kindly and self-sacrificing all sincerity. It was her most basic nature, the place where she lived, she found it easiest to be truthful and open, capable of shading this only to prevent pain for others. He saw this latter trait as the deepest change the Bene Gesserit had been able to effect in her. Hui's real manner remained outgoing, sensitive and naturally sweet. Leto could find little sense of manipulative calculation in her. She appeared immediately responsive and wholesome, excellent at listening, another Bene Gesserit attribute. There was nothing openly seductive about her, yet this very fact made her profoundly seductive to Leto. As he had remarked to one of the earlier Duncans on a similar occasion, You must understand this about me. A thing which some obviously suspect, sometimes it's unavoidable that I have delusionary sensations, the feeling that somewhere inside this changeling form of mine there exists an adult human body with all of the necessary functions. All of them, Lord? the Duncan had asked. All. I feel the vanished parts of myself. I can feel my legs, quite unremarkable and so real to my senses. I can feel the pumping of my human glands, some of which no longer exist. I can even feel genitalia, which I know intellectually vanished centuries ago. But surely, if you know, knowledge does not suppress such feelings. The vanished parts of myself are still there in my personal memories, and in the multiple identity of all my ancestors. As Leto looked at Hui standing in front of him, it helped not one whit to know he had no skull, and that what once had been his brain was now a massive web of ganglia spread through his pre-worm flesh. Nothing helped. He could still feel his brain aching where it once had reposed. He could still feel his skull throbbing. By just standing there in front of him, Hui cried out to his lost humanity. It was too much for him, and he moaned in despair, Why do your masters torture me? Lord, by sending you. I would not hurt you, Lord. Just by existing you hurt me. I did not know. Tears fell unrestrained from her eyes. They never told me what they were really doing. He calmed himself and spoke softly. Leave me now, Hui. Go about your business. But return quickly if I summon you. She left quietly, but Leto could see that Hui too was tortured. 
There was no mistaking the deep sadness in her for the humanity Leto had sacrificed. She knew what Leto knew. They would have been friends, lovers, companions in an ultimate sharing between the senses. Her masters had planned for her to know. The Ixians are cruel, he thought. They knew what our pain would be. Hui's departure ignited memories of her uncle Malki. Malki was cruel, but Leto had rather enjoyed his company. Malki had possessed all of the industrious virtues of his people and enough of their vices to make him thoroughly human. Malki had reveled in the company of Leto's fish speakers. Your huris, he had called them, and Leto could seldom think of the fish speakers thereafter without recalling Malki's label. Why do I think of Malki now? It's not just because of Hui. I shall ask her what charge her masters gave her when they sent her to me. Leto hesitated on the verge of calling her back. She'll tell me if I ask. Ixian ambassadors had always been told to find out why the god-emperor tolerated Ix. They knew they could not hide from him. This stupid attempt to plant a colony beyond his vision, were they testing his limits? The Ixians suspected that Leto did not really need their industries. I've never concealed my opinion of them. I said it to Malki. Technological innovators? No, you are the criminals of science in my empire. Malki had laughed. Irritated, Leto had accused, Why try to hide secret laboratories and factories beyond the Empire's rim? You cannot escape me. Yes, Lord. Laughing. I know your intent. Leak a bit of this and some of that back into my Imperial domains. Disrupt, cause doubts and questioning. Lord, you yourself are one of our best customers. That's not what I mean, and you know it, you terrible man. You like me because I'm a terrible man. I tell you stories about what we do out there. I know it without your stories. But some stories are believed and some are doubted. I dispel your doubts. I have no doubts. Which had only ignited more of Malky's laughter. And I must continue tolerating them, Leto thought. The Ixians operated in the terra incognita of creative invention which had been outlawed by the Butlerian Jihad. They made their devices in the image of the mind, the very thing which had ignited the Jihad's destruction and slaughter. That was what they did on Ix, and Leto could only let them continue. I buy from them. I could not even write my journals without their dictatels to respond to my unspoken thoughts. Without Ix, I could not have hidden my journals and the printers. But they must be reminded of the dangers in what they do. And the Guild could not be allowed to forget. That was easier. Even while Guildsmen cooperated with Ix, they distrusted the Ixians mightily. If this new Ixian machine works, the Guild has lost its monopoly on space travel. From that welter of memories which I can tap at will, patterns emerge. They are like another language which I see so clearly. The social alarm skills which put societies into the postures of defense attack are like shouted words to me. As a people, you react against threats to innocence and the peril of the helpless young. 
Unexplained sounds, visions, and smells raise the hackles you have forgotten you possess. When alarmed, you cling to your native language because all the other patterned sounds are strange. You demand acceptable dress because a strange costume is threatening. This is system feedback at its most primitive level. Your cells remember. The Stolen Journals The acolyte fish speakers who served as pages at the portal of Leto's audience chamber brought in Duro Nunepi, the Trelaxu ambassador. It was early for an audience and Nunepi was being taken out of his announced order, but he moved calmly with only the faintest hint of resigned acceptance. Leto waited silently stretched out along his cart on the raised platform at the end of the chamber. As he watched Nunepi approach, Leto's memories produced a comparison the swimming cobra of a periscope brushing its almost invisible wake upon water. The memory brought a smile to Leto's lips. That was Nunepi, a proud, flinty-faced man who had come up through the ranks of Tlelaxu management. Not a face dancer himself, he considered the dancers his personal servants. They were the water through which he moved. One had to be truly adept to see his wake. Nunepi was a nasty piece of business who had left his traces in the attack along the royal road. Despite the early hour, the man wore his full ambassadorial regalia, billowing black trousers and black sandals trimmed in gold, a flowery red jacket open at the breast to reveal a bushy chest behind his Tleilaxu crest worked in gold and jewels. At the required ten paces distance, Nunepi stopped and swept his gaze along the rank of armed fish-speaker guards in an arc around and behind Leto. Nunepi's grey eyes were bright with some secret amusement when he brought his attention to his emperor and bowed slightly. Duncan Idaho entered then, a laser gun holstered at his hip, and took up his position beside the god-emperor's cowled face. Idaho's appearance required a careful study by Nunepi, a study which did not please the ambassador. I find shape changes particularly obnoxious, Leto said. I am not a shape changer, Lord, Nunepi said. His voice was low and cultured with only a trace of hesitancy in it. But you represent them, and that makes you an item of annoyance, Leto said. Nunepi had expected an open statement of hostility, but this was not the language of diplomacy, and it shocked him into a bold reference to what he believed to be Tleilaxu's strength. Lord, by preserving the flesh of the original Duncan Idaho, and providing you with restored golas in his image and identity, we have always assumed— Duncan! Leto glanced at Idaho. If I command it, Duncan— Will you lead an expedition to exterminate the Tleilaxu? With pleasure, my lord. Even if it means the loss of your original cells and all of the axolotl tanks? I do not find the tanks a pleasant memory, my lord, and those cells are not me. Lord, how have we offended you? Nunepi asked. Leto scowled. Did this inept fool really expect the god-emperor to speak openly of the recent face-dancer attack? It has come to my attention, Leto said, that you and your people have been spreading lies about what you call my disgusting sexual habits. Nunepi gaped. 
The accusation was a bold lie, completely unexpected. But Nunepi realized that if he denied it, no one would believe him. The god-emperor had said it. This was an attack of unknown dimensions. Nunepi started to speak while looking at Idaho. Lord, if we... Look at me, Leto commanded. Nunepi jerked his gaze up to Leto's face. I will inform you only this once, Leto said. I have no sexual habits whatsoever. None. Perspiration rolled off Nunepi's face. He stared at Leto with the fixed intensity of a trapped animal. When Nunepi found his voice, it no longer was the low, controlled instrument of a diplomat, but a trembling and fearful thing. Lord, I... there must be a mistake of... He still you Tleilaxu sneak, Leto roared. Then I am a metamorphic vector of the holy sandworm, Shai Hulud. I am your god. Forgive us, Lord, Nunepi whispered. Forgive you? Leto's voice was full of sweet reason. Of course I forgive you. That is your god's function. Your crime is forgiven. However, your stupidity requires a response. Lord, if I could but be still. The spice allotment passes over the Tleilaxu for this decade. You get nothing. As for you personally, my fish speakers will now take you into the plaza. Two burly guardswomen moved in and held Nunepi's arms. They looked up to Leto for instructions. In the plaza, Leto said. His clothing is to be stripped from him. He is to be publicly flogged. Fifty lashes. Nunepi struggled against the grip of his guards. Consternation on his face mingled with rage. Lord, I remind you that I am the ambassador of- You are a common criminal and will be treated as such. Leto nodded to the guards, who began dragging Nunepi away. I wish they'd killed you, Nunepi raged. I wish- Who? Leto called. You wish who had killed me? Don't you know I cannot be killed? The guards dragged Nunepi out of the chamber as he still raged. I am innocent! I am innocent! The protest faded away. Idaho leaned close to Leto. Yes, Duncan? Leto asked. My lord, all the envoys will feel fear at this. Yes, I teach a lesson in responsibility. My lord, membership in a conspiracy, as in an army, frees people from the sense of personal responsibility. But this will cause trouble, my lord. Our best post extra guards. Not one additional guard. But you invite- I invite a bit of military nonsense. That's what I- Duncan, I am a teacher. Remember that. By repetition, I impress the lesson. What lesson? The ultimately suicidal nature of military foolishness. My lord, I don't- Duncan, consider the inept Nunepi. He is the essence of this lesson. Forgive my denseness, my lord, but I do not understand this thing about military. They believe that by risking death, they pay the price of any violent behavior against enemies of their own choosing. They have the invader mentality. Nunepi does not believe himself responsible for anything done against aliens. Idaho looked at the portal where the guards had taken Nunepi. He tried, and he lost, my lord. But he cut himself loose from the restraints of the past, and he objects to paying the price. 
To his people he's a patriot. And how does he see himself, Duncan? As an instrument of history. Idaho lowered his voice and leaned closer to Leto. How are you different, my lord? Leto chuckled. Ah, Duncan, how I love your perceptiveness. You have observed that I am the ultimate alien. Do you not wonder if I also can be a loser? The thought has crossed my mind. Even losers can shroud themselves in the proud mantle of the past, old friend. Are you a Nunapi alike in that? Militant missionary religions can share this illusion of the proud past, but few understand the ultimate peril to humankind, that false sense of freedom from responsibility for your own actions. These are strange words, my lord. How do I take their meaning? Their meaning is whatever speaks to you. Are you incapable of listening? I have ears, my lord. Do you now? I cannot see them. Here, my lord. Here and here. Idaho pointed at his own ears as he spoke. But they do not hear. Therefore you have no ears. Neither hear nor hear. You make a joke of me, my lord. To hear is to hear. That which exists cannot be made into itself, for it already exists. To be is to be. Your strange words are but words. I spoke them. They are gone. No one heard them. Therefore they no longer exist. If they no longer exist, perhaps they can be made to exist again. And then perhaps someone will hear them. Why do you poke fun at me, my lord? I poke nothing at you except words. I do it without fear of offending because I have learned that you have no ears. I don't understand you, my lord. That is the beginning of knowledge, the discovery of something we do not understand. Before Idaho could respond, Leto gave a hand signal to a nearby guard who waved a hand in front of a crystalline control panel on the wall behind the god-emperor's dais. A three-dimensional view of Nunepi's punishment appeared in the centre of the chamber. Idaho stepped down to the floor of the chamber and peered closely at the scene. It was shown from a slight elevation looking down on the plaza, and was complete with sounds of the swelling throng who had run to the scene at the first signs of excitement. Nonepe was bound to two legs of a tripod, his feet spread wide, his arms tied together above him almost at the apex of the tripod. His clothing had been ripped from his body and lay around him in rags. A bulky, masked fish speaker stood nearby, holding an improvised whip fashioned of a lacquer rope which had been frayed at the end into wire-like fine strands. Idaho thought he recognized the masked woman as the friend of his first interview. At a signal from a guard officer, the masked fish speaker stepped forward and brought the alaka whip down in a slashing arc onto Nunepe's exposed back. Idaho winced. The crowd gasped. Welts appeared where the whip had struck, but Nunepe remained silent. Again the whip descended. Blood betrayed the lines of this second stroke. Once more the whip flayed Nunepe's back. More blood appeared. Leto felt remote sadness. Nela is too ardent, he thought. She will kill him, and that will cause problems. Duncan, Leto called. Idaho turned from his fascinated examination of the projected scene just as a shout lifted from the crowd, response to a particularly bloody stroke. Send someone to stop the flogging after twenty lashes, Leto said. 
have it announced that the magnanimity of the god-emperor has reduced the punishment. Idaho raised a hand to one of the guards who nodded and ran from the chamber. Come here, Duncan, Leto said. Still smarting under what he believed was Leto's poking fun at him, Idaho returned to Leto's side. Whatever I do, Leto said, it is to teach a lesson. Idaho rigidly willed himself not to look back at the scene of Nunepi's punishment. Was that the sound of Nunepi groaning? The shouts of the crowd pierced Idaho. He stared up into Leto's eyes. There is a question in your mind, Leto said. Many questions, my lord. Speak them. What is the lesson in that fool's punishment? What do we say when asked? We say that no one is permitted to blaspheme against the god-emperor. A bloody lesson, my lord. Not as bloody as some I've taught. Idaho shook his head from side to side in obvious dismay. Nothing good's going to come of this. Precisely. Safaris through ancestral memories teach me many things. The patterns. Ah, the patterns. Liberal bigots are the ones who trouble me most. I distrust the extremes. Scratch a conservative and you find someone who prefers the past over any future. Scratch a liberal and find a closet aristocrat. It's true. Liberal governments always develop into aristocracies. The bureaucracies betray the true intent of people who form such governments. Right from the first, the little people who formed the governments which promised to equalize the social burdens found themselves suddenly in the hands of bureaucratic aristocracies. Of course, all bureaucracies follow this pattern, but what a hypocrisy to find this even under a communized banner. Ah, well... If patterns teach me anything, it's that patterns are repeated. My oppressions, by and large, are no worse than any of the others, and at least, I teach a new lesson. The Stolen Journals It was well into the darkness of Audience Day before Leto could meet with the Bene Gesserit delegation. Moneo had prepared the Reverend Mothers for the delay, repeating the god-emperor's reassurances. Reporting back to his emperor, Moneo had said, They expect a rich reward. We shall see, Leto had said. We shall see. Now, tell me what it was the Duncan demanded of you as you entered. He wished to know if you had ever before had someone flogged. And you replied? That there was no record of nor had I ever before witnessed such a punishment. His response? This is not Atreides. Does he think I'm insane? He did not say that. There was more to your encounter. What else troubles our new Duncan? He has met the Ixian ambassador, Lord. He finds we Nori attractive. He inquired of— That must be prevented, Moneo. I trust you to raise barriers against any liaison between the Duncan and we. My lord commands. Indeed I do. Now go and prepare for our meeting with the women of the Bene Gesserit. I will receive them at false siege. Lord, is there significance in this choice of a meeting place? A whim. On your way out, tell the Duncan he may take out a troop of guards and scour the city for trouble. 
waiting for the Bene Gesserit delegation at False Siege, Vlato reviewed this exchange, finding some amusement in it. He could imagine the reactions through the festival city at the approach of a disturbed Duncan Idaho in command of a fish-speaker troop. Like the quick silence of frogs when a predator comes. Now that he was in False Siege, Vlato found himself pleased by the choice. A free-form building of irregular domes at the edge of On, False Siege was almost a kilometre across. It had been the first abode of the Museum Fremen, and now was their school, its corridors and chambers patrolled by alert fish speakers. The reception hall where Leto waited, an oval about two hundred metres in its long dimension, was illuminated by giant glow-globes which floated in blue-green isolation some thirty metres above the floor. The light muted the dull browns and tans of the imitation stone from which the entire structure had been fashioned. Leto waited on a low ledge at one end of the chamber, looking outward through a half-circle window no longer than his body. The opening, four stories above the ground, framed a view which included a remnant of the ancient shield wall preserved for its cliff-side caves where Atreides' troops had once been slaughtered by Harkonnen attackers. The frosty light of first moon silvered the cliff's outlines. Fires dotted the cliffside, the flames exposed where no Fremen would have dared betray his presence. The fires winked at Leto as people passed in front of them, museum Fremen, exercising their right to occupy the sacred precincts. Museum Fremen, Leto thought. They were such narrow thinkers, with near horizons. But why should I object? They are what I made them. Leto heard the Bene Gesserit delegation then. They chanted as they approached, a heavy sound all a jostle with vowels. Moneo preceded them with a guard detail which took up position on Leto's ledge. Moneo stood on the chamber floor just below Leto's face, glanced at Leto, turned to the open hall. The women entered in a double file, ten of them led by two reverend mothers in traditional black robes. That is Antioch on the left. Luceal on the right, Moneo said. The names recalled for Leto the earlier words about the Reverend Mothers brought in by Moneo, agitated and distrustful. Moneo did not like the witches. They're both truth-sayers, Moneo had said. Antioch is much older than Luceal, but the latter is reputed to be the best truth-sayer the Bene Gesserit have. You may note that Antioch has a scar on her forehead— whose origin we have been unable to discover. Luceal has red hair and appears remarkably young for one of her reputation. As he watched the Reverend Mother's approach with their entourage, Leto felt the quick surge of his memories. The women wore their hoods forward, shrouding their faces. The attendants and acolytes walked at a respectful distance behind. It was all of a piece. Some patterns did not change. These women might have been entering a real siege, with real Fremen here to honour them. Their heads know what their bodies deny, he thought. Leto's penetrating vision saw the subservient caution in their eyes, but they strode up the long chamber like people confident of their religious power. It pleased Leto to think that the Bene Gesserit possessed only such powers as he permitted. The reasons for this indulgence were clear to him, of all the people in his empire, reverend mothers were most like him. Limited to the memories of only their female ancestors, 
and the collateral female identities of their inheritance ritual, still each of them did exist as somewhat of an integrated mob. The Reverend Mothers came to a stop at the required ten paces from Leto's ledge. The entourage spread out on each side. It amused Leto to greet such delegations in the voice and persona of his grandmother Jessica. The Bene Gesserit had come to expect this, and he did not disappoint them. Welcome, sisters, he said. The voice was a smooth contralto, definitely Jessica's controlled feminine tones with just a hint of mockery, a voice recorded and often studied in the sisterhood's chapter house. As he spoke, Leto sensed menace. Reverend Mothers were never pleased when he greeted them this way, but the reaction here carried different undertones. Moneo too sensed it. He raised a finger and the guards moved closer to Leto. Antiac spoke first. Lord, we watched that display in the plaza this morning. What do you gain by such antics? So that's the tone we wish to set, he thought. Speaking in his own voice, he said, You are temporarily in my good graces. Would you change that? Lord, Antiac said, we are shocked that you could thus punish an ambassador. We do not understand what you gain by this. I gain nothing. I am diminished. Luciel spoke up. This can only reinforce thoughts of oppression. I wonder why so few ever thought of the Bene Gesserit as oppressors, Plato asked. Antiac spoke to her companion. If it pleases the god-emperor to inform us, he will do so. Let us get to the purposes of our embassy. Leto smiled. The two of you can come closer. Leave your attendants and approach. Moneo stepped two paces to his right as the Reverend Mother moved in characteristic silent gliding to within three paces of the ledge. It's almost as though they had no feet, Moneo had once complained. Recalling this, Leto observed how carefully Moneo watched the two women. They were menacing, but Moneo dared not object to their nearness. The god-emperor had ordered it, thus it would be. Leto lifted his attention to the attendants waiting where the Bene Gesserit entourage had first stopped. The acolytes wore hoodless black gowns. He saw tiny clues to forbidden rituals about them, an amulet, a small trinket, a colourful corner of a kerchief so arranged that more colour might be flashed carefully. Leto knew that the Reverend Mothers allowed this because they no longer could share the spice as once they had. Ritual substitutes. There were significant changes across the past ten years. A new parsimony had entered the sisterhood's thinking. They are coming out, Leto told himself. The old, old mysteries are still here. The ancient patterns had lain dormant in the Bene Gesserit memories for all of those millennia. Now they emerge. I must warn my fish speakers. He returned his attention to the Reverend Mothers. You have requests? What is it like to be you? Luciel asked. Leto blinked. That was an interesting attack. They had not tried it in more than a generation. Well, why not? Sometimes my dreams are blocked off and redirected into strange places, he said. If my cosmic memories are a web, as you two certainly know, then think about the dimensions of my web, and where such memories and dreams might lead. You speak of our certain knowledge, Antiac said. 
Why can't we join forces at last? We are more alike than we are different. I would sooner link myself to those degenerate great houses bewailing their lost spice riches. Antioch held herself still, but Luceal pointed a finger at Leto. We offer community. And I insist on conflict? Antioch stirred. Then, it is said that there is a principle of conflict which originated with a single cell and has never deteriorated. Some things remain incompatible, Leto agreed. Then how does our sisterhood maintain its community? Luceal demanded. Leto hardened his voice. As you well know, the secret of community lies in suppression of the incompatible. There can be enormous value in cooperation, Antioch said. To you, not to me. Antioch contrived a sigh. Then, Lord, will you tell us about the physical changes in your person? Someone besides yourself should know about and record such things, Luceal said. In case something dreadful should happen to me, Leto asked. Lord, Antioch protested, we do not. You dissect me with words when you would prefer sharper instruments, Leto said. Hypocrisy offends me. We protest, Lord, Antioch said. Indeed you do. I hear you. Luceal crept a few millimeters closer to the ledge, bringing a sharp stare from Moneo, who glanced up at Leto then. Moneo's expression demanded action, but Leto ignored him, curious now about Luceal's intentions. The sense of menace was centered in the red-haired one. What is she? Leto wondered. Could she be a face dancer after all? No. None of the telltale signs were there. No. Luceal presented an elaborately relaxed appearance, not even a little twist of her features to test the God Emperor's powers of observation. Will you not tell us about your physical changes, Lord? Antioch asked. Diversion, Leto thought. My brain grows enormous, he said. Most of the human skull has dissolved away. There are no severe limits to the growth of my cortex and its attendant nervous system. Moneo darted a startled glance at Leto. Why was the god emperor giving away such vital information? These two would trade it. But both women were obviously fascinated by this revelation, hesitating in whatever plan they had evolved. Does your brain have a center? Luceal asked. I am the center, Leto said. A location? Antioch asked. She gestured vaguely at him. Luceal glided a few millimeters closer to the ledge. What value do you place on the things I reveal to you? Leto asked. The two women betrayed no change of expression, which was betrayal enough by itself. A smile flitted across Leto's lips. The marketplace has captured you, he said. Even the Bene Gesserit has been infected by the souk mentality. We do not deserve that accusation, Antioch said. But you do. The souk mentality dominates my empire. The uses of the market have only been sharpened and amplified by the demands of our times. We have all become traders. Even you, Lord? Luceal asked. You tempt my wrath, he said. You're a specialist in that, aren't you? Lord? Luceal's voice was calm but overly controlled. Specialists are not to be trusted, 
Leto said. Specialists are masters of exclusion, experts in the narrow. We hope to be architects of a better future, Antiac said. Better than what? Leto asked. Lucille eased herself a fractional pace closer to Leto. We hope to set our standards by your judgment, Lord, Antiac said. But you would be architects. Would you build higher walls? Never forget, sisters, that I know you. You are efficient purveyors of blinders. Life continues, Lord, Antiac said. Indeed, and so does the universe. Lucelle eased herself a bit closer, ignoring the fixity of Moneo's attention. Leto smelled it then, and almost laughed aloud. Spice essence. They had brought some spice essence. They knew the old stories about sandworms and spice essence, of course. Lucelle carried it. She thought of it as a specific poison for sandworms. That was obvious. Bene Gesserit records and the oral history agreed on this. The essence shattered the worm, precipitating its dissolution and resulting eventually in sand trout, which would produce more sandworms, etc., etc., etc. There is another change in me that you should know about, Leto said. I am not yet sandworm, not fully. Think of me as something closer to a colony creature with sensory alterations. Lucelle's left hand moved almost imperceptibly toward a fold in her gown. Moneo saw it and looked to Leto for instructions, but Leto only returned to the hooded glare of Lucelle's eyes. There have been fads in smells, Leto said. Lucelle's hand hesitated. Perfumes and essences, he said. I remember them all. Even the cults of the non-smells are mine. People have used underarm sprays and crotch sprays to mask their natural odours. Did you know that? Of course you knew it. Antiac's gaze moved toward Lucille. Neither woman dared speak. People knew instinctively that their pheromones betrayed them, Leto said. The women stood immobile. They heard him. Of all his people, reverend mothers were best equipped to understand his hidden message. You'd like to mine me for my riches of memory, Leto said, his voice accusing. We are jealous, Lord, Lucille confessed. You have misread the history of spice essence, Leto said. Sand trout sends it only as water. It was a test, Lord, Antiac said. That is all. You would test me? Blame our curiosity, Lord, Antiac said. I too am curious. Put your spice essence on the ledge beside Moneo. I will keep it. Slowly, demonstrating by the steadiness of her movements that she intended no attack, Lucille reached beneath her gown and removed a small vial which glistened with an inner blue radiance. She placed the vial gently on the ledge. Not by any sign did she indicate that she might try something desperate. Truth-sayer indeed, Plato said. She favoured him with a faint grimace which might have been a smile, then withdrew to Antiac's side. Where did you get the spice essence? Plato asked. We bought it from smugglers, Antiac said. There have been no smugglers for almost twenty-five hundred years. Waste not, want not, Antiac said. I see. And now you must re-evaluate what you think of as your own patience. 
Is that not so? We have been watching the evolution of your body, Lord, Antiac said. We thought... She permitted herself a small shrug, the level of gesture warranted for use with a sister and not given lightly. Leto pursued his lips in response. I cannot shrug, he said. Will you punish us? Lucille asked. For amusing me? Lucille glanced at the vial on the ledge. I swore to reward you, Leto said. I shall. We would prefer to protect you in our community, Lord, Antiac said. Do not seek too great a reward, he said. Antiac nodded. You deal with the Ixians, Lord. We have reason to believe they may venture against you. I fear them no more than I fear you. Surely you've heard what the Ixians are doing, Lucille said. Moneo brings me an occasional copy of a message between persons or groups in my empire. I hear many stories. We speak of a new abomination, Lord, Antiac said. You think the Ixians can produce an artificial intelligence? he asked. Conscious the way you are conscious? We fear it, Lord, Antiac said. You would have me believe that the Butlerian Jihad survives among the Sisterhood? We do not trust the unknown which can arise from imaginative technology, Antiac said. Lucille leaned toward him. The Ixians boast that their machine will transcend time in the way that you do it, Lord. And the Guild says there's time chaos around the Ixians, Leto mocked. Are we to fear all creation then? Antiac drew herself up stiffly. I speak truth with you two, Leto said. I recognize your abilities. Will you not recognize mine? Lucille gave him a curt nod. Tleilax and Ix make alliance with the Guild and seek our full cooperation. And you fear Ix the most. We fear anything we do not control, Antiac said. And you do not control me. Without you, people would need us, Antiac said. Truth at last, Leto said. You come to me as your oracle, and you ask me to put your fears to rest. Antiac's voice was frigidly controlled. Will Ix make a mechanical brain? A brain? Of course not. Lucille appeared to relax, but Antiac remained unmoving. She was not satisfied with the oracle. Why is it that foolishness repeats itself with such monotonous precision? Leto wondered. His memories offered up countless scenes to match this one. Caverns, priests, and priestesses caught up in holy ecstasy, portentous voices delivering dangerous prophecies through the smoke of holy narcotics. He glanced down at the iridescent vial on the ledge beside Monel. What was the current value of that thing? Enormous. It was the essence. Concentrated wealth, concentrated. You have already paid the oracle he said. It amuses me to give you full value. How alert the women became. Hear me, he said. What you fear is not what you fear. Leto liked the sound of that, sufficiently portentous for any oracle. Antiac and Lucial stared up at him, dutiful supplicants. Behind them, an acolyte cleared her throat. That one will be identified and reprimanded later, Leto thought. Antiac had now had sufficient time to ruminate on Leto's words. She said, An obscure truth is not the truth. 
but I have directed your attention correctly, Leto said. Are you telling us not to fear the machine? Lucille asked. You have the power of reason, he said. Why come begging to me? But we do not have your powers, Antiac said. You complain then that you do not sense the gossamer waves of time. You do not sense my continuum. And you fear a mere machine. Then you will not answer us, Antiac said. Do not make the mistake of thinking me ignorant about your sisterhood's ways, he said. You are alive. Your senses are exquisitely tuned. I do not stop this, nor should you. But the Ixians play with automation, Antiac protested. Discrete pieces, finite bits linked one to another, he agreed. Once set in motion, what is to stop it? Lucille discarded all pretense of Bene Gesserit's self-control, a fine comment on her recognition of Leto's powers. Her voice almost screeched. Do you know what the Ixians boast? That their machine will predict your actions. Why should I fear that? The closer they come to me, the more they must be my allies. They cannot conquer me, but I can conquer them. Antiac made to speak, but stopped when Lucille touched her arm. Are you already allied with Ix? Lucille asked. We hear that you conferred over long with their new ambassador, this Hui Nori. I have no allies, he said. Only servants, students, and enemies. And you do not fear the Ixian's machine? Antiac insisted. Is automation synonymous with conscious intelligence? he asked. Antiac's eyes went wide and filmy as she withdrew into her memories. Leto found himself caught by fascination with what she must be encountering there within her own internal mob. We share some of those memories, he thought. Leto felt then the seductive attraction of community with reverend mothers. It would be so familiar, so supportive, and so deadly. Antiac was trying to lure him once more. She spoke. The machine cannot anticipate every problem of importance to humans. It is the difference between serial bits and an unbroken continuum. We have the one. Machines are confined to the other. You still have the power of reason, he said. Share, Lucille said. It was a command to Antiac, and it revealed with sharp abruptness who really dominated this pair, the younger over the older. Exquisite. Leto thought. Intelligence adapts, Antiac said. Parsimonious with her words, too, Leto thought, hiding his amusement. Intelligence creates, Leto said. That means you must deal with responses never before imagined. You must confront the new. Such as the possibility of the Ixian machine, Antiac said. It was not a question. Isn't it interesting, Leto asked, that being a superb reverend mother is not enough. His acute senses detected the sudden fearful tightening in both of the women. Truth sayers indeed. You are right to fear me, he said. Raising his voice, he demanded, How do you know you're even alive? As Moneo had done so many times, they heard in his voice the deadly consequences of failure to answer him correctly. It fascinated Leto that both women glanced at Moneo before either responded. I am the mirror of myself, Lucille said, a pat Bene Gesserit answer which Leto found offensive. 
I don't need preset tools to deal with my human problems, Antiac said. Your question is sophomoric. Ha <laughs> ha, Leto laughed. How would you like to quit the Bene Gesserit and join me? He could see her consider and then reject the invitation, but she did not hide her amusement. Leto looked at the puzzled Luceal. If it falls outside your yardsticks, then you are engaged with intelligence, not with automation, he said. And he thought, that Luceal will never again dominate old Antiac. Luceal was angry now and not bothering to conceal it. She said, the Ixians are rumoured to have provided you with machines that simulate human thinking. If you have such a low opinion of them, why? She should not be let out of the chapter house without a guardian, Leto said, addressing Antiac. Is she afraid to address her own memories? Luceal paled, but remained silent. Leto studied her coldly. Our ancestors' long unconscious relationship with machines has taught us something, don't you think? Luceal merely glared at him, not ready yet to risk death through open defiance of the god-emperor. Would you say we at least know the attraction of machines? Leto asked. Luceal nodded. A well-maintained machine can be more reliable than a human servant, Leto said. We can trust machines not to indulge in emotional distractions. Luceal found her voice. Does this mean you intend to remove the Butlerian prohibition against abominable machines? I swear to you, Leto said, speaking in his icy voice of disdain, that if you display further such stupidity, I will have you publicly executed. I am not your oracle. Luceal opened her mouth and closed it without speaking. Antiac touched her companion's arm, sending a quick tremor through Luceal's body. Antiac spoke softly in an exquisite demonstration of voice. Our god-emperor will never openly defy the proscriptions of the Butlerian Jihad. Leto smiled at her. A gentle commendation. It was such a pleasure to see a professional performing at her best. That should be obvious to any conscious intelligence, he said. There are limits of my own choosing, places where I will not interfere. He could see both women absorbing the multi-pronged thrust of his words, weighing the possible meanings and intents. Was the god-emperor distracting them, focusing their attention on the Ixians while he manoeuvred elsewhere? Was he telling the Bene Gesserit that the time had come to choose sides against the Ixians? Was it possible his words had no more than their surface motivations? Whatever his reasons, they could not be ignored. It was undoubtedly the most devious creature the universe had ever spawned. Leto scowled at Luceal, knowing he could only add to their confusion. I pointed out to you, Marcus Clare Luceal, a lesson from past over-machined societies which you appear not to have learned. The devices themselves condition the users to employ each other the way they employ machines. He turned his attention to Moneo. Moneo? I see him, Lord. Moneo craned his neck to peer over the Bene Gesserit entourage. Duncan Idaho had entered the far portal and strode across the open floor of the chamber toward Leto. Moneo did not relax his wariness, his distrust of the Bene Gesserit, but he recognized the nature of Leto's lecture. He is testing, 
always testing. Antiac cleared her throat. Lord, what of our reward? You are brave, Leto said. No doubt that's why you were chosen for this embassy. Very well. For the next decade, I will continue your spice allotment at its present level. As for the rest, I will ignore what you really intended with the spice essence. Am I not generous? Most generous, Lord, Antiac said, and there was not the slightest hint of bitterness in her voice. Duncan Idaho brushed past the women then and stopped beside Moneo to peer up at Leto. My lord, there's... He broke off and glanced at the two reverend mothers. Speak openly, Leto commanded. Yes, my lord. There was reluctance in him, but he obeyed. We were attacked at the southeast edge of the city. A distraction, I believe, because there now are reports of more violence in the city and in the Forbidden Forest. Many scattered raiding parties. They are hunting my wolves, Leto said, in the forest and in the city. They are hunting my wolves. Idaho's brows contracted into a puzzled frown. Wolves in the city, my lord? Predators, Leto said. Wolves. To me there is no essential difference. Moneo gasped. Leto smiled at him, thinking how beautiful it was to observe a moment of realization, a veil pulled away from the eyes, the mind opened. I've brought a large force of guards to protect this place, Idaho said. They are posted through the... I knew you would, Leto said. Now pay close attention while I tell you where to send the rest of your forces. As the Reverend Mothers watched in awe, Leto laid out for Idaho the exact points for ambushes, detailing the size of each force and even some of the specific personnel, the timing, the necessary weapons, the precise deployments at each place. Idaho's capacious memory catalogued each instruction. He was too caught up in the recital to question it until Leto fell silent, but a look of puzzled fear came over Idaho then. For Leto, it was as though he peered directly into Idaho's most essential awareness to read the thoughts there. I was a trusted soldier of the original Lord Leto, Idaho was thinking. That Leto, the grandfather of this one, saved me and took me into his household like a son. But even though that Leto still has some kind of existence in this one, this is not him. My lord, why do you need me? Idaho asked. For your strength and loyalty. Idaho shook his head. But you obey, Leto said. And he noted the way these words were being absorbed by the reverend mothers. Truth, only truth, for they are truth-sayers. Because I owe a debt to the Atreides, Idaho said. That is where we place our trust, Leto said. And Duncan? My lord? Idaho's voice said he had found ground where he could stand. Leave at least one survivor at each place, Leto said. Otherwise our efforts are wasted. Idaho nodded once, curtly, and left, striding back across the hall the way he had come. And Leto thought it would take an extremely sensitive eye indeed to see that it was a different Idaho leaving, far different from the one who had entered. Antiac said, this comes of flogging that ambassador. Exactly, Leto agreed. Recount this carefully to your superior, the admirable Reverend Mother Siaxa. Tell her for me that I prefer the company of predators above that of the prey. He glanced at Moneo, who drew himself to attention. Moneo, the wolves are gone from my forest. 
They must be replaced by human wolves. See to it. The trance state of prophecy is like no other visionary experience. It is not a retreat from the raw exposure of the senses, as are many trance states, but an immersion in a multitude of new movements. Things move. It is an ultimate pragmatism in the midst of infinity, a demanding consciousness where you come at last into the unbroken awareness that the universe moves of itself, that it changes, that its rules change, that nothing remains permanent or absolute throughout all such movement, that mechanical explanations for anything can work only within precise confinements, and once the walls are broken down, the old explanations shatter and dissolve, blown away by new movements. The things you see in this trance are sobering, often shattering. They demand your utmost effort to remain whole, and even so, you emerge from that state profoundly changed. The Stolen Journals That night of audience day, while others slept and fought and dreamed and died, Leto took his repose in the isolation of his audience chamber, only a few trusted fish-speaker guards at the portals. He did not sleep. His mind whirled with necessities and disappointments. Hui! Hui! He knew why Hui Nori had been sent to him now. How well he knew. My most secret secret is exposed. They had discovered his secret. Hui was the evidence of it. He thought desperate thoughts. Could this terrible metamorphosis be reversed? Could he return to a human state? Not possible. Even if it were possible, the process would take him just as long as it had taken to reach this point. Where would Hui be in more than three thousand years? Dry dust and bones in the crypt. I could breed something like her and prepare that one for me but that would not be my gentle hui. And what of the golden path while he indulged in such selfish goals? To hell with the golden path! Have these folly-bound idiots ever thought once of me? Not once! But that was not true. Hui thought of him. She shared his torture. These were thoughts of madness, and he tried to put them away while his senses reported the soft movement of the guards and the flow of water beneath his chamber. When I made this choice, what were my expectations? How the mob within laughed at that question. Did he not have a task to complete? Was that not the very essence of the agreement which kept the mob in check? You have a task to complete, they said. You have but one purpose. Single purpose is the mark of the fanatic, and I am not a fanatic. You must be cynical and cruel. You cannot break the trust. Why not? Who took the oath? You did. You chose this course. Expectations. The expectations which history creates for one generation are often shattered in the next generation. Who knows that better than you? Yes, and shattered expectations can alienate whole populations. I alone am a whole population. Remember your oath. Indeed. I am the disruptive force unleashed across the centuries. I limit expectations, including my own. I dampen the pendulum. 
and then release it. Never forget that. I am tired. Oh, how tired I am. If only I could sleep. Really sleep. You're full of self-pity, too. Why not? What am I? The ultimate loner forced to look at what might have been. Every day I look at it. And now, we. Your original unselfish choice fills you now with selfishness. There is danger all around. I must wear my selfishness like a suit of armour. There's danger for everyone who touches you. Isn't that your very nature? Danger even for we. Dear, delectable, dear we. Did you build high walls around you only to sit within them and indulge in self-pity? The walls were built because great forces have been unleashed in my empire. You unleashed them. Will you now compromise with them? It's Hui's doing. These feelings have never before been this powerful in me. It's the damnable Ixians. How interesting that they should assault you with flesh rather than with a machine. Because they have discovered my secret. You know the antidote. Leto's great body trembled through its entire length at this thought. He well knew the antidote, which had always worked before, lose himself for a time in his own past. Not even the Bene Gesserit sisters could take such safaris, striking inward along the axis of memories, back, back to the very limits of cellular awareness, or stopping by a wayside to revel in a sophisticated sensory delight. Once. After the death of a particularly superb Duncan, he had toured great musical performances preserved in his memories. Mozart had tired him quickly. Pretentious. But Bach? Ah, Bach! Leto remembered the joy of it. I sat at the organ and let the music drench me. Only three times in all memory had there been an equal to Bach. But even Licallo was not better. As good, but not better. Would female intellectuals be the proper choice for this night? Grandmother Jessica had been one of the best. Experience told him that someone as close to him as Jessica would not be the proper antidote for his present tensions. The search would have to venture much farther. He imagined, then, describing such a safari to some awestruck visitor, a totally imaginary visitor because none would dare question him about such a holy matter. I course backward down the flight of ancestors, hunting along the tributaries, darting into nooks and crannies. You would not recognize many of their names. Who has ever heard of Norma Senva? I have lived her. Lived her? his imaginary visitor asked. Of course. Why else would one keep one's ancestors around? You think a man designed the first guild ship? Your history books told you it was Aurelius Venport? They lied. It was his mistress, Norma. She gave him the design, along with five children. He thought his ego would take no less. In the end, the knowledge that he had not really fulfilled his own image, that was what destroyed him. You have lived him, too? Naturally. And I have traversed the far wanderings of the Fremen. Through my father's line and the others I have gone right back to the house of Atreus. Such an illustrious line, with its fair share of fools. Distraction is what I need, he thought. 
Would it be a tour through sexual dalliances and exploits then? You have no idea what internal orgies are available to me. I am the ultimate voyeur, participant or participants, and observer or observers. Ignorance and misunderstandings about sexuality have caused so much distress. How abysmally narrow we have been, how miserly. Leto knew he could not make that choice, not this night, not with Hui out there in his city. Would he choose a review of warfare then? Which Napoleon was the greater coward? he asked his imaginary visitor. I will not reveal it, but I know. Oh, yes, I know. Where can I go? With all of the past open to me, where can I go? The brothels, the atrocities, the tyrants, the acrobats, nudists, surgeons, male whores, musicians, magicians, angenciers, priests, artisans, priestesses. Are you aware, he asked his imaginary visitor, that the hula preserves an ancient sign language which once belonged only to males? You've never heard of the hula? Of course. Who dances it any more? Dancers have preserved many things, though. The translations have been lost, but I know them. One whole night I was a series of caliphs, moving eastward and westward with Islam, a traverse of centuries. I will not bore you with the details. Be gone now, visitor. How seductive it is, he thought, this call of the siren which would have me live only in the past. And how useless that past now, thanks to the damnable Ixians. How boring the past when Hui is here. She would come to me right now if I summoned her. But I cannot call for her. Not now. Not tonight. The past continued to beckon. I could make a pilgrimage into my past. It does not have to be a safari. I could go alone. Pilgrimage purifies. Safaris make me into a tourist. That's the difference. I could go alone into my inner world. And never return. Leto felt the inevitability of it, that the dream state would eventually trap him. I create a special dream state throughout my empire. Within this dream, new myths form, new directions appear, and new movements. New, new, new. The things emerge from my own dreams out of my myths. Who more susceptible to them than I? The hunter is caught in his own net. Leto knew then that he had encountered a condition for which no antidote existed, past, present, or future. His great body trembled and shivered in the gloom of his audience chamber. At the portal, one fish speaker guard whispered to another, Is God troubled? And her companion replied, The sins of this universe would trouble anyone. Leto heard them and wept silently. When I set out to lead humankind along my golden path, I promised them a lesson their bones would remember. I know a profound pattern which humans deny with their words, even while their actions affirm it. They say they seek security and quiet, the condition they call peace. Even as they speak, they create the seeds of turmoil and violence. If they find their quiet security, they squirm in it. 
how boring they find it. Look at them now. Look at what they do while I record these words. Ha! I give them enduring eons of enforced tranquility which plods on and on despite their every effort to escape into chaos. Believe me, the memory of Leto's peace shall abide with them forever. They will seek their quiet security thereafter only with extreme caution and steadfast preparation. The Stolen Journals Much against his will, Idaho found himself at dawn with Siona beside him being taken to a safe place in an imperial ornithopter. It raced eastward toward the golden arc of sunlight which lifted over a landscape carved into rectangular green plantations. The thopter was a big one, large enough to carry a small squad of fish speakers with their two guests. The pilot captain of the squad, a brawny woman with a face Idaho could believe had never smiled, had given her name as Inmir. She sat in the pilot's seat directly ahead of Idaho. Two muscular fish-speaker guards on either side of her. Five more guards sat behind Idaho and Siona. God has ordered me to take you away from the city, Inmir had said, coming up to him in the command post beneath the central plaza. It is for your own safety. We will return by tomorrow morning for Sianok. Idaho, fatigued by a night of alarms, had sensed the futility of arguing against the orders of God himself. Inmir appeared quite capable of trundling him off under one of her thick arms. She had led him from the command post into a chilly night canopied with stars like stone-edged facets of shattered brilliance. It was only when they reached the thopter, and Idaho recognized Siona waiting there, that he had begun to question the purpose of this outing. During the night, Idaho had come to realize that not all of the violence in On had originated with the organized rebels. When he had inquired after Siona, Moneo had sent word that, My daughter is safely out of the way, adding at the end of the message, I commend her to your care. In the thopter, Siona had not responded to Idaho's questions. Even now she sat in sullen silence beside him. She reminded him of himself in those first bitter days when he had vowed vengeance against the Harkonnens. He wondered at her bitterness. What drove her? Without knowing why, Idaho found himself comparing Siona with Hui Nori. It had not been easy to encounter Hui, but he had managed it in spite of the importunate demands of fish speakers that he attend to duties elsewhere. Gentle. That was the word for Hui. She acted from a core of unchanging gentleness which was, in its own way, a thing of enormous power. He found this intensely attractive. I must see more of her. For now, though, he had to contend with the sullen silence of Siona seated beside him. Well, silence could be met with silence. Idaho peered down at the passing landscape. Here and there he could see the clustered lights of villages winking out as the sunlight approached. The desert of the Sarir lay far behind, and this was land that, by its appearance, might never have been parched. Some things do not change very much, he thought. They are merely taken from one place and reformed in another place. This landscape reminded him of Caladan's lush gardens and made him wonder what had become of the verdant planet where the Atreides had lived for so many generations before coming to Dune. 
He could identify narrow roads, market roads with a scattered traffic of vehicles drawn by six-legged animals which he guessed were horses. Monet had said that horses tailored to the needs of such a landscape were the main work beasts not only here, but throughout the empire. A population which walks is easier to control. Moneo's words rang in Idaho's memory as he peered downward. Pastureland appeared ahead of the thopter, softly rolling green hills cut into irregular patterns by black stone walls. Idaho recognized sheep and several kinds of large cattle. The thopter passed over a narrow valley still in gloom and with only a hint of the water coursing down its depths. A single light and a blue plume of smoke lifting out of the valley's shadows spoke of human occupation. Siona suddenly stirred and tapped their pilot on the shoulder, pointing off to the right ahead of them. Isn't that Goigoa over there? Siona asked. Yes. Inmir spoke without turning, her voice clipped and touched by some emotion which Idaho could not identify. Is that not a safe place? Siona asked. It is safe. Siona looked at Idaho. Order her to take us to Goigoa. Without knowing why he complied, Idaho said, Take us to that place. Inmir turned then, and her features, which Idaho had thought a square block of non-emotion during the night, revealed the clear evidence of some deep feeling. Her mouth was drawn down into a scowl, a nerve twitched at the corner of her right eye. Not Goigoa, Commander, Inmir said. There are better... Did the God Emperor tell you to take us to a specific place? Siona demanded. Inmir glared her anger at this interruption, but did not look directly at Siona. No, but he... Then take us to this Goigoa, Idaho said. Inmir jerked her attention back to the thopter's controls, and Idaho was thrown against Siona as the craft banked sharply and flew toward a round pocket nestled in the green hills. Idaho peered over Inmir's shoulder to look at their destination. At the very centre of the pocket lay a village built of the same black stones as the surrounding fences. Idaho saw orchards on some of the slopes above the village, terraced gardens rising in steps toward a small saddle where hawks could be seen gliding on the day's first updrafts. Looking at Siona, Idaho asked, What is this, Goigoa? You will see. Inmir set the thopter into a shallow glide which brought them to a gentle landing on a flat stretch of grass at the edge of the village. One of the fish speakers opened the door on the village side. Idaho's nostrils were immediately assaulted by a heady mixture of aromas, crushed grass, animal droppings, the acridity of cooking fires. He slipped out of the thopter and looked up a village street where people were emerging from their houses to stare at the visitors. Idaho saw an older woman in a long green dress bend over and whisper something to a child, who immediately turned and went dashing away up the street. Do you like this place? Siona asked. She dropped down beside him. It appears pleasant. Siona looked at Inmir as the pilot and the other fish speakers joined them on the grass. When do we go back to On? You do not go back, Inmir said. My orders are to take you to the citadel. The commander goes back. I see, Siona nodded. When will we leave? At dawn tomorrow. I will see the village leader about quarters. Inmir strode off into the village. Gorgor, Idaho said. That's a strange name. I wonder what this place was in the dune days. I happen to know, Siona said. 
It is on the old charts as Shulok, which means haunted place. The oral history says great crimes were committed here before all of the inhabitants were wiped out. Jackarutu, Idaho whispered, recalling the old legends of the water stealers. He glanced around, looking for the evidence of dunes and ridges. There was nothing. Only two older men with placid faces returning with Inmir. The men wore faded blue trousers and ragged shirts. Their feet were bare. Do you know this place? Siona asked. Only as a name and a legend. Some say there are ghosts, she said, but I do not believe it. Inmir stopped in front of Idaho and motioned the two barefooted men to wait behind her. The quarters are poor but adequate, she said, unless you would care to stay in one of the private residences. She turned and looked at Siona as she said this. We will decide later, Siona said. She took Idaho's arm. The commander and I wish to stroll through Goigoa and admire the sights. Inmir shaped her mouth to speak but remained silent. Idaho allowed Siona to lead him past the peering faces of the two local men. I will send two guards with you, Inmir called out. Siona stopped and turned. Is it not safe in Goigoa? It is very peaceful here, one of the men said. Then we will not need guards, Siona said. Have them guard the Thopter. Again she led Idaho toward the village. All right, Idaho said, disengaging his arm from Siona's grasp. What is this place? It is very likely that you will find this a very restful place, Siona said. It is not like the old Shulok at all. Very peaceful. You're up to something, Idaho said, striding beside her. What is it? I've always heard that Golas were full of questions, Siona said. I too have questions. Oh? What was he like in your day? The man later? Which one? Yes, I forget there were two. The grandfather and our later. I mean our later, of course. He was just a child. That's all I know. The oral history says one of his early brides came from this village. Brides? I thought, when he still had a manly shape. It was after the death of his sister, but before he began to change into the worm. The oral history says the brides of Leto vanished into the maze of the imperial citadel, never to be seen again except as faces and voices transmitted by Hollow. He has not had a bride for thousands of years. They had arrived at a small square at the centre of the village, a space about fifty metres on a side and with a low-walled pool of clear water in its centre. Siona crossed to the pool's wall and sat on the rock ledge, patting beside her for Idaho to join her there. Idaho looked around at the village first, noting how people peered out at him from behind curtained windows, how the children pointed and whispered. He turned and stood looking down at Siona. What is this place? I've told you. Tell me what Muad'Dib was like. He was the best friend a man could ever have. So the oral history is true, but it calls the caliphate of his heirs the Desposaini, and that has an evil sound. She's baiting me, Idaho thought. He allowed himself a tight smile, wondering at Siona's motives. She appeared to be waiting for some important event, anxious, even dreading but with an undertone of something like elation. 
It was all there. Nothing she said now could be accounted as more than small talk, a way of occupying the moments until... Until what? The light sound of running feet intruded on his reverie. Idaho turned and saw a child of perhaps eight years racing toward him out of a side street. The child's bare feet kicked up little dust geysers as he ran and there was the sound of a woman shouting. A despairing sound somewhere up the street. The runner stopped about ten paces away and stared up at Idaho with a hungering look, an intensity which Idaho found disturbing. The child appeared vaguely familiar, a boy, a stalwart figure with dark curly hair, an unfinished face but with hints of the man-to-be, rather high cheekbones, a flat line across the brows. He wore a faded blue single suit which betrayed the effects of much laundering, but obviously had begun as a garment of excellent material. It had the look of pungy cotton woven in a cord lock that did not permit even the frayed edges to unravel. You're not my father, the child said. Whirling away, he raced back up the street and vanished around a corner. Idaho turned and scowled at Siona, almost afraid to ask the question, was that a child of my predecessor? He knew the answer without asking. That familiar face, the genotype carried true. Myself as a child. Realization left him with an empty feeling, a sense of frustration. What is my responsibility? Siona put both hands over her face and hunched her shoulders. It had not happened at all the way she had imagined it might. She felt betrayed by her own desires for revenge. Idaho was not simply a gola, something alien and unworthy of consideration. She had felt him thrown against her in the thopter, had seen the obvious emotions on his face. And that child. What happened to my predecessor? Idaho asked. His voice came out flat and accusatory. She lowered her hands. There was suppressed rage in his face. We are not certain, she said. But he entered the citadel one day, and never emerged. That was his child? She nodded. You're sure you did not kill my predecessor? I. She shook her head, shocked by the doubts, the latent accusation in him. That child, that is the reason we came here? She swallowed. Yes. What am I supposed to do about him? She shrugged, feeling soiled and guilty because of her own actions. What about his mother? Idaho asked. She and the others live up that street. Siona nodded in the direction the boy had gone. Others? There is an older son. A daughter. Will you? I mean, I could arrange. No. The boy was right. I'm not his father. I'm sorry, Siona whispered. I should not have done this. Why did he choose this place? Idaho asked. The father. You're my predecessor. Because this was Irti's home, and she would not leave. That is what people said. Irti. The mother. Wife by the old rite. The one from the oral history. Idaho looked around at the stone fronts of the buildings which enclosed the square, the curtained windows, the narrow doors. So he lived here? When he could. How did he die, Siona? Truly, I do not know. But the worm has killed others. We know that for sure. How do you know it? He centered a probing stare on her face. The intensity of it forced her to look away. 
I do not doubt the stories of my ancestors, she said. They are told in bits and pieces, a note here, a whispered account there, but I believe them. My father believes them too. Moneo has said nothing to me of this. One thing you can say about the Atreides, she said, we're loyal, and that's a fact. We keep our word. Idaho opened his mouth to speak, closed it without making a sound. Of course. Siona too was Atreides. The thought shook him. He had known it, but he had not accepted it. Siona was some kind of a rebel, a rebel whose actions were almost sanctioned by Leto. The limits of his permission were unclear, but Idaho sensed them. You must not harm her, Leto had said. She is to be tested. Idaho turned his back on Siona. You don't know anything for sure, he said. Bits and pieces. Rumors. Siona did not respond. He's an Atreides, Idaho said. He's the worm, Siona said, and the venom in her voice was almost palpable. Your damned oral history is nothing but a bunch of ancient gossip, Idaho accused. Only a fool would believe it. You still trust him, she said. That will change. Idaho whirled and glared at her. You've never talked to him. I have. When I was a child. You're still a child. He's all of the Atreides who were, all of them. It's a terrible thing, but I knew those people. They were my friends. Siona only shook her head. Again, Idaho turned away. He felt that he had been wrung dry of emotion. He was spiritually boneless. Without willing it, he began walking across the square and up the street where the boy had gone. Siona came running after him and fell into step, but he ignored her. The street was narrow, enclosed by the one-story stone walls, the doors set back within arched frames, all of the doors closed. The windows were small versions of the doors, curtains twitched as he passed. At the first cross street, Idaho stopped and looked to the right, where the boy had gone. Two grey-haired women in long black skirts and dark green blouses stood a few paces away down the street, gossiping with their heads close together. They fell silent when they saw Idaho and stared at him with open curiosity. He returned their stare, then looked down the side street. It was empty. Idaho turned toward the women, passed them within a pace. They drew closer together and turned to watch him. They looked only once at Siona, then returned their attention to Idaho. Siona moved quietly beside him, an odd expression on her face. Sadness, he wondered. Regret? Curiosity? It was difficult to say. He was more curious about the doorways and windows they were passing. Have you ever been to Goigoa before? Idaho asked. No. Siona spoke in a subdued voice, as though afraid of it. Why am I walking down this street? Idaho wondered. Even as he asked himself the question, he knew the answer. This woman. This Eirti. What kind of a woman would bring me to Goigoa? The corner of a curtain on his right lifted and Idaho saw a face, the boy from the square. The curtain dropped, then was flung aside to reveal a woman standing there. Idaho stared speechlessly at her face, stopped in a completed step. It was the face of a woman known only to his deepest fantasies, a soft oval with penetrating dark eyes, a full and sensuous mouth. Jessica, he whispered, 
What did you say? Siona asked. Idaho could not answer. It was the face of Jessica, resurrected out of a past he had believed gone forever, a genetic prank. Muad'Dib's mother, recreated in new flesh. The woman closed the curtain, leaving the memory of her features in Idaho's mind, an afterimage which he knew he could never remove. She had been older than the Jessica who had shared their dangers on Dune, age lines beside the mouth and eyes, the body a bit more full. More motherly, Idaho told himself. Then, did I ever tell her who she resembled? Siona tugged at his sleeve. Do you wish to go in? To meet her? No. This was a mistake. Idaho started to turn back the way they had come, but the door of Irta's house was flung open. A young man emerged and closed the door behind him, turning then to confront Idaho. Idaho guessed the youth's age at sixteen, and there was no denying the parentage. That caracool hair, the strong features. You are the new one, the youth said. His voice had already deepened into manhood. Yes. Idaho found it difficult to speak. Why have you come? the youth asked. It was not my idea, Idaho said. He found this easier to say, the words driven by resentment against Siona. The youth looked at Siona. We have had word that my father is dead. Siona nodded. The youth returned his attention to Idaho. Please go away and do not return. You cause pain for my mother. Of course, Idaho said. Please apologize to the Lady Erti for this intrusion. I was brought here against my will. Who brought you? The fish speakers, Idaho said. The youth nodded once more, a curt movement of the head. He looked once more at Siona. I always thought that you fish speakers were taught to treat your own more kindly. With that, he turned and re-entered the house, closing the door firmly behind him. Idaho turned back the way they had come, grabbing Siona's arm as he strode away. She stumbled, then fell into step, disengaging his grasp. He thought I was a fish speaker, she said. Of course, you have the look. He glanced at her. Why didn't you tell me that Irti was a fish speaker? It didn't seem important. Oh. That's how they met. They came to the intersection with the street from the square. Idaho turned away from the square, striding briskly up to the end where the village merged into gardens and orchards. He felt insulated by shock, his awareness recoiling from too much that could not be assimilated. A low wall blocked his path. He climbed over it, heard Siona follow. Trees around them were in bloom, white flowers with orange centers where dark brown insects worked. The air was full of insect buzzing and a floral scent which reminded Idaho of jungle flowers from Caladan. He stopped when he reached the crest of a hill where he could turn and look back down at Goigoa's rectangular neatness. The roofs were flat and black. Siona sat down on the thick grass of the hilltop and embraced her knees. That was not what you intended, was it? Idaho asked. She shook her head and he saw that she was close to tears. Why do you hate him so much? he asked. We have no lives of our own. Idaho looked down at the village. Are there many villages like this one? This is the shape of the worm's empire. What's wrong with it? Nothing, if that's all you want. 
You're saying that this is all he allows? This? A few market cities? On? I'm told that even planetary capitals are just big villages. And I repeat, what's wrong with that? It's a prison. Then leave it. Where? How? You think we can just get on a guild ship and go anywhere else, anywhere we want? She pointed down toward Goigoa, where the thopter could be seen off to one side, the fish speakers seated on the grass nearby. Our jailers won't let us leave. They leave, Idaho said. They go anywhere they want, anywhere the worm sends them. She pressed her face against her knees and spoke, her voice muffled. What was it like in the old days? It was different, often very dangerous. He looked around at the walls which set off pasture land, gardens and orchards. Here on Dune there were no imaginary lines to show the limits of ownership on the land. It was all the dukedom of the Atreides, except for the Fremen. Yes, but they knew where they belonged, on this side of a particular escarpment, or beyond where the pan turns white against the sand. They could go wherever they wanted, with some limits. Some of us long for the desert, she said. You have the Sarir. She lifted her head to glare at him. That little thing? Fifteen hundred kilometres by five hundred. Not so little. Siona got to her feet. Have you asked the worm why he confines us this way? Leto's peace. The golden path to ensure our survival, that's what he says. Do you know what he told my father? I spied on them when I was a child. I hurt him. What did he say? He said he denies us most crises to limit our forming forces. He said, people can be sustained by affliction, but I am the affliction now. Gods can become afflictions. Those were his words, Duncan. The worm is a sickness. Idaho did not doubt the accuracy of her recital, but the words failed to stir him. He thought instead of the Corino he had been ordered to kill. Affliction. The Corino, descendant of a family which once had ruled this empire, had been revealed as a softly fat, middle-aged man who hungered after power and conspired for spice. Idaho had ordered a fish speaker to kill him, an act which had aroused Moneo to a fit of intense questioning. Why didn't you kill him yourself? I wanted to see how the fish speakers performed. And your judgment of their performance? Efficient. But the death of the Corino had inflicted Idaho with a sense of unreality. A fat little man lying in a pool of his own blood. An undistinguished shadow among the night shadows of a plastone street. It was unreal. Idaho could remember Muad'Dib saying, The mind imposes this framework which it calls reality. That arbitrary framework has a tendency to be quite independent of what your senses report. What reality? moved the Lord Leto. Idaho looked at Siona standing against the orchard background and the green hills of Goigoa. Let's go down to the village and find our quarters. I'd like to be alone. The fish speakers will put us in the same quarters. With them? No, just the two of us together. The reason's simple enough. The worm wants me to breed with the great Duncan Idaho. I pick my own partners. Idaho growled. I'm sure one of our fish speakers would be delighted, Siona said. She whirled away from him and set off down the hill. Idaho watched her for a moment, 
the lithe young body swaying like the limbs of the orchard trees in the wind. I'm not his stud, Idaho muttered. That's one thing he'll have to understand. As each day passes, you become increasingly unreal, more alien and remote from what I find myself to be on that new day. I am the only reality, and as you differ from me, you lose reality. The more curious I become, the less curious are those who worship me. Religion suppresses curiosity. What I do subtracts from the worshipper. Thus it is that eventually I will do nothing, giving it all back to frightened people who will find themselves on that day alone and forced to act for themselves. The Stolen Journals It was a sound like no other, the sound of a waiting mob, and it came down the long tunnel to where Idaho marched ahead of the royal cart, Nervous whispers magnified into an ultimate whisper, the shuffling of one gigantic foot, the stirring of an enormous garment, and the smell, sweet perspiration mixed with the milky breath of sexual excitement. Inmir and the others of his fish-speaker escort had brought Idaho here in the first hour after dawn, coming down to the plaza of On where it lay in cold green shadows. They had lifted off immediately after turning him over to other fish-speakers. Inmir obviously unhappy because she was required to take Siona to the citadel and thus would miss the ritual of Sianok. The new escort, vibrant with repressed emotion, had taken him into a region deep beneath the plaza, a place not on any of the city charts Idaho had studied. It was a maze, first one direction and then another through corridors wide enough and high enough to accommodate the royal cart. Idaho lost track of directions and fell to reflecting on the preceding night. The sleeping quarters in Goigoa, although spartan and small, had been comfortable. Two cots to a room, each room a box with whitewashed walls, a single window and a single door. The rooms were strung along a corridor in a building designated as Goigoa's guest house. And Siona had been right. Without asking if it suited him, Idaho had been quartered with her, in mere acting as though this were an accepted thing. When the door closed on them, Siona said, If you touch me, I will try to kill you. It was uttered with such dry sincerity that Idaho almost laughed. I would prefer privacy, he said. Consider yourself alone. He had slept with a light wariness, remembering dangerous nights in the Atreides' service, the readiness for combat. The room was seldom truly dark, moonlight coming through the curtained window, even starlight reflecting from the chalk-white walls. He had found himself nervously sensitive to Siona, to the smell of her, the stirrings, her breathing. Several times he had come fully awake to listen, aware on two of those occasions that she too was listening. Morning, and the flight to On had come as a relief. They had broken their fast with a drink of cold fruit juice, Idaho glad to enter the pre-dawn darkness for a brisk walk to the Thopter. He did not speak directly to Siona, and he found himself resenting the curious glances of the fish-speakers. Siona spoke to him only once, leaning out of the thopter as he left it in the plaza. It would not offend me to be your friend, she said. Such a curious way of putting it. He had felt vaguely embarrassed. Yes, well, certainly. 
The new escort had led him away then, coming at last to a terminal in the maze. Leto awaited him there on the royal cart. The meeting place was a wide spot in a corridor which stretched off into the converging distance on Idaho's right. The walls were dark brown, streaked with golden lines which glittered in the yellow light of glow globes. The escort took up positions behind the cart, moving smartly and leaving Idaho to stand confronting Leto's cowled face. Duncan, you will precede me when we go to Sianok, Leto said. Idaho stared into the dark, blue wells of the god-emperor's eyes, angered by the mystery and secrecy, the obvious air of private excitement in this place. He felt that everything he had been told about Sianok only deepened the mystery. Am I truly the commander of your guard, my lord? Idaho asked, resentment heavy in his voice. Indeed, and I bestow a signal honour upon you now. Few adult males ever share Sianok. What happened in the city last night? Bloody violence in some places. It is quite calm this morning, however. Casualties? Not worth mentioning. Idaho nodded. Leto's prescient powers had warned of some peril to his Duncan. Thus the flight into the rural safety of Goigoa. You have been to Goigoa, Leto said. Were you tempted to stay? No. Do not be angry with me. Leto said, I did not send you to Goigoa. Idaho sighed. What was the danger which required that you send me away? It was not to you, Leto said, but you excite my guards to excessive displays of their abilities. Last night's activities did not require this. Oh? This thought shocked Idaho. He had never thought of himself as one to inspire particular heroism unless he personally demanded it. One whipped up the troops. Leaders such as the original Leto, this one's grandfather, had inspired by their presence. You are extremely precious to me, Duncan, Leto said. Yes. Well, I'm still not your stud. Your wishes will be honoured, of course. We will discuss it another time. Idaho glanced at the fish speaker escort, all of them wide-eyed and attentive. Is there always violence when you come to On? Idaho asked. It goes in cycles. The malcontents are quite subdued now. It will be more peaceful for a time. Idaho looked back at Leto's inscrutable face. What happened to my predecessor? Haven't my fish speakers told you? They say he died in defence of his god, and you have heard a contrary rumour. What happened? He died because he was too close to me. I did not remove him to a safe place in time. A place like Goigoa. I would have preferred him to live out his days there in peace, but you well know, Duncan, that you are not a seeker after peace. Idaho swallowed, encountering an odd lump in his throat. I would still like the particulars of his death. He has a family. You will get the particulars. And do not fear for his family. They are my wards. I will keep them safely at a distance. You know how violence seeks me out. That is one of my functions. It is unfortunate that those I admire and love must suffer because of this. Idaho pursed his lips, not satisfied with what he heard. Set your mind at ease, Duncan, Leto said. Your predecessor died because he was too close to me. The fish speaker escort stirred restively. Idaho glanced at them, then looked to the right up the tunnel. Yes, it is time, Leto said. We must not keep the women waiting. 
March close ahead of me, Duncan, and I will answer your questions about Sianok. Obedient, because he could think of no suitable alternative, Idaho turned on his heel and led off the procession. He heard the cart creak into motion behind him, the faint footsteps of the escort following. The cart fell silent, with an abruptness which jerked Idaho's attention around. The reason was immediately apparent. You're on the suspensus, he said, returning his attention to the front. I have retracted the wheels because the women will press close around me, Plato said. We can't crush their feet. What is Sianok? What is it really? Idaho asked. I have told you. It is the great sharing. Do I smell spice? Your nostrils are sensitive. There is a small amount of melange in the wafers. Idaho shook his head. Trying to understand this event, Idaho had asked Leto directly at the first opportunity after arrival in On, what is the feast of Sianok? We share a wafer, no more. Even I partake. Is it like the orange Catholic ritual? Oh no, it is not my flesh. It is the sharing. They are reminded that they are only female, as you are only male. But I am all. They share with the all. Idaho had not liked the tone of this. Only male? Do you know who they lampoon at the feast, Duncan? Who? Men who have offended them. Listen to them when they talk softly among themselves. Idaho had taken this as a warning. Don't offend the fish speakers. You incur their wrath at your mortal peril. Now as he marched ahead of Leto in the tunnel, Idaho felt that he had heard the words correctly but learned nothing from them. He spoke over his shoulder. I don't understand the sharing. We are together in the ritual. You will see it. You will feel it. My fish speakers are the repository of a special knowledge, an unbroken line which only they share. Now you will partake of it, and they will love you for it. Listen to them carefully. They are open to ideas of affinity. Their terms of endearment for each other have no reservations. More words, Idaho thought. More mystery. He could discern a gradual widening in the tunnel. The ceiling sloped higher. There were more glow globes tuned now into the deep orange. He could see the high arch of an opening about three hundred metres away, rich red light there in which he could make out glistening faces which swayed gently left and right. Their bodies below the faces presented a dark wall of clothing. The perspiration of excitement was thick here. As he neared the waiting women, Idaho saw a passage through them and a ramp slanting up to a low ledge on his right. A great arched ceiling curved away above the women, a gigantic space illuminated by glow globes tuned high into the red. Go up the ramp on your right, Oleto said. Stop just beyond the centre of the ledge and turn to face the women. Idaho lifted his right hand in acknowledgement. He was emerging into the open space now, and the dimensions of this enclosed place awed him. He set his trained eyes the task of estimating the dimensions as he mounted to the ledge, and guessed the hall to be at least eleven hundred metres on a side. A square with rounded corners. It was packed with women, and Idaho reminded himself that these were only the chosen representatives of the far-scattered fish-speaker regiments, three women from each planet. 
They stood now, their bodies pressed so close together that Idaho doubted one of them could fall. They had left only a space about fifty meters wide along the ledge where Idaho now stopped and surveyed the scene. The faces looked up at him. Faces. Faces. Leto stopped his cart just behind Idaho and lifted one of his silver-skinned arms. Immediately a roaring cry of, Sianok! Sianok! filled the great hall. Idaho was deafened by it. Surely that sound must be heard throughout the city, he thought, unless we are too far underground. My brides, Leto said, I welcome you to Sianok. Idaho glanced up at Leto saw the dark eyes glistening, the radiant expression. Leto had said, This cursed holiness, but he basked in it. Has Muneo ever seen this gathering? Idaho wondered. It was an odd thought, but Idaho knew its origin. There had to be some other mortal human with whom this could be discussed. The escort had said Muneo was dispatched on affairs of state, whose details they did not know. Hearing this, Idaho had felt himself sense another element in Leto's government. The lines of power extended directly from Leto out into the populace, but the lines did not often cross. That required many things, including trusted servants who would accept responsibility for carrying out orders without question. Few see the god-emperor do hurtful things, Siona had said. Is that like the Atreides you knew? Idaho looked out over the massed fish speakers as these thoughts flitted through his mind. The adulation in their eyes. The awe. How had Leto done this? Why? My beloveds, Leto said. His voice boomed out over the upturned faces, carried to the farthest corners by subtle Ixian amplifiers concealed in the royal cart. The steaming images of the women's faces filled Idaho with memory of Leto's warning. Incur their wrath at your mortal peril. It was easy to believe that warning in this place. One word from Leto and these women would tear an offender to pieces. They would not question. They would act. Idaho began to feel a new appreciation of these women as an army. Personal peril would not stop them. They served God. The royal cart creaked slightly as Leto arched his front segments upward, lifting his head. You are the keepers of the faith, Leto said. They replied as one voice. Lord, we obey. In me you live without end, Leto said. We are the infinite, they shouted. I love you as I love no others, Leto said. Love, they screamed. Idaho shuddered. I give you my beloved Duncan, Leto said. Love, they screamed. Idaho felt his whole body trembling. He felt that he might collapse from the weight of this adulation. He wanted to run away, and he wanted to stay and accept this. There was power in this room. Power. In a lower voice, Leto said, Change the guard. The women bowed their heads, a single movement, unhesitating. From off to Idaho's right, a line of women in white gowns appeared. They marched into the open space below the ledge, and Idaho noted that some of them carried babies and small children, none more than a year or two old. From the outline explanation provided him earlier, Idaho recognized these women as the ones leaving the immediate service of the fish speakers. Some would become priestesses, and some would spend full time as mothers. 
but none would truly leave Leto's service. As he looked down on the children, Idaho thought how the buried memory of this experience must be impressed on any of the male children. They would carry the mystery of it throughout their lives, a memory lost to consciousness but always present, shading responses from this moment onward. The last of the newcomers came to a stop below Leto and looked up at him. The other women in the hall now lifted their faces and focused on Leto. Idaho glanced left and right. The white-clad women filled the space below the ledge for at least five hundred metres in both directions. Some of them lifted their children toward Leto. The awe and submission was something absolute. If Leto ordered it, Idaho sensed, these women would smash their babies to death against the ledge. They would do anything. Leto lowered his front segments onto the cart. A gentle rippling motion. He peered down benignly and his voice came as a soft caress. I give you the reward which your faith and service have earned. Ask and it shall be given. The entire hall reverberated to the response, It shall be given. What is mine is thine, Leto said. What is mine is thine, the women shouted. Share with me now, Leto said, the silent prayer for my intercession in all things, that humankind may never end. As one, every head in the hall bowed. The white-clad women cradled their children close, looking down at them. Idaho felt the silent unity, a force which sought to enter him and take him over. He opened his mouth wide and breathed deeply, fighting against something which he sensed as a physical invasion. His mind searched frantically for something to which he could cling, something to shield him. These women were an army whose force and union Idaho had not suspected. He knew he did not understand this force. He could only observe it, recognize that it existed. This was what Leto had created. Leto's words from a meeting at the Citadel came back to Idaho. Loyalty in a male army fastens onto the army itself, rather than onto the civilization which fosters the army. Loyalty in a female army fastens onto the leader. Idaho stared out across the visible evidence of Leto's creation, seeing the penetrating accuracy of those words, fearing that accuracy. He offers me a share in this, Idaho thought. His own response to Leto's words struck Idaho now as puerile. I don't see the reason, Idaho had said. Most people are not creatures of reason. No army, male or female, guarantees peace. Your empire isn't peaceful. You only, my fish speakers, have provided you with our histories. Yes, but I've also walked about in your city and I've watched your people. Your people are aggressive, you see, Duncan. Peace encourages aggression, and you say that your golden path is not precisely peace. It is tranquility, a fertile ground for the growth of rigid classes and many other forms of aggression. You talk riddles. I talk accumulated observations which tell me that the peaceful posture is the posture of the defeated. It is the posture of the victim. Victims invite aggression. Your damned enforced tranquility. What good does it do? If there is no enemy, one must be invented. The military force which is denied an external target always turns against its own people. What's your game? 
I modify the human desire for war. People don't want war, they want chaos. War is the most readily available form of chaos. I don't believe any of this. You're playing some dangerous game of your own. Very dangerous. I address ancient wellsprings of human behaviour to redirect them. The danger is that I could suppress the forces of human survival. But I assure you that my golden path endures. You haven't suppressed antagonism. I dissipate energies in one place and point them toward another place. What you cannot control, you harness. What's to keep your female army from taking over? I am their leader. As he looked out over the massed women in the Great Hall, Idaho could not deny the focus of leadership. He saw also that part of this adulation was directed at his own person. The temptation in this held him fixated. Anything he wanted from them. Anything. The latent power in this Great Hall was explosive. This realization forced him into a deeper questioning of Leto's earlier words. Leto had said something about exploding violence. Even as he watched the women at their silent prayer, Idaho recalled what Leto had said. Men are susceptible to class fixations. They create layered societies. The layered society is an ultimate invitation to violence. It does not fall apart. It explodes. Women never do this? Not unless they are almost completely male-dominated or locked into a male role model. The sexes can't be that different, but they are. Women make common cause based on their sex, a cause which transcends class and caste. That is why I let my women hold the reins. Idaho was forced to admit that these praying women held the reins. What part of that power would he pass into my hands? The temptation was monstrous. Idaho found himself trembling with it. With chilling abruptness, he realized that this must be Leto's intention. To tempt me. On the floor of the great hall, the women finished their prayer and lifted their gaze to Leto. Idaho felt that he had never before seen such rapture in human faces, not in the ecstasy of sex, not in glorious victory at arms. Nowhere had he seen anything to approach this intense adulation. Duncan Idaho stands beside me today, Leto said. Duncan is here to declare his loyalty that all may hear it. Duncan? Idaho felt a physical chill shoot through his intestines. Leto gave him a simple choice. Declare your loyalty to the god-emperor, or die. If I sneer, vacillate, or object in any way, the women will kill me with their own hands. A deep anger suffused Idaho. He swallowed, cleared his throat, then... Let no one question my loyalty. I am loyal to the Atreides. He heard his own voice booming out over the room, amplified by Leto's Ixian device. The effect startled Idaho. We share, the women screamed. We share, we share. We share, Leto said. Young fish-speaker trainees, identifiable by their short green robes, swarmed into the hall from all sides, little knots of movement which eddied throughout the pattern of the adoring faces. Each trainee carried a tray piled high with tiny brown wafers. As the trays moved through the throng, hands reached out in waves of graceful grasping, an undulant dancing of the arms. Each hand took a wafer and held it aloft. 
When a tray bearer came to the ledge and lifted her burden toward Idaho, Leto said, Take two and pass one into my hand. Idaho knelt and took two wafers. The things felt crisp and fragile. He stood and passed one gently to Leto. In a stentorian voice, Leto asked, Has the new guard been chosen? Yes, Lord, the women shouted. Do you keep my faith? Yes, Lord. Do you walk the golden path? Yes, Lord. The vibration of the women's shouts sent shockwaves through Idaho, stunning him. Do we share? Leto asked. Yes, Lord. As the women responded, Leto popped his wafer into his mouth. Each mother below the ledge took a bite from her wafer and offered the rest to her child. The massed fish speakers behind the white-clad women lowered their arms and ate their wafers. Duncan, eat your wafer, Leo said. Idaho slipped the thing into his mouth. His gola body had not been conditioned to the spice, but memory spoke to his senses. The wafer tasted faintly bitter with a soft undertone of melange. The taste swept old memories through Idaho's awareness, meals in Sietch, banquets at the Atreides residency, the way spice flavors permeated everything in the old days. As he swallowed the wafer, Idaho grew conscious of the stillness in the hall, a breath held quiet into which came a loud click from Leto's cart. Idaho turned and sought the source of the sound. Leto had opened a compartment in the bed of his cart and was removing a crystal box from it. The box glowed with a blue-gray inner light. Leto placed the box on the bed of his cart, opened the glowing lid and removed a crisp knife. Idaho recognized the blade immediately, the hawk engraved on the handle's butt, the green jewels at the hilt. The crisp knife of poor Muad'Dib. Idaho found himself deeply moved at the sight of this blade. He stared at it as though the image in his eyes might reproduce the original owner. Leto lifted the blade and held it high, revealing the elegant curve and milky iridescence. The talisman of our lives, Leto said. The women remained silent, raptly attentive. The knife of Muad'Dib, Leto said. The tooth of Shaikhulud. Will Shaikhulud come again? The response was a subdued murmur made deeply powerful by contrast with the previous shouting. Yes, Lord. Idaho returned his attention to the enraptured faces of the fish speakers. Who is Shai Hulud? Leto asked. Again that deep murmur. You, Lord. Idaho nodded to himself. Here was undeniable evidence that Leto had tapped into a monstrous reservoir of power never before unleashed in quite this way. Leto had said it, but the words were a meaningless noise compared to the things seen and felt in this great hall. Leto's words came back to Idaho, though, as if they had waited for this moment to cloak themselves in their true meaning. Idaho recalled that they had been in the crypt, that dank and shadowy place which Leto seemed to find so attractive, but which Idaho found so repellent, the dust of centuries there and the odors of ancient decay. I have been forming this human society, shaping it for more than three thousand years, opening a door out of adolescence for the entire species, Plato had said. Nothing you say explains a female army, Idaho had protested. Rape is foreign to women, Duncan. You ask for a sex-rooted behavioral difference, there's one. 
Stop changing the subject. I do not change it. Reap was always the payoff in male military conquests. Males did not have to abandon any of their adolescent fantasies while engaging in rape. Idaho recalled the glowering anger which had come over him at this thrust. My hoaries tame the males, Leto said. It is domestication, a thing that females know from eons of necessity. Idaho stared wordlessly at Leto's cowled face. To tame, Leto said, to fit into some orderly survival pattern. Women learned it at the hands of men. Now men learn it at the hands of women. But you said, My quarries often submit to a form of rape at first, only to convert this into a deep and binding mutual dependence. Damn it, you're binding, Duncan. Binding. I don't feel bound to... Education takes time. You are the ancient norm against which the new can be measured. Leto's words momentarily flushed Idaho of all emotion except a deep sense of loss. My hoaries teach maturation, Leto said. They know that they must supervise the maturation of males. Through this they find their own maturation. Eventually, hoaries merge into wives and mothers, and we wean the violent drives away from their adolescent fixations. I'll have to see it to believe it. You will see it at the great sharing. As he stood beside Leto in the hall of Sianok, Idaho admitted to himself that he had seen something of enormous power, something which might create the kind of human universe Leto's words projected. Leto was restoring the Chris knife to its box, returning the box to its compartment in the bed of the royal cart. The women watched in silence, even the small children quiet, everyone subdued by the force which could be felt in this great hall. Idaho looked down at the children, knowing from Leto's explanation that these children would be rewarded with positions of power, male or female, each in a puissant niche. The male children would be female-dominated throughout their lives, making, in Leto's words, an easy transition from adolescence into breeding males. Fish speakers and their progeny lived lives possessed of a certain excitement not available to most others. What will happen to Irti's children? Idaho wondered. Did my predecessor stand here and watch his white-clad wife shared in Leto's ritual? What does Leto offer me here? With that female army, an ambitious commander could take over Leto's empire. Or could he? No. Not while Leto lived. Leto said the women were not militarily aggressive by nature. He said... I do not foster that in them. They know a cyclical pattern with a royal festival every ten years, a changing of the guard, a blessing for the new generation, a silent thought for fallen sisters and loved ones gone forever. Sianok after Sianok marches onward in predictable measure. The change itself becomes non-change. Idaho lifted his gaze from the women in white and their children. He looked across the mass of silent faces, telling himself that this was only a small core of that enormous female force which spread its feminine web across the empire. He could believe Leto's words. The power does not weaken. It grows stronger every decade. To what end? Idaho asked himself. He glanced at Leto, who was lifting his hands in benediction over the hall of his hoaries. We will move among you now, Leto said. The women below the ledge opened a path, 
pressing backward. The path opened deeper into the throng like a fissure spreading through the earth after some tremendous natural upheaval. Duncan, you will precede me, Plato said. Idaho swallowed in a dry throat. He put a palm on the lip of the ledge and dropped down into the open space, moving out into the fissure because he knew only that could end this trial. A quick glance backward showed him Leto's cart drifting majestically down on its suspensors. Idaho turned and quickened his path. The women narrowed the path through their ranks. It was done in an odd stillness, with fixity of attention, first on Idaho, and then on that gross, pre-worm body riding behind Idaho on the Ixian cart. As Idaho marched stoically ahead, women reached from all sides to touch him, to touch Leto or merely to touch the royal cart. Idaho felt the restrained passion in their touch and knew the deepest fear in his experience. The problem of leadership is inevitably who will play God. Muad'Dib from the Oral History Huinori followed a young fish-speaker guide down a wide ramp which spiraled into the depths of On. The summons from the Lord Leto had come in late evening of the festival's third day, interrupting a development which had taxed her ability to maintain emotional balance. Her first assistant, Othwe Yake, was not a pleasant man. A sandy-haired creature with a long, narrow face and eyes which never looked long at anything, and never ever looked directly into the eyes of someone he addressed. Yake had presented her with a single sheet of memorace paper containing what he described as a summation of recently reported violence in the festival city. Standing close to the desk at which she was seated, he had stared down somewhere to her left and said, Fish speakers are slaughtering face dancers throughout the city. He did not appear particularly moved by this. Why? she demanded. It is said that the Bene Tleelax made an attempt on the god emperor's life. A thrill of fear shot through her. She sat back and glanced around the ambassadorial office, a round room with a single half-circle desk which concealed the controls for many Ixian devices beneath its highly polished surface. The room was a darkly important-appearing place, with brown wood panels covering instruments which shielded it from spying. There were no windows. Trying not to show her upset, Hui looked at Yake. And the Lord Leto is... The attempt on his life appears to have been totally without effect. But it might explain that flogging. Then you think there was such an attempt? Yes. The fish speaker from the Lord Leto entered at that moment hard on the announcement of her presence in the outer office. She was followed by a Bene Gesserit crone, the person she introduced as the Reverend Mother Antioch. Antioch stared intently at Yake while the fish speaker, a young woman with smooth, almost childlike features, delivered her message. He told me to remind you, return quickly if I summon you. He summons you. Yake began fidgeting as the fish speaker spoke. He darted his attention all around the room as though looking for something which was not there. Hui paused only to pull a dark blue robe over her gown, instructing Yake to remain in the office until she returned. 
In orange evening light outside the embassy, on a street oddly empty of other traffic, Antioch looked at the fish speaker and said simply, Yes. Antioch left them then, and the fish speaker had brought we through empty streets to a tall, windowless building whose depths contained this down-plunging spiral ramp. The tight curves of the ramp made Hui dizzy. Brilliant tiny white glow globes drifted in the central well, illuminating a purple-green vine with elephantine leaves. The vine was suspended on shimmering golden wires. The soft black surface of the ramp swallowed the sounds of their feet, making Hui extremely conscious of the faint abrasive swishing caused by the movements of her robe. Where are you taking me? Hui asked. To the Lord Leto. I know, but where is he? In his private room. It's awfully far down. Yes, the Lord often prefers the depths. It makes me dizzy walking around and around like this. It helps if you do not look at the vine. What is that plant? It is called a tanyan vine and is supposed to have absolutely no smell. I've never heard of it. Where does it come from? Only the Lord Leto knows. They walked on in silence, Hui trying to understand her own feelings. The god emperor filled her with sadness. She could sense the man in him, the man who might have been. Why had such a man chosen this course for his life? Did anyone know? Did Moneo know? Perhaps Duncan Idaho knew. Her thoughts gravitated to Idaho. Such a physically attractive man, so intense. She could feel herself drawn to him. If only Leto had the body and appearance of Idaho. Moneo, though, that was another matter. She looked at the back of her fish speaker escort. Can you tell me about Moneo? Hui asked. The fish speaker glanced back over her shoulder, an awed expression in her pale blue eyes apprehension or some bizarre form of awe. Is something wrong? Hui asked. The fish speaker returned her attention to the downward spiral of the ramp. The Lord said you would ask about Moneo, she said. Then tell me about him. What is there to say? He is the Lord's closest confidant. Closer even than Duncan Idaho. Oh yes, Moneo is an Atreides. Moneo came to me yesterday, Hui said. He said I should know something about the God Emperor. Moneo said the God Emperor is capable of doing anything, anything at all if it is thought to be instructive. Many believe this, the fish speaker said. You do not believe it? Hui asked the question as the ramp rounded a final turn and opened into a small anteroom with an arched entrance only a few steps away. The Lord Leto will receive you immediately, the fish speaker said. She turned back up the ramp then without speaking of her own belief. Hui stepped through the arch and found herself in a low-ceilinged room. It was much smaller than the audience chamber. The air felt crisp and dry. Pale yellow light came from a concealed source at the upper corners. She allowed her eyes to adjust to the lowered illumination noting carpets and soft cushions scattered around a low mound of... She put a hand to her mouth as the mound moved, 
realizing then that it was the Lord Leto on his cart. But the cart lay in a sunken area. She knew immediately why the room provided this feature. It made him less imposing to human guests, less overpowering by his physical elevation. Nothing could be done, however, about his length and the inescapable mass of his body, except to keep them in shadows, throwing most of the light onto his face and hands. Come in and sit down, Leto said. He spoke in a low voice, pleasantly conversational. We crossed to a red cushion only a few meters in front of Leto's face and sat on it. Leto watched her movements with obvious pleasure. She wore a dark golden gown, and her hair was tied back in braids, which made her face appear fresh and innocent. I have sent your message to Ix, she said, and I have told them that you wish to know my age. Perhaps they will answer, he said. Their answer may even be truthful. I would like to know when I was born, all of the circumstances, she said, but I don't know why this interests you. Everything about you interests me. They will not like it that you make me the permanent ambassador. Your masters are a curious mixture of punctilio and laxity, he said. I do not suffer fools gladly. You think me a fool, Lord. Molky was not a fool. Neither are you, my dear. I have not heard from my uncle in years. Sometimes I wonder if he still lives. Perhaps we will learn that as well. Did Malky ever discuss with you my practice of tequila? She thought about this a moment. Then, it was called Ketman among the ancient Fremen? Yes, it is the practice of concealing the identity when revealing it might be harmful. I recall it now. He told me you wrote pseudonymous histories, some of them quite famous. That was the occasion when we discussed tequila. Why do you speak of this, Lord? To avoid other subjects. Did you know that I wrote the books of Noah Arkwright? She could not suppress a chuckle. How amusing, Lord. I was required to read about his life. I wrote that account, too. What secrets were you asked to wrest from me? She did not even blink at his strategic change of subject. They are curious about the inner workings of the religion of the Lord Leto. Are they now? They wish to know how you took religious control away from the Bene Gesserit. No doubt hoping to repeat my performance for themselves. I'm sure that's in their minds, Lord. Hui, you are a terrible representative of the Ixians. I am your servant, Lord. Have you no curiosities of your own? I fear that my curiosities might disturb you, she said. He stared at her a moment, then, I see, yes, you are right. We should avoid more intimate conversation for now. Would you like me to talk about the sisterhood? Yes, that would be good. Do you know that I met one of the Bene Gesserit delegation today? That would be Antioch. I found her frightening, she said. You have nothing to fear from Antioch. She went to your embassy at my command. Were you aware that you had been invaded by face dancers? We gasped, then held herself still while a cold sensation filled her breast. Oh, Yake, she asked. You suspected? It's just that I did not like him, 
and I had been told that- She shrugged, then as realization swept over her. What has happened to him? The original? He is dead. That's the usual face dancer practice in such circumstances. My fish speakers have explicit orders to leave no face dancer alive in your embassy. We remained silent, but tears trickled down her cheeks. This explained the empty streets. Antioch's enigmatic, yes. It explained many things. I will provide fish speaker assistance for you until you can make other arrangements, Leto said. My fish speakers will guard you well. We shook the tears from her face. The inquisitors of Ix would react with rage against Tlilax. Would Ix believe her report? Everyone in her embassy taken over by face dancers. It was difficult to believe. Everyone? She asked. The face dancers had no reason to leave any of your original people alive. You would have been next. She shuddered. They delayed, he said, because they knew they would have to copy you with a precision to defy my senses. They are not sure about my abilities. Then Antioch, the sisterhood and I share an ability to detect face dancers, and Antioch, well, she is very good at what she does. No one trusts the Tlilaxu, she said. Why haven't they been wiped out long ago? Specialists have their uses as well as their limitations. You surprise me, Hui. I had not suspected you could be that bloody-minded. The Tlilaxu, they are too cruel to be human. They aren't human. I assure you that humans can be just as cruel. I myself have been cruel on occasion. I know, Lord. With provocation, he said. But the only people I have considered eliminating are the Bene Gesserit. Her shock was too great for words. They are so close to what they should be, and yet so far, he said. She found her voice. But the oral history says- The religion of the Reverend Mothers, yes. Once they designed specific religions for specific societies, they called it engineering. How does that strike you? Callous. Indeed, the results fit the mistake. Even after all the grand attempts at ecumenism, there were countless gods, minor deities, and would-be prophets throughout the empire. You changed that, Lord. Somewhat. But gods die hard, we. My monotheism dominates, but the original pantheon remains. It has gone underground in various disguises. Lord, I sense in your words, uh, she shook her head. Am I as coldly calculating as the sisterhood? She nodded. It was the Fremen who defied my father, the great Muad'Dib, although he doesn't really care to be called great. But were the Fremen, were they right? My dearest we. They were sensitive to the uses of power, and they were greedy to maintain their ascendancy. I find this disturbing, Lord. I can see that. You don't like the idea that becoming a god could be that simple, as though anyone could do it. It sounds much too casual, Lord. Her voice had a remote and testing quality. I assure you that anyone could not do it.
But you imply that you inherited your godhood from- Never suggest that to a fish speaker, he said. They react violently against heresy. She tried to swallow in a dry throat. I say this only to protect you, he said. Her voice was faint. Thank you, Lord. My godhood began when I told the Fremen I no longer could give the death water to the tribes. You know about the death water. In the dune days, the water recovered from the bodies of the dead, she said. Ah, you have read Noah Arkwright, she managed a faint smile. I told my Fremen the water would be consecrated to a supreme deity, left nameless. Fremen were still allowed to control this water through my largesse. Water must have been very precious in those days. Very. And I, as delegate of this nameless deity, held loose control of that precious water for almost 300 years. She chewed at her lower lip. It still sounds calculating, he asked. She nodded. It was. When it came time to consecrate my sister's water, I performed a miracle. The voices of all the Atreides spoke from Ghani's urn. Thus my Fremen discovered that I was their supreme deity. We spoke fearfully, her voice full of puzzled uncertainties at this revelation. Lord, are you telling me that you are not really a god? I am telling you that I do not play hide and seek with death. She stared at him for several minutes before responding in a way which assured him that she understood his deeper meaning. It was a reaction which only intensified her endearment to him. Your death will not be like other deaths, she said. Precious we, he murmured. I wonder that you do not fear the judgment of a true supreme deity, she said. Do you judge me, we? No, but I fear for you. Think on the price I pay, he said. Every descendant part of me will carry some of my awareness locked away within it, lost and helpless. She put both hands over her mouth and stared at him. This is the horror which my father could not face, and which he tried to prevent, the infinite division and subdivision of a blind identity. She lowered her hands and whispered, You will be conscious? In a way, but mute. A little pearl of my awareness will go with every sandworm and every sand trout, knowing yet unable to move a single cell, aware in an endless dream. She shuddered. Later watched her try to understand such an existence. Could she imagine the final clamor when the subdivided bits of his identity grappled for a fading control of the Ixian machine which recorded his journals? Could she sense the wrenching silence which would follow that awful fragmentation? Lord, they would use this knowledge against you were I to reveal it. Will you tell? Of course not. She shook her head slowly from side to side. Why had he accepted this terrible transformation? Was there no escape? Presently, she said, the machine which writes your thoughts, could it not be attuned to to a million of me, to a billion, to more, 
my dear Hui. None of those knowing pearls will be truly me. Her eyes filmed with tears. She blinked and inhaled a deep breath. Later recognized the Bene Gesserit training in this, the way she accepted a flow of calmness. Lord, you have made me terribly afraid. And you do not understand why I have done this. Is it possible for me to understand? Oh yes, many could understand it. What people do with understanding is another matter. Will you teach me what to do? You already know. She absorbed this silently. Then, it has something to do with your religion. I can feel it. Leto smiled. I can forgive your Ixian masters almost anything for the precious gift of you. Ask and you shall receive. She leaned toward him, rocking forward on her pillow. Tell me about the inner workings of your religion. You will know all of me soon enough, Hui. I promise it. Just remember that sun worship among our primitive ancestors was not far off the mark. Sun worship? She rocked backward. That sun which controls all of the movement, but which cannot be touched. That sun is death. Your death? Any religion circles like a planet around a sun which it must use for energy, upon which it depends for its very existence. Her voice came barely above a whisper. What do you see in your sun, Lord? A universe of many windows through which I may peer. Whatever the window frames, that is what I see. The future? The universe is timeless at its roots and contains therefore all times and all futures. It's true then, she said. You saw a thing which this, she gestured at his long ribbed body, prevents. Do you find it in you to believe that this may be, in some small way, holy? He asked. She could only nod her head. If you share it all with me, he said, I warn you that it will be a terrible burden. Will it make your burden lighter, Lord? Not lighter but easier to accept. Then I will share. Tell me, Lord. Not yet, we. You must be patient a while longer. She swallowed her disappointment, sighing. It's only that my Duncan Idaho grows impatient, Leto said. I must deal with him. She glanced backward, but the small room remained empty. Do you wish me to leave now? I wish you would never leave me. She stared at him, noting the intensity of his regard, a hungry emptiness in his expression which filled her with sadness. Lord, why do you tell me your secrets? I would not ask you to be the bride of a god. Her eyes went wide with shock. Do not answer, he said. Barely moving her head, she sent her gaze along the shadowy length of his body. Do not search for parts of me which no longer exist, he said. Some forms of physical intimacy are no longer possible for me. She returned her attention to his cowled face, noting the pink skin of his cheeks, the intensely human effect of his features in that alien frame. 
if you require children, he said. I would ask only that you let me choose the father, but I have not yet asked you anything. Her voice was faint. Lord, I do not know what to- I will return to the citadel soon, he said. You will come to me there and we will talk. I will tell you then about the thing which I prevent. I am frightened, Lord, more frightened than I ever imagined I could be. Do not fear me. I can be nothing but gentle with my gentle we. As for other dangers, my fish speakers will shield you with their own bodies. They dare not let harm come to you. We lifted herself to her feet and stood trembling. Leto saw how deeply his words had affected her, and he felt the pain of it. Hui's eyes glistened with tears. She clasped her hands tightly to still the trembling. He knew she would come to him willingly at the citadel. No matter what he asked, her response would be the response of his fish speakers. Yes, Lord. It came to Leto that if she could change places with him, take up his burden, she would offer herself. The fact that she could not do this added to her pain. She was intelligence built on profound sensitivity, without any of Morky's hedonistic weaknesses. She was frightening in her perfection. Everything about her reaffirmed his awareness that she was precisely the kind of woman who, if he had grown to normal manhood, he would have wanted, no demanded, as his mate. And the Ixians knew it. Leave me now, he whispered. I am both father and mother to my people. I have known the ecstasy of birth and the ecstasy of death, and I know the patterns that you must learn. Have I not wandered intoxicated through the universe of shapes? Yes, I have seen you outlined in light. That universe which you say you see and feel, that universe is my dream. My energies focus upon it, and I am in any realm and every realm. Thus, you are born. The Stolen Journals My fish speakers tell me that you went to the citadel immediately after Sianok, Leto said. He stared accusingly at Idaho, who stood near where Hui had sat only an hour ago. Such a small passage of time. Yet Leto felt the emptiness as centuries. I needed time to think, Idaho said. He looked into the shadowy pit where Leto's cart rested. And to talk to Siona? Yes. Idaho lifted his gaze to Leto's face. But you asked for Moneo, Leto said. Do they report on every movement I make? Idaho demanded. Not every movement. Sometimes people need to be alone, of course. But do not blame the fish speakers for being concerned about you. Siona says she is to be tested. Was that why you asked for Moneo? What is this test? Moneo knows. I presume that was why you wanted to see him. You presume nothing. You know. Sianok has upset you, Duncan. I am sorry. Do you have any idea what it's like to be me? Here? The gola's lot is not easy, Leto said. Some lives are harder than others. I don't need any juvenile philosophy. What do you need, Duncan? I need to know some things. Such as? I don't understand any of these people around you. 
Without showing any surprise about it, Moneo tells me that Siona was part of a rebellion against you, his own daughter. In his day, Moneo too was a rebel. See what I mean? Did you test him too? Yes. Will you test me? I am testing you. Idaho glared at him. Then, I don't understand your government, your empire, anything. The more I find out, the more I realize that I don't know what's going on. How fortunate that you have discovered the way of wisdom, Leto said. What? Idaho's baffled outrage raised his voice to a battlefield roar which filled the small room. Leto smiled. Duncan, have I not told you that when you think you know something, that is the most perfect barrier against learning? Then tell me what's going on. My friend Duncan Idaho is acquiring a new habit. He is learning always to look beyond what he thinks he knows. All right, all right. Idaho nodded his head slowly in time to the words. Then what's beyond letting me take part in that Sianoke thing? I am binding the fish speakers to the commander of my guard, and I have to fight them off. The escort that took me out to the citadel wanted to stop for an orgy, and the ones who brought me back here when you— They know how much it pleases me to see children of Duncan, Idaho. Damn you! I'm not your stud! No need to shout, Duncan. Idaho took several deep breaths. Then, when I tell them, no, they act hurt at first, and then they treat me like some damned— He shook his head. Holy man or something. Don't they obey you? They don't question anything, unless it's contrary to your orders. I didn't want to come back here. Yet they brought you. You know damn well they won't disobey you. I'm glad you came, Duncan. Oh, I can see that. The fish speakers know how special you are, how fond I am of you, how much I owe you. It's never a question of obedience and disobedience where you and I are concerned. Then what is it a question of? Loyalty. Idaho fell into pensive silence. You felt the power of Sianok? Plato asked. Mumbo jumbo. Then why are you disturbed by it? Your fish speakers aren't an army. They're a police force. By my name, I assure you that's not so. Police are inevitably corrupted. You tempted me with power, Idaho accused. That's the test, Duncan. You don't trust me? I trust your loyalty to the Atreides implicitly, without question. Then what's this talk of corruption and testing? You were the one who accused me of having a police force. Police always observe that criminals prosper. It takes a pretty dull policeman to miss the fact that the position of authority is the most prosperous criminal position available. Idaho wet his lips with his tongue and stared at Leto with obvious puzzlement. But the moral training of... I mean, the legal... The prisons to... What good are laws and prisons when the breaking of a law is not a sin? Idaho cocked his head slightly to the right. Are you trying to tell me that your damned religion is punishment of sins can be quite extravagant? Idaho hooked a thumb over his shoulder toward the world outside the door. All this talk about death penalties, that flogging and I try to dispense with casual laws and prisons wherever possible. You have to have some prisons, do I? Prisons are needed only to provide the illusion that courts and police are effective. They're a kind of job insurance. Idaho turned slightly and thrust a pointing finger toward the door through which he had entered the small room. You've got whole planets that are nothing but prisons. 
I guess you could think of anywhere as a prison if that's the way your illusions go. Illusions. Idaho dropped his hand to his side and stood dumbfounded. Yes. You talk of prisons and police and legalities, the perfect illusions behind which a prosperous power structure can operate while observing quite accurately that it is above its own laws. And you think crimes can be dealt with by... Not crimes, Duncan. Sins. So you think your religion can... Have you noted the primary sins? What? Attempting to corrupt a member of my government and corruption by a member of my government. And what is this corruption? Essentially, it's the failure to observe and worship the holiness of the god Leto. You? Me. But you told me right at the beginning that... You think I don't believe in my own godhead? Be careful, Duncan. Idaho's voice came with angry flatness. You told me that one of my jobs was to help keep your secret. That you... You don't know my secret. That you're a tyrant? That's no gods have more power than tyrants, Duncan. I don't like what I'm hearing. When has an Atreides ever asked you to like your job? You asked me to command your fish speakers, who are judge, jury, and executioner. Idaho broke off. And what? Idaho remained silent. Leto stared across the chill distance between them, so short a space, yet so far. It's like playing a fish on a line, Leto thought. You must calculate the breaking point of every element in the contest. The problem with Idaho was that bringing him to the net always hastened his end, and it was happening too rapidly this time. Alato felt sadness. I won't worship you, Idaho said. The fish speakers recognize that you have a special dispensation, Alato said. Like Moneo and Siona? Much different. So rebels are a special case, Alato grinned. All of my most trusted administrators were rebels at one time. I wasn't a... You were a brilliant rebel. You helped the Atreides wrest an empire from a reigning monarch. Idaho's eyes went out of focus with introspection. So I did. He shook his head sharply as though tossing something out of his hair. And look what you've done with that empire. I have set up a pattern in it. A pattern of patterns, so you say. Information is frozen in patterns, Duncan. We can use one pattern to solve another pattern. Flow patterns are the hardest to recognize and understand. More mumbo-jumbo. You made that mistake once before. Why'd you let the Tleilaxu keep bringing me back to life? One gola after another. Where's the pattern in that? Because of the qualities which you possess in abundance. I will let my father say it. Idaho's mouth drew into a grim line. Leto spoke in Muad'Dib's voice, and even the cowled face fell into a semblance of the paternal features. You were my truest friend, Duncan. Better even than Gurney Halleck. But I am the past. Idaho swallowed hard. The things you're doing. They cut against the Atreides grain. You're damn right. Leto resumed his ordinary tones. Yet I'm still Atreides. Are you really? What else could I be? I wish I knew. You think I play tricks with words and voices? What in all the seven hells are you really doing? I preserve life while setting the stage for the next cycle. You preserve it by killing? 
death has often been useful to life. That's not Atreides, but it is. We often saw the value of death. The Ixians, however, have never seen that value. What have the Ixians got to do with everything? They would make a machine to conceal their other machinations. Idaho spoke in a musing tone. Is that why the Ixian ambassador was here? You've seen Hui Nori, Leto said. Idaho pointed upward. She was leaving as I arrived. You spoke to her. I asked her what she was doing here. She said she was choosing sides. A burst of laughter erupted from Leto. Oh my, he said. She is so good. Did she reveal her choice? She said she serves the god emperor now. I didn't believe her, of course, but you should believe her. Why? Ah, yes. I forgot that you once doubted even my grandmother, the Lady Jessica. I had good reason, but you also doubt Siona. I'm beginning to doubt everyone. And you say you don't know your value to me, Leto accused. What about Siona? Idaho demanded. She says you want us... I mean, damn it! The thing you must always trust about Siona is her creativity. She can create the new and beautiful. One always trusts the truly creative. Even the machinations of the Ixians? That is not creative. You always know the creative because it is revealed openly. Concealment betrays the existence of another force entirely. Then you don't trust this, Hui Nori, but you- I do trust her, and precisely for the reasons I have just given you. Idaho scowled, then relaxed and sighed. I'd better cultivate her acquaintance. If she is someone you- No. You will stay away from Hui Nori. I have something special in mind for her.